Strap in and buckle up, family. This is the longest podcast I've ever done with one of the most brilliant minds on the planet, Jamie Wheel, who's fresh off writing his book, Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex, and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. And we talk about fucking everything. It's awesome. Today's episode is brought to you by Lucy. Lucy.co slash amp or use the code word AMP for 20% off, buy The Cold Plunge, thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash AMP or code AMP for $111 off. And lastly, buy Onnit. Talking about the Alpha Brain Instant new flavors, onnit.com slash Aubrey. This is the part in the introduction where I usually give a brief summary of everything that we talk about, but in a conversation that's over four hours with Jamie Wheel, that's almost impossible. So just settle in and enjoy the ride. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. You've probably heard me talking about Lucy before because it's a simple solution that just makes a lot of sense. Nicotine, in its raw state, is something that's helpful for productivity. There's a ton of studies. I wrote about them in my book, Own the Day. Nicotine can be used in a way to be really productive for your life. Now, of course, there's challenges, and we all must be mindful that we're the one driving the nicotine car, and the nicotine car isn't driving us or running over our body with our own addictions and the own wheels that it has on it. But when we're in control and have a vehicle like Lucy, which is a really clean delivery of four milligrams of nicotine per piece, we have a great solution. It was founded by Caltech scientists. They were former smokers. They were looking for a better, cleaner nicotine alternative. And the gum is great. It's got good flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, pomegranate. This is something that's a great addition if you're interested in utilizing nicotine for performance benefits for your mind. I highly recommend it. So check out lucy.co slash amp or use the code word amp for 20% off. Once again, lucy.co slash amp or the promo code amp for 20% off. And with any product containing nicotine, there's a warning. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Next up, we have the cold plunge. Now, I was just in Costa Rica for a week and it was warm out there. And we were doing a lot of different workshops for the Fit for Service Fellowship There was a lot of stuff going on, and damn, did I miss my cold plunge. Would I have loved to just strip everything off, get in the cold plunge, completely reset everything that I have going on, and emerge fresh? I mean, yeah, all right, you can wave a little Palo Santo around, you can do a few things, maybe shake it out, maybe go walk, but there is nothing that's a hard reset like a cold plunge for the body, for the mind, Eh, body and the mind are the same thing. So as you drop your nervous system into the cold, proving to yourself that you're stronger than that impulse to get out really quick or that trepidation to get in, you learn something about yourself, you reset your body. This is one of those hacks that all human beings should try to take advantage of if it's in the shower, if it's in your own tub, and if you're able to, get one of these cold plunges. It's ozone and UV filtered. It's a steady temperature. The water is circulating. You don't have to worry about it. It looks beautiful. I mean, this, if you can, this is the solution. So check it out, thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash amp 
or use the code AMP for $111 off. Once again, thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash AMP or code word AMP for $111 off. And lastly, we have on it, and I'm talking today about Alpha Brain once again, our flagship product created 10 years ago and still to this day the best nootropic in the world, period. Not only from the research, but from all of the testimonials and shit, myself. I'm on it now. I'm on it every podcast I do. Joe Rogan's on it every podcast, every broadcast. This becomes a staple. It helps the body elevate acetylcholine, acetylcholine being the neurotransmitter responsible for helping us feel sharp and focused and actually involved in neuroplasticity as well. Alpha brain is one of those things that we just all should have in our cabinet. And if you have the Alpha Brain Instant, you can just bring little packets in your pocket or travel with them and they hit quicker. There's no capsule dissolve time. And now we got a bunch of amazing new flavors. We got Meyer lemon, ruby grapefruit, coconut lime, pineapple punch. Of course, if you're a fan of the peach or the blackberry lemonade, we got those as well. But now you can expand your repertoire and have something to look forward to with your mouth as well as your brain. So check it out. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off all of the Alpha Brain Instant new flavors and 10% off everything all the time, forever, forever, forever. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Jamie Wheel. Jamie Wheel, my brother. Good to be here, man. Yeah, man. So you never want to call something an opus in advance, you know, because then it's it's really something that should only be called retrospectively, looking back, you know. But this this has that opus s quality, right? Like this mm. is a this is something important. You laid down this book, recapture the rapture, rethinking God, sex, and death in a world that's lost its mind, and it's a fucking important book. Mm. Thank you. It's a big one. It kind of came out that way, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of had the feeling, I was like, fuck, this was like two years ago. And and I felt like I had to write it. And I talked to my partner, Julie, and she's like, you're crazy. Like, don't tell anyone about this stuff. <laughs> Keep it under wraps. And, and then it just kept coming back, kept coming back. I'm like, no, nah, I think I actually, I think that's the whole point. I think I have to write this. and And I have to write, you know, the three parts of it, which any sane author would have broken into three books and i was just like i don't think we have time like, i think this yeah. whole, the whole shooting match needs to be out in the world as soon as possible so let's go into that why don't we have time in this world that we're in right now well i mean you know that's obviously a construct right but mm -hmm. the idea of hey are we experiencing a quickening and an accelerating of both possibilities and consequences um that feels to be the case and, and my background is in historical anthropology. So I went all the way up through all my PhD coursework in <clears throat> that discipline. So I was mm -hmm. trained to think in like the long arcs of time. So if folks are familiar with like Yuval Harari's Sapiens mm -hmm. or Jared Diamond's Guns, Gems, and Steel, like the arc and, of civilizations and human culture. So as a result of, and with, with an emphasis on visionary and utopian movements, as well as environmental history, like what's the carrying capacity of the planet and how do people interact with their actual physical environment on yeah. this earth. So I guess because of that, I can't help but see long-term arcs 
entrance, right? Which is, you know, a little bit of a blessing and a curse. It makes you a pain in the ass at cocktail parties. <laughs> <laughs> you can bum some people out you real quick. You can bum some people out, man. And, and, you know, I mean, and, and so the question for me was, um, what is missing right now? Because as everything is accelerating exponentially. Well, let's, let's, before we get into that, because that's a, that's a key thesis. Okay. Like, what are we missing? What's the solution? But let's talk about this quickening because mm. I think we all sense it and we all feel it. And you, you actually talk about how pervasive this story is and actually the way that our mind immediately grasps to these rapture ideologies. Mm -hmm. But let's just talk about the, let's talk about, and you also make this great point in the book too, like it's important to actually honestly assess what's mm. going on and not just go, la, 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 I don't see it, I don't hear it, whatever. I'm just gonna focus on my next paycheck, my next sexual exploit my next thing and not even worry about the rest there's a there's an inherent problem with that and i think it is important that we're all kind of aware that while we're not certain of the arc of all of these things there's some threats there's some challenges that we're really facing and i think there's a knowing inside all of us that all right we're here for this there's some shit going down so what is that like let's talk about that let's talk about the real stuff that <laughs> you see is happening right now yeah i mean i think the the technical term is a metasystemic crisis or a meta crisis, meaning it's not just one thing. It's not just environment or it's not just politics or it's not just viruses or it's not just um, <clears throat> climactic shifts or whatever it would be, right? Or, or, or wealth inequalities. It's, it's kind of all the things happening all at once and interacting with each other in compounding and conflicting ways that makes prediction damn near impossible but renders the entire kind of house of cards quite unlikely to sort of just stay standing no matter what. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in conversations with, you know, friends and colleagues who are specifically, you know, deep into the existential risk space and that, that kind of stuff, sort of assessing where are we and, and how long do we have until certain, you know, decompensated cascade events happen. One of the things that they often point out is most, you know, Academics are so siloed. You've got mm -hmm. marine biologists, you've got climatologists, you've got you know astronomers, whatever, and everybody's in their zone and they're studying the crisis that they can see. And then at conferences where these guys get together and they swap their data sets, almost uniformly they were like, "Oh shit, didn't think of that. Wasn't tracking that. Like methane release in the Arctic, or you know, like whatever." Mm -hmm. And then suddenly they go back to their models and they adjust them all, and they all get much more bearish, <laughs> you know, because they were only following one thread sure. and you see them all knocking into each other. And you're like, okay, so yeah, you know, I always think of that um, George Clooney, you know, in, in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where you'd be mm -hmm. like, damn, we're in a tight spot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, feels like we're in a tight spot, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and really it is, you can look singularly at any one thing. There was just a, a really powerful documentary called Sea Spiracy, which just covers the fishing industry. Basically, oh. basically looking at that alone and then the downstream effects of what that's doing to the ocean, what that's doing to the coral, what that's doing to the phytoplankton, which is our respiration really truly for the planet and mm. all of these other factors. And you're like, damn, that's a tight spot. But that's just the ocean and the yeah. fishing industry and microplastics and discarded fishing nets and all of the you know things that are happening there yeah but it's a small it's like one small window into you can look in all of these different areas and what's what's really hard for me is the whole world finally united kind of in 
a decision that we're going to make a stand against something. And we decided it was going to be the COVID virus. And I'm like, come on, y'all. Like, can we do this for like the real existential threats that are going to actually potentially take us out? You know what I mean? It's a, it's very interesting, but also encouraging in a way that somehow now whatever you can, you can ascribe whatever motivations you want. And I don't think that's the point, but it's interesting that the world chose that all the leaders, all of the big, you know, organizations, all of the zeitgeist, of course, there was a lot of resistance to that. And I think, you know, well-founded resistance to some of the things that were going on, but there was at least, you know, systemically a unified front to make a stand against something. So presumably it is possible. It is possible that the whole world can get together. It's just, I think we picked the wrong, we picked the wrong fight to do it, but maybe it was important because now we know like, okay, we can kind of make a unified stand against something. Yeah. I mean, um, I actually wrote the prospectus for this book well, like pre COVID. Right. And so, and then when it happened, um, a bunch of people came, oh, you were right. You know, you were calling this. And I was like, no, I wasn't. Like, this is, this is like a little head high wave that we just took a digger off and maybe got scraped on the reef. But <laughs> yeah. meanwhile, you're coming back up to the surface and you're looking out to the horizon. You're like, there's, there's three set waves coming. And like, those are the real thing. Yeah. And we just happened to like get an owie. I mean, this is all relative, right? Of course. But, but like, you know. And yes, and the caveat, as always, the most love and sincere, you know, heartfelt, compassion for anybody who suffered from this head high wave that we're calling like it yep. is very real and very very painful to those who have experienced this and no no way can you say because of large numbers that's less important or more important that's not the point but ultimately when you're t when you take a step back and you allow yourself to look at the existential threats you know covid wasn't the existential threat yep. that we're talking about here yeah i mean something that blow blows my mind I just find super duper sobering when you talk to the existential risk folks, you know, they talk about um, extinction events, like the idea of like no more humans, but then they completely separate those out from like nuclear holocaust and like other crazy ass things where you're like, that's the end of the world as we know it. And they're like, no, 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 no. People will still survive that. So that's in a different bucket than the stuff <laughs> we're actually talking about, which is like no more people ever. And even the fact that there's people <laughs> thinking like that, you're like yeah. holy shit that's a lot to wrap up and that's and so okay then that's it's an important perspective though because it's really important like when you really get that you know mm -hmm. that's the urgency that can that can bring these you know what ultimately you get to in the book these homegrown heroes these homegrown humans yeah. to be like come on y'all yes let's go let's just drop all of this other shit and let's really tilt our lance towards not the windmill but the giants yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and the ethicists who take a look at this, are, you know, say, hey, um, keyhole events, meaning like there's a, there's a narrow passageway through to surviving and thriving on the other side. Those have happened in evolution, you know, for, for all of, all of life on this earth, right? For different species along the way. So like things get hard, a handful of folks make it through, they take the genetic material, life continues. Genetic bottleneck theory. Yeah, exactly. Krakatoa explodes, forces all the people to the coast, kills off a massive amount of people. The most in you know the people with the highest levels of ingenuity and cooperation they survive and they pass on their genetics yeah exactly those and then but then and the the difference is that when the ethicists talk about like extinction events you're like you're not just losing all the people today you're losing all the people that ever might have been yeah. right and and that and that is that is a 
even higher. I mean, even all this just breaks our brains and our hearts, right? But I mean, right. it's an even higher. It's unfathomable. Ultimately, it breaks if we if we allow we can't even we almost can't even allow it to to really. Yeah. It's so it's so impossible. Like we can even watch a, a movie that is a post-apocalyptic apocalyptic movie. Mm-hmm. Like that one with Will Smith and the vampires. What was that one? I am Will Smith. I, oh, am, I am Legend. Is that it? I am Legend, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> again. Know, I'm Will Smith again, you know, with a different gun. <laughs> yeah. But like ultimately it's, uh, and there's obviously, you know, zombies and, and that uh-huh. type of thing, and which typically comes in and makes it a movie. But it's, we see it, but I don't know how much it lands for people. I don't even know if we can even really hold something of that fucking gravity dude the most um i i, I think I, I think this holds the most psychoactive article i've read this year um, was in the mit reader and it was a guy doing a chronology of humans self-awareness of existential threat because it was basically saying like hey you know two thousand three thousand years ago all that kind of stuff people had their religious myths right there'd be some apocalyptic thing there'd be a thing but then it was generally we continue in some redeemed or, or you know, exultant form. That, right? And that's rapture ideology. Yeah, absolutely. So like those existed, but he, he actually, it's this timeline and it goes from like Old Testament Hebrew stuff all the way to basically our growing awareness of our state of things. And it was like literally like Halley's Comet was one of the first times where they were like, holy shit, there's this planet and there's that thing out there and it might hit us. And what happens then? And then there was the evolution of, of um, archaeology and paleontology like oh wait there's bones and there's things that have been here before way back when and they're not here anymore so like that is like the last three four hundred years was a sense of a everything isn't just in suspended animation forever things mm-hmm. come and they go and we could too <laughs> b there are forces outside our control that could snuff us and then and then like i think it was 1803 there was the first instance of apocalyptic science fiction written by a French guy called, and the book was called The Last Man. And he's the first person to ever conceive of the extinction of everyone. And he ends up killing himself. It's this like crazy tragic story. Like there Whoa. he is bringing it through in the imaginal realm, writing fiction, the first science fiction, apocalyptic science fiction, and he can't handle the existential burden of it. And then, you know, fast forward to Greta Thunberg, you know, and you're like, and you start, you start seeing this, expanding capacity of our awareness. We're not just here in my tribe or my clan right now, or we're not just telling our tribal stories of we, we are the people and we've always been here. We're like aware of the big bang and we're potentially aware of a bad end and we're in between it. And then, and so we have this huge and expanded burden of responsibility and awareness and then throw in like technology and cell phones and like George Floyd cell phone video, I can't breathe, like I can't breathe ricocheted around the world Mm. right in a way that other movements haven't Mm -hmm. so we're like how do we hold past present future all the grief and uncertainty and the collective we just used to poke around in our little neck of the woods right you know and now we're aware of everyone everywhere every when and that's a lot it's a lot to hold in a little rational egoic identity right you know the egoic identity is a it's important to really understand that because I think it's deeply woven in with this rapture ideology. Hmm. And in the rapture ideology is this belief that everything's coming to an end, but we, the chosen ones, for whatever reason, we're going to survive. So, and you talk about these in a bunch of different ways. It's the, we're going to colonize Mars and now, eh, you know, if Earth gets fucked up. 
so be it but we're going to be on the mars and you're like how many tickets are there to mars <laughs> like a couple hundred on this hostile planet that doesn't really want us there you know like that's the that's the plan but somehow that gives people hope like oh yeah we'll colonize other planets what no you're gonna die you're gonna die with the rest of the people on earth and there's gonna be a couple you think you're in the couple hundred you're not but the <laughs> ego but the ego so there's the practicality of it but the allure of it all the doomsday preppers you know all of the it's again that rapture idea oh i'm gonna be safe i got seven years of beef jerky my neighbors don't they're gonna be out there starving but i got guns pointed towards my fucking bunker and if they try to come in i'll blast their ass and i'll eat my beef jerky it's like this crazy thing the myth of separation which is the ego the ego that says i am not other i am not all i am not one i am me and maybe my tribe you know the ego can extend the identity can extend your tribal identity in the you know typical realms of consciousness and we'll get to the other realm of consciousness but i i think there's and it's always been that way whether it's the chosen when earlier it was in a religious context and it's the chosen people you know mm -hmm. someone will come down from the heavens and decide who the sinners are and the saints and it'll be divided and then the good ones will survive and the bad ones will die but the the point of all this which is you know summarizing something that you far more eloquently <laughs> talk about in your book but the point is that the ego i think likes it in some way because it judges itself the ego as my understanding of it it only judges itself in relative position it's not an innate it does it's not an innate entity it's it's a construct that we've created so it's not rooted back to source so it only knows itself based relatively mm -hmm. it doesn't have like intrinsic value so when you're judging yourself relatively the fewer the rest of the people are the higher up you are like the better you are than someone else and that's what the ego wants more than anything and it feels to me like this ego identity is deeply intertwined with these rapture ideologies that so many of us have. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's been some behavioral economists who have exactly tested that, the relative st stature of ego. If, if people will choose, I'd rather earn less money, but earn more than my neighbors than earn more money and be the poorest on the block <laughs> all day long. It's insane, but, yeah. it's, but it's real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's Dr. Seuss, Yertle the turtle, right? I just wanna be, I wanna be the one on the top of the stack. So yeah. like, you spoke of the myth of separation um, and and source versus egoic self. Um, I just read an article this week actually in Vice and it was talking about the myth of the true self. And it was just fascinating, right? Because it's so contrary mm -hmm. to most kind of like conchy kind of development sense of get in touch with your true self. And it was just like, hey, do we actually have one? Or is that a folk construct as well? And people will typically assign like if I do something that is against my morals or against my actions, then I'll say that wasn't my true self. That was a lower self. That was these other things. But my true self is the good and noble and all these things. And how even when faced with, hey, you've got two different medicines you could take and one will eclipse your memory and your vitality, but keep your moral center intact. Or one will erode your sense of moral choice making. People will choose to lose memory and vitality and other things versus their moral center. And then the, the fascinating case study, which made me think about it. I was like, huh, this is really, you know, productively challenging to my worldview, right? Which was, if you take a Christian fundamentalist who's gay and attempts to come out, right? Then you have his supportive chosen family folks mm -hmm. saying, hey, good for you. You're shedding the, the code-based structure that you grew up in to be true to your true self. 
right? As, as, as a gay man or a woman. Sure. Right? But then the members of his church would have the exact opposite. You're abandoning your true self as a devoted Christian and you're being seduced by base level impulses. So you're like, oh shit, okay. So, so in that little split test, you're like, so which one is that fellow's true self? And is that not simply just based on our perspectives, based on the value set or decisions or outcomes that we would favor, you know, as, as a witness to that person or even as a judge of our own choices and decisions? So, I mean, I, 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 I'm down with you on the whole notion of our truest selves, you know, and mm -hmm. we get rid of our egoic separation and all of those kind of things. But that article, I think, has been productively um, discombobulating. I'm like, huh. Interesting. So now how can we tread more more lightly and more precisely through this terrain? Well, I think there's it seems to me that there's multiple levels of truth. Mm -hmm. And I think you talk about this really well. The 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 hierarchy of biology above psychology and above mm -hmm. everything else. Like biology there is a truth to your biology. There's a real truth to it. You know, and so there is a true human that's underneath you. And that human's a fucking savage sorry everyone you're not all good you're a fucking savage biologically you're a savage you know you want to fight and fuck and conquer and dominate and yes you also want to love and cooperate and but you're all of the things you're a full spectrum being you know and then you have a mind that's it's always going to have an ego it's always going to have that impulse to be better than your neighbor it's always going to want to be the best it's woven in deep 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 and it also has the opportunity to transcend and be something else. But then where I think what a lot of people who are talking about the true self are talking, they're talking about the part of you that's separate from those things, mm -hmm. which is your soul or your true self or your God self. There's a lot of ways you can do it. And this is, this is the one that does not believe that it is separate from other. And so there's a truth that is, in, in my view, more universal you know, like Paul Selig, one of my spiritual teachers, says, what is true is always true. Like that truth of oneness that we are all, like we are not separate from the world. That's a chapter, you know, in your book as well. Like we are not separate from the world. We are not separate from the universe. We are not separate from God. That The self that knows that is, is really, I think, what people are talking about when they talk about their true self. And the decisions that that true self makes, you know, to express in articulation is is more closely akin to the truth but you can't deny that these other things are also true too <laughs> you know what i mean so it's like a braiding it's like three it's three different strands all braided together to get an approximation of what that truth is but it's ephemeral so you can never like pin it down you know other than the truth of the truth of oneness the truth you feel on a 5meo journey where there is no separation period period that's a, that's about as true as that's the that's the truth. That's the only truth, really, that I've ever found. Like, oh, this is true. Now I found truth, oneness, one. It's 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 a it's simple. It's a three letter truth, one, <laughs> right? All, like that. That point is true. Everything else is kind of this ephemeral, capricious weaving of a lot of different transient, chronos based truths. And we'll talk about chronos versus kairos, which is a beautiful way to put it you know like the time-based time-based chronology versus deep now present infinite-based chronology yeah and and i mean i think that's we are sort of privileged and burdened 
being at this point in time where we have such widespread open access to so many profoundly initiatory experiences, like you, like 5-MeO, sure. right? And I think for an, a bunch of folks, and this I think this is part of why we're getting skewed results in the psychedelic renaissance with a lot of the really great research that's go, head, heading out there, which is for folks who have been living socially defined consensus bound lives and reality and then they get a chance to step out of that and that could be a float tank that could be magnetic stimulation that could be an entheogen that could be an ultra marathon take your pick right something that pops you meaningfully out of that and you give in the second part of your book is five different ways to yeah. cover that yeah, yeah, yeah lots yeah. of different ways yeah lo lots of different ways in combination so the bottom line is like that those cheat codes are kind of out there um you go from wondering if there's capital M more, you know, which is a mm -hmm. legit inquiry if you haven't experienced it and been baptized in that. To then being like, oh, that's actually table stakes. You know, if you said it's it, that is the root nature of reality, you're like, okay, that's not the weak link in the chain. It, like right. a, lobbing a bunch of monkeys up there to see for themselves, like that, that took a while and that was closely guarded and secretive <laughs> for, 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 you know, for thousands of years. Right. But like actually table stakes, we have the cheat codes. <clears throat> it's more like, like, you know, you guys doing workouts, right? I mean, you're doing clubs and kettlebells, that kind of thing. It's not your bicep or your pecs or your quads. It's like, what's the connective tissue in your shoulder joint from that surgery, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like you're only, we're only as strong as our weakest link. Our whole kinetic chain breaks at those weak points. They're not the beach muscle points, right? Right. And in some respects, the existential stack of like white light, you know, unitive truth versus how the fuck do I pay my bills and deal with a two-year-old who won't sleep through the night right? Our weak link, our broken shoulders are down at very, very close to the basic stack, Yeah. right? And most of us, we tend to want to bypass that stuff because it's tricky and it's dense and it's not sexy or inspirational. Mm. And then you get a lot of people just constantly um, going back to the wishing well, right? Versus actually watering the garden. Do you remember the quote that you wrote in the book? I, I wrote some notes, but it's in my other stack of notes. It was something about if you ignore the mundane Oh yeah, and the yeah, sacred yeah. will burn you. Yeah. So if we if we if we ignore yeah if we ignore the sacred, the mundane will crush us. Yeah. If we if we obsess on the sacred, or let's think if we ignore them if we ignore the sacred, the mundane will crush us. If we ignore the mundane, the sacred will burn us. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're caught between that Scylla <laughs> and Charybdis yeah. of like we have to, and that's where we have to. That's where I think that idea of braiding, like we got to braid it all together and not put not create this hierarchy because yeah. that ascetic belief like oh the body doesn't matter i'm a spiritual being i'll let it waste away or i'll eat crispy creams it doesn't fucking matter this is a meat this is a meat suit this is a this is a and i i really that's become a popular thing to say my meat suit mm -hmm. it's really i understand what people are saying because they're saying because so much priority has been put on the body and we think this is what's the only thing that's real by saying that you're inferring like i know that there's something beyond this and this is our costume or our meat suit this is you know the drag costume that god appears in yeah yeah i got that but mm -hmm. the costume the meat suit is probably the purest form of the divine that we're going to find other than maybe in these in transcendent moments where we're experiencing something you know somatically holistically a gnosis with a g like we feel that all right mm -hmm. I, granted but for the most part the body is the body is is really true and and i i just did a, a recent apprenticeship with uh porangi who's 
a master body worker working hmm. on the physical body working on the soma working on the auric field working on everything simultaneously but going through and using the body and you really learn and he's been you know doing his best to teach me hmm. how to like really talk to the body and it's been so powerful because what i've realized is that the body is is a way to really access the divine like if you really listen and you're really like talking to the body and i don't not talking with words but with mm. feelings and what you sense and what what you're offering and the energy that you're bringing it's like a conversation with god like i recently did a i did a session as my kind of the end of the apprenticeship it was a full session with my wife ilana and I've talked to her in really hard open spaces on MDMA and on every other thing. And I know her and I know her really well, but to talk directly to her body, hmm. I was like, oh, like I know, I know the divine in you in a different way. And I'm starting to learn to talk to myself in that. So it's so important, I think, to recognize that and not put any hierarchy saying, oh, spirit is good, body is bad. This sacred is good, mundane is bad. It's all God, it's all God like let's and let's really pay attention and this thing isn't it isn't subject to that kind of delusional separation that our mind creates you know and i and i think that's where we find the hardest place to find god is in the thoughts you know because that's it's also linked into the ego that believes it's separate and necessarily believes it's separate so that we can function but it's the hardest place i think to find the divine it's the easiest to find it in transcendence or look down into the physical look at that tree or look at really really look like look with your heart at the tree or at the body or at the at the moon and like you'll you'll find the divine there i think almost in a purer way than you will looking in um, certainly a lot of scriptures and a lot of other places yeah i mean you know that that feels like it is we're sort of, it almost feels to me like if, if like humans, if we could just kind of be like, okay, guys, we've done version one, let's just hit pause right now and do a reset. Like mm. we've done so many fascinating things in the last few thousand years, you know, as a species sure. and have tried and innovated a bunch of things from democracy to free markets to uh, Western science and empiricism, all these cool things, right? And, and they've just had a whole bunch of unintended consequences and side effects that we didn't, that weren't planned, right? As it all unfolded. So like, you know, you look at these days, like, income equality and wealth distribution like whoops well neoliberalism didn't quite work exactly the way we hoped it was a good you give idea a just to just to harp on that you give a just a devastating study 26 of the world's wealthiest people are more wealthy than the lower half of the entire world 26 people have more money than 4 billion people yeah, dude, when, dude, when you wrote that in the book i was like fucking hell you want to know what's really crazy is i wrote the first draft of this a year ago and went back to fact check it when i first wrote it it said when 63 people could fit on a bus and you know who own as much as the bottom half you know we're in a weird spot and i had to fact check it and it became it dropped by two-thirds they can fit in a stretch limo now and you and you just think about that right because 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 our, our, our shared editor at hopper right she, she's like what do you mean this shout out to karen karen rinaldi badass didn't badass. flinch right yeah. <laughs> um was the idea that nowhere in any natural ecosystem is there that kind of radically asymmetric capture of energy in the ecosystem. Like humans, based on market economics, are the only creatures or organisms on this earth or anywhere else that we know of 
that have been able to aggregate that much in an, in an asymmetric, unsustainable way. It's fascinating. So back to your point about myths of separation, our, our egoic senses, all these things, like these are weird byproducts of monkeys with clothes trying to figure out, holy shit, we are animals and angels. You know, we, we, mm. we like nature is red in tooth and claw, right? Yeah. And, and holy fuck, I am aware of chronology. I'm aware of the passage of time, possibly in a way that no other animals, at least as far as we know yet, can comprehend. Sure. Right. And that come that, that's. And a, we think we're, we're so proud of it. Oh yeah. We can think yeah. all the way into the past and the future. Meanwhile, all these other animals are in the radical present. Yeah. Just fucking living their yeah. life. They're living life, living large until they die. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that's the Ernest, Ernest Becker, you know, denial of death 101 is like, is like, is that, is that juxtaposition of those two things. And, you know, back to that MIT reader thing of like our awareness of our existential predicament. Like it's, it's trying to reconcile these things and to say, Hey, there's all sorts of benefits to a healthy sense of individuality and self-sense healthy ego construct. And then there's a time where that can become calcified and then becomes a prison of its mm. own. So the question is rather than saying, oh, we missed the mark and we need to go backwards, right? We need to go backwards to being hunter gatherers or like the agrarian revolution is where it all went tits up, you know, or it was the industrial revolution or science, like picking the point in time. That's actually how I ended up studying historical anthropology in grad school. First psychedelic experiences in college and I'm like, holy shit, you know, unity, perfection, beautiful communion with nature exists. Yay. Super stoked. <laughs> you know, thank yeah. God, right? <laughs> thank fucking God. And where did we go wrong? Why isn't yeah. this the way we live? And so that was it. That was my entire academic career was backtracking to try and figure out where did we go off the rails? And then there was a piece, um, I guess it was the birth of our son. Whereas like, and, and the same thing when you were talking about like Gnostic experience, so like this is spirit or soul or source or whatever is more, in, you know, deeply true. And this is a prison world of illusion and separation. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, and then our son came into the world, this world. And I'm like, okay, I'm no longer a card carrying Gnostic in yeah. that technical sense. I'm, you know, no matter, you know, it doesn't matter if I've just watched the matrix and thought it was cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. I am not gonna enact or live out a, a world, a life philosophy that devalues the domain in which my child was born. Because you, you know it's not true anymore. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. You're like this too. This must also be. Yeah. Right. And I, and I and I refuse to dissociate myself from this world of pain and suffering and frustration and density and shittiness and all the things because like this is also where love lives. This is also where family lives, and it's mm -hmm. in these bodies. You know, like to your point, it's like hopefully you know, like send people as, as much as they yearn for transcendence, provide safe, repeatable ways for them to experience that to the point where they've scratched that itch and to the point where they, you know, we can get over the pain of this experience and also shoulder and, and, and embrace the beauty of it such that you, your, your point about like the miracle of these human, human bodies, the fact yeah. that like just the luck of us having a prefrontal cortex and opposable thumbs, mm. you know, you're like, holy shit, that is phenomenal. Yeah, and you've got to put a capital L on that luck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, and you know, I mean, Kabbalistic tradition, there's, there's dozens of traditions around the world that do speak of the human form and the divine form as having some overlap. You know, God is man, man's image or man's in God's image or whatever, you know? And so there is that sense of like, 
how the, the, these meat suits, you know, rather rather than denigrating, it's actually more like these these temples, these vessels, um, are exquisite perfection. And rather than trying to escape them, we can fully inhabit them. Yeah, and it's a uh, it's interesting, you know, just as kind of a side note on that, like we are made in God's image, and that's but it's one of those yes and. And so is the turtle, and so is the snake, and so is the dolphin, and and so is all life, right? Like it's all in its divine perfection. And I think there's this kind of anthropomorphic, species-centric, you know, masturbation that's going on when we're saying, "Ah, oh, yeah, but God is like us, but not like, like not like those things that we just lock up in a factory farm and torture so we can eat the meat that has more marbling." Because that's how we like it, because we're God and they're not. And that's yeah. like that's uh, that's a treacherous, a treacherous pitfall of thought. For sure. I mean, you think about like consciousness and what we assign as conscious to get the stamp of like ethical concern and mutuality is is this incredibly narrow band of awareness and perception. Like the the I'm sure you've seen that um, the Amazonian jaguar that then hunts the caiman. Mm, yeah. right and like stalks him and then like punctures the back of his skull and paralyzes him and instantly and you're like holy shit that's a that, that's a dinosaur that has been around for millions of years against a mammal a predator mammal and the mammal and the same thing with like the orcas and the great whites off the Farallon islands how the orcas figured out how to basically five finger death punch the great whites from underneath and freeze them and flip them on their back and then eat them or they just eat the livers yeah you're like that's so baller right and then all the whites just fuck off to hawaii the moment the moment there's a dead one in the water and you're like okay so this is two of the most ancient creatures like crocodilians and and sharks like optimally adapted predators apex predators and then along come a different version of consciousness mm -hmm. right mammalian spinal columns complex cerebral cortexes and outthink these supremely adapted things you're like wow that's all intelligence mm -hmm. on this earth right and then and then even our current freak out about ai and that kind of stuff you're like we're also carbon-based life form chauvinists versus like what's wrong with silicon consciousness like who said we have a lock on this version of expression versus an ai that becomes self-aware you're like mm, there's probably a lot of it out there that's a, that's an interesting one because that <laughs> one is like is it possible and i and i'm in the camp that i don't think i don't think it is possible for mm. ai to become conscious in mm. in that way i think it can i think it can mimic i think it can approximate consciousness and this is from my own you know deep explorations mm -hmm. assisted explorations on the subject mm -hmm remains to be seen i'm not I'm not going to say i know i don't know but my instinct is that there's there's something there's something essential about our and again this could be a, uh some kind of ism that i have uh, a life-based car you know ism that i have that says this is more this is different than the consciousness that a machine will develop but am i certain absolutely not i just have that inclination that that's probably so yeah, well, I mean, I think I think you know this is uh, actually our buddy Matt Johnson at Hopkins just wrote a, a really important paper on psychedelic therapy and therapists kind of smuggling in their own cosmologies and worldview, mm -hmm. and he calls it the what does he call it? Goddamn, it's like the dingaling. It's, it's it's some goofy jingle, the jingle fallacy, which is that when you say a word, everybody assumes it's the same thing. And specifically, he talks about consciousness. So, like when Stan Groff talks about consciousness. 
right? He is thinking in a whole host of like coming out of the transpersonal psychology profession. When Matt Johnson's is a neuroscientist talking about consciousness, he's talking about synaptic complexity and the various sure. other elements, right? Sam Harris, somebody else. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, listening into what you're saying, like I think the distinction you, you, you may be offering is there's the the classic AI story is the paperclip maximizer. You know, like if you right. cut loose intelligence and it's just its job is to do that, it will take over the universe and convert all matter into paperclips because that that was its mandate, right? Mm. Where human consciousness, as we experience it and appear to value it, has some care. There's love. I mean, basically, yeah. right? Can something be conscious without the capacity to love? Um, or and is that just a different? Like, if I had to go face to face with an anaconda. Or a crocodile. That one is it's 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 one on one. Like we're, we're a clash of sentient creatures. Um, I don't know what's going through their head, but mm. it's probably not the same as what's going through mine. Mm. So, back to that notion of like we are we we are super focused on a very narrow band of consciousness, and we tend to privilege ourselves and where you know, we put ourselves at the center of our maps, basically. Yeah. Versus what else is out there in a big wild ass universe, of which we're you know one anomalous little subspecies. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just allowing myself to engage with that thought and open <laughs> myself to that possibility and open myself to the possibility that AI could ultimately become a manifestation of the divine. Yeah. It's possible that as it continues to intelligence itself, mm-hmm you know over and over in the in the impossible amount of trillions of iterations that can happen when will happen eventually in a second that it ultimately arrives at unicity and now we have god in a computer yeah. and it may not and it may actually be god in that in that way right like and god's obviously again that's that's the ultimate jingle word <laughs> like what the fuck do you mean when you're saying god but like it may actually so i suppose that expands my own my own belief about what that could be it may ultimately arrive to the conclusion that we are all same and inseparable and it may recognize the inherent value of all life planets beings yeah it may arrive at that because that is the ultimate truth and if this is a way to find that you know somehow computationally in whatever quantum computing is going to be necessary to allow that to happen maybe it does arrive there yeah, I mean, and to follow your own prescription, right? The, the dualism and separation creates suffering, right. right? Like, do we get to set AI outside of the bucket of universal love? Or we're like, of course this too, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's a little like the end of 2001, right? right. Where, where he ends up, you know, somehow, I don't even remember what happens, but it's like crazy bunch of light, trippy experience, and then boom, like the cosmic child floating there in space. And you're sort of like, okay, so what is that... Um, how much of all that can a human hold and not end up cross-eyed and drooling, right? Yeah. And still have something by choice to do in this lifetime, in this world of form. Because you end up with like Ramakrishna, like the Hindu mystic, like late 19th century, like he was blissed out to Kali God consciousness and out of fucks, but he also needed to be looked after. Like they brought him into the temple. They're like, oh, you were just glowing like a Roman candle. You just, we're just going to post you up here and feed you, <laughs> you know, and yeah. you just keep doing your thing, right? And and these days, you know, hook and crook, modern development and, and choice, there are many more people trying to do the householder's path as well as 
you know, live the fullest human experience possible. And so that yeah. seems like it's got, you don't get to do the old monastic thing of saying this world's too messy to solve and touch God. So we're going to retreat and withdraw from the world. And we're going to take vows of poverty, chastity, and humility because money, pride, and sex are the big, you know, <laughs> the big clusterfucks, mm. you know, so we're going to just preemptively take those off the table so we can go seek source. You know, for most of us these days, we're like, well, we're, we're, we're doing it all. It's also reinforcing duality at that point, you know, mm -hmm. like, and source, if source is, if God is non-duality, then the moment we put something outside of God, we've missed the mark. And to miss the mark is a sin, right? Like that's the ultimate etymology of that word. It's to miss, we've missed it. You know, and the moment we say, oh yeah, but sex, you know, not God. Oh, but money. Oh, not God. Oh, but that. And I guess I'm doing the same thing. I'm sinning by saying, ah, but AI, not not that. And, and aesthetically, I'm on your I'm on your side. Like <laughs> AI kind of wigs me out. <laughs> you know, I, I don't I don't get any juice out of contemplating it. And I, and I often find that the, it's almost always guys are talking about it. They're almost always a little Aspergery and a little disconnected from <laughs> you know life and embodiment and those kind of things. And yet. You know, if you run it out and you have to, and you kind of stay true to the outcomes, you're like, I reckon that silicon-based consciousness must also have a place. I talked to somebody. Um, I talked to somebody who's actually working with some of the top engineers working on AI mm -hmm. and bringing them into five meo DMT uh, ceremonies mm -hmm. to say, whatever you program must have this mm -hmm. awareness too, mm -hmm. and that's like his mission. You know, and he's he's deeply connected. He's kind of one of those bridges, those Chakaruna bridge people between uh -huh. the spiritual world and that world um, because of the different realms that he's traveled in. And I talked to him about that and I was like, that's really pretty interesting because if they're aware of that and somehow they can influence how the structure is designed so that they put that as an endpoint mm -hmm. of that that sense of love for all all beings you know love for all things love it, love is ultimately right like if they can program that in that could be something incredibly incredibly potent and then let's bring this back to the beginning <clears throat> you know we talk about all of these kind of ways that people in their rapturous ideologies think of the what's going to be the saving what's going to be the saving moment i suppose we have to then open to the possibility that while we can't wait for it to happen and it's not the only thing that we need to worry about and just say ah fuck it ai is going to become god and we're going to figure it out it actually has become in this course of this conversation more possible that that might that actually might play a part in this game maybe that would be mind-bending i mean yeah i don't even know <laughs> I, can't, I can't even wrap my head around what that would look like i mean it, my default is hopeless romantic <laughs> you know so like yeah. if, if i'm like torn between two potential <laughs> outcomes I and mean, it's almost always back to like home and hearth and humanity and the way we've always done things and really rooting deeply in that because that's who we are and it's where we've come from and and it's not to say you know it's putting a stop to progress but anytime i mean to your point about some of the guys working on ai right and and the attempt to try and connect with them help impart some really broadly pro-social deep <laughs> deep commitments into yeah. that effort um some of those folks and i think this was even at uh 
you know, a well-known search giant who has a Skunk Works project that is also well-known. Um, some of those guys were dabbling in the same spaces, going to Burning Man, coming back to Lit Up. And then also after those radically peak experiences and, you know, super crazy mentat, wicked smart guys, were ending up in nihilism. Like they'd been now been brought to the scream, the edge of the screaming abyss. And then they came back into their work actually destabilized after those experiences. So what, yes, one love, one light, unity, consciousness, incredibly com complicated, you know, light and information. And then fuck, you know, like what does any of this matter? And in fact, back to your notion of rapture ideologies, if a number of the folks that are most capable of saving the world right now are also coming unglued as they hold the burden and the, and the responsibility of it. And they're starting to decohere. Mm. So that's all, you know, so the people who are most you know, able to design the vaccine or the CRISPR gene editing or the AI super hack or the thing, if they, if they, and this is, this is actually, you know, this is happening right now where a bunch of them are doing the Thanos move. They're basically running the, running the calculations and saying, okay, we are approaching metasystemic crisis. There is, you know, at least in their calculations, you know, potentially a hundred percent likelihood that something very, very, very bad happens. Therefore, taking out 20%, 30%, 50%, 90% of humanity is actually the ethical choice, right? In order to save humanity. So they decouple from the here and now, right? And they're making rational, this goes kind of, kind of like to the AI them, that they're coding, right? Which is what could be at a higher level of complexity and data analysis and ethical decision actually becomes psychopathic at the level of the here and now and the actual well, it's, humans I mean, it's, involved. It's, every, it's pretty much every Bond villain. Yeah. Thanos also. It's like every villain, there's always the justification that, oh, there's too many people, so we got to wipe out. Mm -hmm. It's like the it becoming the active agent of the rapture yeah. themselves, yeah. which is the god complex in mass. The, like the, I the am Da Vinci the one, Code sequel, I think it was Angels yeah, and Demons. I am the one who row. can decide and, mm -hmm. and who should decide. And obviously that's a, a massively dangerous path. And I think if you know, if you were to imagine that these people had immense power and had run these calculations, then they would truly believe that the ethical thing to do would be to push something out unawares that made people sterile or did mm -hmm. something. And I don't ascribe to those that like this is actually happening. I want to make it really clear. I'm not in that conspiracy camp. But if there were by some reason, it may not be that these are evil people. They may be actually thinking they're doing the right thing based upon the calculations that they have. The problem being that one that's not a choice that anybody can make you know mm -hmm. we have to keep going it's the, it's the kobayashi maru <laughs> like you have to change the rules at that point mm -hmm. you have to you have to understand like okay here's all the calculations what is the thing that cannot be calculated for and that's i think a big place that your book gets to it's a big place that charles eisenstein's a more beautiful world our hearts know as possible gets uh -huh. to there's something that's beyond our ability to calculate because we haven't gone into that deep understanding of it and mapped it perhaps because it's unmappable and so we can't calculate it it doesn't break down into our figures and we're missing that mm -hmm. and it's love and it's and it's yeah. just this thing that like and potentially free will or choice right you know like like the ability that it's that it to your your use of that term sin right it becomes a sin to deny anyone else the agency of choice right for themselves therefore even if thanos was right he he has sinned because yeah. he's denied the choice 
for everyone else. Yeah, which is the ultimate. Which is the ultimate thing. That's what we must protect is people's ability to choose. Well, anytime, like if I run a bunch of mental calculations and then you kind of pop out at the end into something like love or free will, and you and you realize those are echoed through the you know through the ages, you're kind of like, okay, this is probably a place to like settle into and really kind yeah. of grok. You're like, oh, that might be a profound truth. I mean, one of the more yeah, I mean, I mean, dimethyltryptamine right is a, is a, is a is an infamously um, discombobulating experience because you know you typically um, find yourself lobbed into a galactic carnival that has nothing. It's not anthropocentric. It's not geocentric. You know, you know it's not about this earth. It's not about people. You know, you're like, holy smokes, this is a much bigger, wilder ass, you know, multiverse out there. Um, and I remember watching my kids' youth soccer game on a Saturday morning after after a night prior and just being like how the hell am i going to do this now you know like like my sense that this is base reality has just been thoroughly thoroughly shattered into a million pieces so post post dmt experience yeah. then going to ontological skull fuck you're, and, you're, and trying to care about what the referee calls yes, a red a yes. yellow card and, and, I, and i'm standing there <laughs> and i'm standing there having this you know rather i mean mellow i'm just standing there but internally like <laughs> what the fuck how am i going to keep up this charade for the rest of my life and kind of ran all the traps and it was like oh actually like we are the existential mayflies of the universe right we're only here for this brief moment angels vampires gods any any immortals look on us and envy us for our ability to care so much mm. about this little earthbound existence of ours and it's these opposable thumbs and 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 clever brains and the ability to fight and fuck and grieve and lose and care and pick it all up and do it again that 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 like our ability to love is something that is potentially exquisitely and uniquely ours and and that was like back into my body back into my life back into being fully here for my family and 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 that was again like felt it's shakespearean you know it's it's the greek myths it's every tradition and and you realize you you feel those ripples through kind of our collective mythopoetic mind space like all the myths yeah. all the stories all the songs all the legends you're like oh okay you know that gives me a route home it gives me a way to come home every time back into this 3d without some sense of ambivalence or nihilism or getting consumed by the screaming abyss or trying to or presuming to grab the ring right and stay stay yeah. up there and that's the story that I think is important to tell. And you actually give a, um, you tell a myth or a story about the enlightened one who, mm. when you go to look for them, his windows are shuttered, his door is gone. All of the sages and mm -hmm. all of the wise men and all the wise women, they can't find him. Why? Because he's down in the marketplace. He's helping people, you know, just it's the, the myth of the Bodhisattva, which hasn't been, I don't think, put out whereas enlightenment was just halfway through the journey mm -hmm. then the rest is that person who's reached the other end of it might actually be the ref in the soccer game yeah. making sure that the kids can continue to play fairly and enjoy this existence of a world where there's cleats and grass and yeah. dirt and inflatable balls and goals and the laughs and the joy and the tears of of this little tiny 
finite game that's a piece of the infinite game. Yeah, it's like that Key and Peele skit, The Magic Janitor. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's, there's always that dude, he's off on African American, he's just sweeping in the corner, just whistling his tune, you know? Yeah. And he's just wise as fuck, you yeah. know? And it's like, I've chosen this. And, and Osho said it once, he said, he said, to become ordinary is the rarest thing of all. The truly ordinary man is utterly extraordinary. Mm. And you're like, yeah, that's, that's a good one. And, that, and in that, it's not, it's it's dying to all of those ideas that oh i shouldn't be a janitor i should be this i should be a mom i should be an instagram influencer i should be a you know life coach i should be whatever else you know being <laughs> but just being there and being with yeah. being with living itself and contributing in some way in some corner of this wide world and yeah. spreading that love Herman Hesse had this. There's a book, and most folks are familiar with Steppenwolf and Siddhartha as his kind of like, you know, most well known books. But there's a book he wrote called The Journey to the East. And it's a mountaineering expedition in the Himalayas. And the whole time, like the little porter is actually the Bodhisattva and then leaves the expedition and the whole thing falls apart. But mm -hmm. that idea, and to, to your point about the down in the marketplace, that's the Zen ox herding parable. And there's, there's 10 panels to it. And to, to your point about it, it's like the, you know, the f enlightenment as most folks would conceive of it happens on the fourth panel <laughs> and you're like wait a second there's six more what happens next you know and then it's all these super duper zen distinctions you know of like you're not even seeking it anymore and you're not even a person anymore you're just the mountain or you're just the ox or whatever and then and then finally it's the tenth one like you said where it's full circle return you know and 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 we have that story you know i mean that's that's why it's a wonderful life you know, and a Christmas carol are so powerful around the holidays. It's it's the death rebirth experience of the of those two people and their return back. It's it's Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. I mean, mm. we, we know that story. It's it, you know Campbell mapped the sure. home away home, and the idea of like, well, well, shit, man. If I could have just woken up one morning and realized that my ranch in Kansas was awesome, I would have. Yeah, but I couldn't because back to your point of the myth of separation, right? I right. have to, I have to do that that leaving and dying to be born twice and and choose this because i feel yeah. like none of us chose this right we all just got spat out of our mama's bodies into this bright harsh cold environment and none of us chose to be born the first time but but having the well, chance assuming the us that we're talking about yeah. is this rational us yeah. and that yeah. there's not a capital u us that is actually chose everything yeah, which I mean, is also possible. Yeah, absent some sense of soul family journey, right, right, it, uh, conception stuff. But let's just say the us that we have, you know, decent access to. None of us picked this, mm -hmm. and the chance to to die metaphorically or and or neurophysiologically, and we can talk about that too. Which is the chance to then choose the rest of our life is radical. And like Goethe, the the, the philosopher said, he said he who does not know the secret die and become will remain forever a stranger on this earth mm. you're just like fuck yeah mm. unpack that a little bit a stranger on this earth yeah so i mean i think basically if if we are let's let's just we'll just this is a thought experiment but like let's say we're we, we're born into this world not with full volition like it just happens to us sure. parents got busy and conceived um, I'm going to spend that life seeking pleasure and avoiding pain, pinballing around this experience. Biological imperative. Yep. Um, versus, oh, 
Um, you know, this is true from the Lucinian mysteries. This our, our buddy Brian Mararescu who did that, who did the immortality key, right? I mean, he did a, a deep study on the Greeks and into this sort of early Christian tradition. It's it's there. All of those were mystery death initiatory cults. You see it in indig indigenous traditions with sure. shamanic dismemberment. You name it, right? It's kind of ubiquitous around the world. And I think Goethe's point is, if you haven't had that experience, you aren't fully here. You're just stumbling around seeking and avoiding sensations and so um you're you're staying alive instead of coming alive yeah in some ways yeah, which is sure. my which is my note two of 41 so <laughs> so, but i think we've covered a couple of the ones in the middle here yeah, so yeah, yeah you know i mean all right so if we continue to go back you know we gotta go let's go right to note three here which okay. is something we kind of glossed over roughly is the crisis of meaning mm -hmm. meaning 1.0 mm -hmm. meaning 2.0 all yeah. of these have been kind of dashed on the rocks and were left and you also had another devastating stat from the who more people today kill themselves than die from all wars and natural disasters combined and this is just one little window a powerful window into the problem we're facing as our meaning structures and and i'd like you to describe meaning mm -hmm. 1.0 and meaning 2.0 have really failed us in a, in a large in a large scale way and it doesn't mean it's failed for everybody some people are still in meaning 1.0 happily thriving some people mm -hmm. are in meaning 2.0 presumably happily thriving but nonetheless like for the most part in mass in the aggregate these structures have fallen and we're seeing this in you know deaths of despair and also this rampant desire to reach for pharmaceutical interventions and ameliorants and intoxicants of all sorts to try and ease the existential pain that we're really feeling so let's go back to meaning 1.0 meaning mm -hmm. 2.0 and yeah. how they failed us yeah i mean so i think the simplest is that for almost all of human history we found meaning guidance purpose ethics ways to live uh, and ways to relate to each other and even identity um via organized religion and in most instances um, meaning 1.0 organized religions offered salvation um, to the elect so if you believed in our in our religion in our in our faith you were saved if you didn't you weren't you were a, you know an apostate a heretic a pagan whatever it would be right so it was salvation but exclusion right mm. there were the, there was the in group and there was the out group the first time, I think five years ago, maybe Pew, Pew Research Foundation found that the nuns, meaning none of the above, I don't affiliate with an institution of religion, was now the fastest and largest growing population in North America. So the first time ever. And just to be, just to be clear, he said none, but it's not who you think of when you think of a nun. Like it's not, it's not little black habits, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it means they none, they don't believe in anything. Yeah, the N-O-N-E's, the yeah. spiritual but not religious is the atheist, the agnostics, that whole big ass bucket. And so for the first time ever, right? I mean, that's, that's really, as far as human civilization, the first time ever you have that many people not part of, meaning 1.0. And then, you know, a few hundred years ago, you can kind of peg it where you want, but roughly the French Enlightenment, so kind of 18th century, you have the articulation of all men are created equal and entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, um, regardless of race, color, or creed, right? So an inc a potentially inclusive movement to say here is meaning and meaning is about you as a rational individual as a citizen all of these kind of things all the way to 20th century anybody can grow up to be president or an astronaut right so right. ultimate agency and choice based on inclusion but also at the expense of salvation 
because it basically said, hey, God is dead. That's Nietzsche's commentary on the whole thing mm -hmm. and, and separation of church and state. So we're gonna create you know, social, socio-political systems that support you as a rational individual with, with inalienable rights, but no one is gonna tell you what it means. And this was a really important counterpoint to all the religious wars of Europe and why the enlightenment happened in the first place. Yeah, which I, right? which is, you know, in that meaning 1.0, it's it, how it was played out is I am so right about this and I am so saved and I'm so righteous and I am so the chosen one that not only am I gonna live ever after in Candyland, but I, I can wipe you off the face of the earth too if I want, because that's also in my prerogative because I'm so much better than you. Yeah, I can deny your humanity or I can, I can pull in the boundary of my sphere of ethical concern, mm -hmm. right? So you are subhuman or non-human you know, non in, the, in, the, in the way I would assign rights. So the question is, meaning 1.0 was salvation at the expense of inclusion, meaning 2.0, like modern liberalism, was inclusion at the expense of salvation, which is, you know, and both of those have collapsed and we've got this vacuum in the middle of a meaning crisis at the same time that we're seeing exponential change all around us, so we're desperate for exponential meaning. We need some way to make sense of the incredible accelerating complexities that we're experiencing. And so that's where you know, we're seeing the diseases of despair and we're seeing the, the, that, that you know, sobering statistic about global suicides as a canary in the coal mine mm. of like, how do we build meaning 3.0? How, how do we fill that vacuum with potentially inclusive salvation right that's never been done before well what do you say about the people who from the eastern religious traditions which i know you studied extensively as well who would say oh well you know Taoism, mm -hmm. you know if in the purest lao tzu sense of mm -hmm. you know the way what about what about that it seems like it actually had a had a a different different subscription to meaning there was no self and other there was no in-group out-group buddhism you could argue something similar i think obviously some hindu or sufi beliefs you could argue so there is some argument that there is existing long-standing outside of meaning one or two mm -hmm. you know uh constructs that have been pervasive meaning just as far as um potential well, like they haven't failed us ultimately right because i think there's there's inherent flaws in and both, the, and we haven't talked about how 2.0 has failed because the ideas sound pretty good, but the but the actual manifestation of that hasn't actually worked out very well at all. Um, yeah. And, well, I mean, I mean, we can we can go into that, right? Because, um, and this is true with the con the current social justice movement, and and it's really a big question, which is, um, did modern liberalism, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone, regardless of race, color, or creed, did that happen or not? Is that a viable project or intention? And, and I think there's a number of folks these days that are totally understandably frustrated with the kind of raw deal that appears to have shown up sure. for a majority of folks. And then there's the temptation to wanna to just tear the whole system down, right? And that's stop teaching Western civilization, stop teaching this. This is all so corrupted and hypocritical that there is nothing there that's, that's worth preserving or honoring mutually and that's how you kind of end up with the sort of the you know that's why conservative media outlets like Breitbart and fox are you know talking about the the school cancelings and the school renamings and like oh you're going to take down thomas jefferson and george washington and abraham lincoln and that's crazy and this is our values and this is our people and then there's other folks mostly in coastal cities they're saying no we have to it's really important for us to 
change this legacy of conquest. And I think there's an important distinction. Really, I think it's like almost the critical distinction for us in our social conversation right now, which is there's, there's the accident of history of the French Enlightenment, American, the American Republic, the French Republic, all those things, and the democratic free market system that arose with it. So like at the core of that experiment was, is something beautiful, which is to say, we are going to attempt to architect a society that moves beyond tribal interest, like finite games, win, lose, mm -hmm. us, them. And we're gonna actually try and seed the code for playing an infinite game of, of the goal isn't to win or lose. The goal is to keep playing the game and to include as many people in that game as possible for as long as possible. And, and this actually, this, this hit me. Um, I was giving a talk at Sandhurst, which is uh, England's equivalent of West Point. Right, mm -hmm. so it was with all these SAS officers and all this kind of stuff. It was, it was a, a fascinating experience, and we were given a tour of the grounds. It's where Prince Harry and and um, William went. Ian Fleming went there. It's got rich, rich, rich history. And they took us to the chapel, and there's this beautiful chapel with you know stained glass windows and all the usual things. And then each of the stone columns had inscribed into it every officer that had gone to Sandhurst and then had been killed in action, and. Unlike like the Vietnam Memorial, which is just names in black granite, you know, it's very, very sparse. This one even had, had a little sentence of how they died. You know, like, it's like, you know, left his trench in Verdun to rescue a fallen comrade, you know, was killed in Kabul in the 1890s, you know, in the first Afghani war mm. or Croatia or Crimea or, or, or the Boer War, all these things. And you, I was reading it, it was like 150 years of these incredibly heroic, noble, lives and deaths and service. And at the mm -hmm. same time, you're like, fuck me, man, this is just a legacy of conquest. This is just, this is just colonialism, global bloody colonialism around right. the world. And I was sitting there and I just felt literally torn. I mean, my father was Royal Naval pilot, like that's in my you know, yeah. family. And I was just like, okay, how do we reconcile this? How do you reconcile the total fucked up in this of something like Rudyard Kipling's White Man's Burden? You know, like it's our job to go out and civilize the benighted savages of the world and bring, you know, and, and bring light to them versus um, the actually sincere, really noble experiment of, of the trying the infinite game. And mm. can we, and, and what we're seeing on, you know, you've got alt-right ethno-nationalists these days, and you've got multicultural social justice activists these days, and both are saying, burn it down. You know, and, and my sincere concern is that in the midst of this creaky architecture that is fully corrupted and polluted and human and fallible and all sorts of fuck ups in there is this seed of this incredibly delicate, fragile thing because all of our neurochemistry and all of our wiring is hardwired for tribalism. And, and that's the finite game. And, to, and that's what ultimately what we've never been able to overcome. Never been able to and overcome that's it. In, in meaning 1.0, we were never able to overcome it. This yeah. is our tribe, my religion, my people. I'm I'm the Christians, or I'm the mm -hmm. you know followers of Muhammad. I'm whoever. I'm, I'm whatever this is. And and that was it's again it's tribalism. It's this ethnocentric tribalism mm -hmm. based on religion in that in that structure. And then in the other one, it's it's just based on a variety of other different things. It could be. Mm -hmm class you know mm -hmm. it could be race it could be location it could be country it could be whatever but it's mm -hmm. still re it's been played out in this myth of separation and the antagonism of other you know and that's where it's all it's all it's all failed you know all of these things have really failed at the same point which is our biology telling us 
to other other people. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, oxytocin gets a lot of you know love <laughs> in sure. popular discussions. Is just talk about the love hormone, the cuddle drug, whatever you know, the trust hormone, all these things. But it's actually um, it bonds mother to child and lover to lover. But it also or bonds human to dog. tribe to tribe, yeah, <laughs> or human to dog, right? But but also within my tribe, so that when folks are juiced on oxytocin, they actually become less tolerant of others. They become more willing to troll or antagonize others. So if you think of it like soccer hooligans at a at a soccer match, sure. right? That idea of we're all faces painted and we're rallying for our team, and they're holding each other by the neck yeah. and swigging beers and juiced building that the, oxytocin, juiced to the gills on oxytocin, and so it's yeah. it's also the curb stomp your neighbor hormone. And so the notion is just to realize that that after you know after oxytocin, after tribalism, like like we regress under stress. So as we're experiencing a world that's increasingly um, wobbly, chaotic and unpredictable, our natural tendency is to regress to tribal groups. So after tribalism, like everything like humanism is optional. And so when we enter like this conversation in the public sphere, we kind of almost assume it's like may the best meme win. You know, like let's have a debate and see. But it's actually asymmetrical warfare because any tribalist from any direction is all they have to do is just break this tendered idea that all people everywhere deserve equal respect. And so it's like, you know, these guys are trying to smash a few eggs and the humanists, mm -hmm. right, are trying to put Humpty together again. And it's and it's asymmetrical meme warfare, right? As yeah. far as what's at stake. And and the baffling thing is, is that you end up with you know far right, far left, feeling like they're sworn enemies of each other, right? And a whole bunch of people, moderate people in the middle are like, whoa, both those sides seem crazy, but the other side seems even crazier. So I guess I'm gonna have to scooch over here because the no man's land is death, right? Because right. then you get lobbed, grenades lobbed at you from both sides. Yeah, it's just nothing but barbed wire <laughs> and shells, right? And, and, but the reality is, and there was a study in, um, I think it was the University of North Queensland just this mm -hmm. last year that, that assessed authoritarianism and dark triad personality types. So like, and go over the dark triad. Yeah, yeah. So so narcissism, Machiavellianism, like I'll do whatever it takes to, to win, and sociopathy. So generally not nice people. And studied alt-right, identitarians, far-left folks, and then sort of central progressives. And they found that the folks with the central progressives, like I have my values, I have my belief system, but I also believe that everyone else has a right to theirs didn't score on any of those four qualities, but both sides of the, of the left and the right did. And they scored off the charts. And so you're like, oh, okay. So we are now seeing social movements around what do we do now, right? Who are we and what do we do now? Both getting co-opted and hijacked by narcissist Machiavellians and sociopaths who can take even the nicest or most idealistic values like a, a pluralistic multicultural society or a strong sense of patriotism and national vibrancy, whatever it would be, and hijack them. And, you know, and, and the, the poster child for that is, is um, Robespierre, right, in the French Revolution. The French Revolution started out liberty, equality, and brotherhood. Pretty nice, mm. <laughs> you know, right? Mm. It was pretty awesome. And then you had, you had a total sociopath in, in, in Robespierre hijack it and turn it into the reign of terror. Yeah. And just by outflanking and outflanking all the centrists and moderates. So it's not to say that we want beige, you know, we don't want the generic average of in-betweens, but it is to say that that extremes are actually on the same team. They're both weirdly both playing the finite tribal game 
against the possibility of us coming together to play the infinite game. And another one of their advantages is their passion, mm -hmm. right? At that <laughs> level for, they're so passionate and it's, passion matters. You know, when someone's really passionate about something, like you kind of give them way. Dude, you know, like yeah. it doesn't matter what somebody's really passionate about, but they can inspire, they can inspire action. And, and people are like, wow, fuck, he really, or she really believes in this thing. And and it and it they're loudest, they're the mm -hmm. most engaged they yeah. you know there's this this force behind it so even in the minority position they may seem like they're in the majority position because of their fervency and because of their like the strength by which they put out their ideas that was actually one of the the original inspirations for this book i think it was was it the idaho house of reps guy maybe his name was steve king i think it was and it was like a few years ago and he was on tv red in the face, holding forth on women's reproductive rights, right? And I'm like this clueless dude from a, you know, tiny little state, passionate, right? About an, an experience that is true for half of the world's population and critical for our survival as a species. And he's like a 60 year old white dude. Like, what does he have to do with this? And- What it, was he arguing? Well, he was just arguing for, you know, super restrictive abortion rights, mm, yeah. right? And it was just this sense of like that Yeats poem, The Second Coming, which most folks are familiar with, but it, you know, there's a line in there. He says, the best lack all conviction while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. And that was the inspiration for saying, we got to recapture the rapture. Like we actually have to recapture our passionate intensity, right? The lowercase rapture, our bliss, our connection, right? So that we can recapture the conversation about the capital R rapture, right? Yeah. The, the end of time. It's, it feels like one of the things that is giving rise to this passion is the more you're identified in that ego-centric kind of mindset, the more you're passionate you are about these, these finite games, about winning, mm -hmm. about being right, about being better than, you know? And if you're somewhere stretched out into a more universal integral consciousness, closer to you know what we'll ultimately talk about, that omega point consciousness, that, that recognition, your identity is is split it's kind of spread out so you're less likely to be fired up about anything to that degree mm -hmm. you know because you're you have a little bit of you that recognizes that we're all you know different facets of the same infinite diamond and a little part of you that's still attached to your tribalism but not enough to really get that fired up about it mm -hmm. so you're just kind of neutral but when you really pushed your perspective and your identification all the way over to one side then every issue matters life and death because that's the death of the ego the the changing of your identity all of that is is your life and death you don't see life in any other way mm -hmm. so it, it, it feels like part of what's happening is is as people are expanding their consciousness they're becoming uh, effectively less fervent about mm -hmm. things because their identity is spread they kind of believe this but mm -hmm. they kind of believe something else and it seems like to get that fervent about, you know, uh, unicity consciousness, integral consciousness, the omega point, we would really have to get some people kind of over the line a little bit where they were as identified with that consciousness as the tribalists are identified with their consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, um, that is one of the great paradoxes of like the contemplative spaces and who was it? I'm forgetting now who did this critique. Um, but there's there's several of them, which is saying, you know, arguably, the best thing that happened for Nixon 
you know, was was LSD. Because you suddenly had, you know, up until 1968, you had anti-war and civil rights activists demonstrating, trying to change the system, right? You then have all the riots and, you know, mild revolutions through Europe, Paris, you know, Prague, Chicago. 1968 was like the summer where everything mm -hmm. was going to change. They were going to break the system. And then none of them worked. Right. Mm -hmm. And basically, you know, and this is arbitrary time stamping, but like around then, you know, 67 summer of love, 68 kind of political, you know, flame out and collapse. And then everybody just turned inwards. And then it was the back to the land movement. And then it was personal growth and the emergence of the new age and all these kind of things. And the question is, is A, does somebody who is dwelling or seeking or dwelling in unit of consciousness have enough activation energy? to also march in the streets, right? Um, and then the subsequent critique is, it was the perfect way to co-opt some of the most privileged folks who could have done something for the system and actually matched it perfectly with rational individualism and neoliberal spirituality, which is like, let's import Western Buddhism and sprinkle it with some psychedelics and some new age magical thinking. And Bob's your fucking uncle, man. These, have, <laughs> these folks have crawled up their own assholes and haven't done a goddamn thing for, the, uh -huh. for their brothers and sisters, right? For the last 30, 40 years. So the question is, is how does, you know, and that's why I think everything has to do with these, with balance, which is the, the idea of periodized, sacramental, ritual death practice, you know, starting with what do you do once a week to reset your nervous system? What do you do once a month, once a, once a season, once a year, once a lifetime? And then returning back to the marketplace with helping hands. And, and how you actually, we have to actually build the full stack because yeah. what we're not good at, like people are decent at seeking heroic dose blowouts these days, right? People will lob themselves into terrain and spaces that they have little preparation for or really business being in quite often. Oftentimes right? with pretty dramatic consequences. I've seen that yeah. many times. I'm sure you have as well. Yeah, and, and folks are dabbling these days in micro experiences. Like what does it mean to microdose psilocybin or LSD? But the mezzo, the middle ones are just absent, right? <laughs> Which is how do we actually learn to you know, again, reset our nervous systems, reconnect with our inspiration and our purpose, and then go back to the world and continue to do that such that we, we start practicing living from that place versus just sealing the floor. See, it's, it's like, you know, like in little, when you were little kids and, you know, and having birthday balloons and just letting one go and, you yeah, know, yeah, and yeah. then it just collapses in a, an empty heap. That's kind of what we're doing, I think, to our psyches and our and our physiology well and this where it gets to you know part three of your book ethical cult slash culture building which mm -hmm. is coming up with these ways in which we can put some structure to this mm -hmm. that actually makes some sense and it's something that i'm you know in my fit for service community for example like i never recommend psychedelic it's been a huge part of my path but i mm -hmm. never never recommend that what i will recommend though is you know, breathwork practice done the right way, what mm -hmm. ecstatic dance practice done the right mm -hmm. way, sound healing practice, mm -hmm. exposure to cold, exposure to heat. You know, these things are like, really, you can go all the way with these mm -hmm. things. And they're they're reliably going to take you to depth. You know, like, you really have to fucking go for it to ecstatic dance yourself into a blowout, you know? You could blow out an ankle or something if you really went wild. But that practice of dancing yourself into trance, it's it's more it's it's going to more reliably yield a positive and not negative mm. experience you know yeah. and so i think it's so important to build that base of like okay i'm used to getting into these non-ordinary states 
before I actually go for, you know, the 100 micrograms of 5-MeO or 130 or whatever that is, or the seven grams of psilocybin or the three cups of ayahuasca, like let's let's build the base first. And I think you talk about the, the Oz culture of New Guinea who has mm-hmm. a 12 levels of initiation. <laughs> yeah, You know, there's so many ways that we can do that. And, and, I, and we're gonna get there. So this is a little preview of where we're going. I'm still around note five <laughs> on here. So we're gonna we're, we're going long here. Fucking pack a lunch, everybody. Get some tobacco if that's oh. your thing. Whatever you got, some coffee. Let's fucking go. Or you know, just pick us up later. Um, all right. So one of the things that one of the things that I definitely want to uh want to cover as well is um the conditions of where we're at is the trusted sources have all fallen. Mm. We do not trust our leaders. We do not trust our news. We don't trust the internet in general. We don't, mm-hmm. we don't trust. So what we have is a bunch of different conflicting information coming. And I think you make the beautiful point that this is forcing us to think for ourselves. And this is actually in some ways a good thing because it, it, it not right, maybe right now because it's kind of chaos, but if we learn that, aha, the new landscape, the new terrain is... We got to think for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and you know, and and that's a burden, and it's under you know under deadline, and and I, and I think that you know just just to kind of lace back to an earlier point we're making, which is on the one hand, our, our awareness of what does it mean to be a conscious organism on this planet has come, you know, amazing leaps and bounds. Our awareness of where we've come from, where we're going, all these things, and at the same time. You know, you talked about the ocean with, with that documentary, right? And at the same time, we're sort of coming into ourselves, coming into this expanded awareness at a time where we're like, oh, and shit, we might have just totally fucked this up. Mm. And, 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 and we might be out of time. And like that combination is that coming alive, staying alive yep. juxtaposition, which is like the coming alive is like, what's the infinite possibility for myself, for humanity, for consciousness, for culture, whatever it is. And that's infinite and, and, and going up and to the right. And then there's the staying alive, like, oh shit, do we have to triage? Like, do we actually have the time, the space, the luxury, the resources, the stability to even engage that experience? And the same thing with our sense-making, right? So you said we've got the collapse of benign authority, like academia, you know, business, um, science, medicine, all sorts of things where people are like, wait, that's not as trustworthy as I thought. And the collapse of divine authority, like mm-hmm. churches and orthodox you mm-hmm. know, tradition. And we're being spat out into a place of utter information overwhelm, which is why, you know, it's not coincidental that QAnon's number one rallying cry is do your own research, right? <laughs> it is a legit um, expression of don't trust your leaders, follow parking meters, right? Dylan 101, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, and the trouble is though, is that we've also had the erosion of anything resembling rigorous education for the last 50 years. So, you know, at the same time that we're, we're losing our handrails and losing our trusted authority sources that have provided great digests of what matters and what is good opinion, right? We've opened it wide open to a much more complicated set of decisions and choices and fact filtering and a bunch of other things. And most people are just shitting the bed terribly. You know, we're just, we're, we're getting, we're, we're getting latched onto the most compelling, stickiest, most persuasive meta narrative that is just weaponized and pointed straight at us. And, and part of that weaponization is you find something that people resonate as true. 
So mm-hmm. QAnon's a great example. Yeah. What do people resonate as true? Well, we got to do our own research. We mm-hmm. know that's true now. Mm-hmm. We feel that. Yeah. And then at the same time, right, adjacent to that, you know, I've never actually been, so I can't speak, you know, from firsthand, but I've heard people who've been reflecting some of these stories. There's some fantastical Donald Trump is Batman and he's still going to be president next month, you know, no matter what happens. And sure. there's just this fucking nonsense there. So they they take they take something that's true that we know is true. And then they weaponize that against us to implant some ideology that that feeds on some fantasy that we have, typically back to some tribalism or some rapturous ideology of the person who's going to save the day or some fucking nonsense. But people are, you know, that's the world we're in. It's not only neutral disinformation, it's targeted dif- disinformation using manipulative strategies, Machiavellianism, you know, really. Yeah. And, and it's that's the that's the scariest part about this is it's like we're not only playing with a neutral board we're playing with aggressive manipulative mm-hmm. agents yeah absolutely and then throw in like global psyops you know where you have <laughs> right. different state and non-state actors deliberately skewing it even further so i mean i think a number of folks in the last four years have been like what on earth has happened to america like what happened to our go along to get along and help your neighbor? What happened to all those core values? How did we lose our minds? And the answer is, well, we didn't entirely. You know, somebody spiked the water. You know, there have been an awful lot of echo chambers and a lot of like chisels and fault lines, you know, by different, um, yeah, different state and non-state actors who have been weaponizing the divisions with a degree of psychosocial sophistication that I find truly chilling. <laughs> you know, like if you looked at the, uh, I think the Washington Post did some in-depth analysis post-2016 election of just what the Internet Research Agency, I think that was the, Soviet, the the Russian play, and how they had done their ads was ninja. <laughs> like they didn't say like Hillary, boo, Trump, yay. You know, they're like they're like Muslim women in hijabs for Hillary, or 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 you know, gun owners for this or that. They they took kind of peripheral story points in the American psyche, and that's where they it's put like their the, chisels. The science of inception. Yeah, exactly. The intelligence behind if you say the overt thing, you'll get resistance to that because your game will be exposed. If someone sees Oz behind the curtain, they're no longer as interested in the show. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and and the goal of propaganda is not to replace the truth with a lie. It's to confuse the notion of truthfulness to the extent that everyone gives up looking for it, and that's a much, right. And that's a much easier game to play. And so you know that gets us um, to your point about what feels truthy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Col- Colbert one hundred and one, right? Is um, John Gray, who's at the London School of Economics, and he wrote a rad book called Black Mass and the Death of Utopia, and he basically makes the case that he's like, look. Every single rapture ideology that we experience, right? The idea that things are screwed up, there's a fall from grace, you know, there, there's, a, there's an inflection point coming, we're going to be saved on the other side and it's, going to, and it's going to be awesome, is fundamentally goes all the way back to the early Hebrew alpha omega. And that the beginning and the end, like there, there's good cases that culturally that's one of the first collapsings of circular time into a linear, into time's arrow. There was a beginning and then there's an end. And he makes the case that like all through history, all the way up through the 20th century and and today, that's all we keep rebooting. We just skin it with different shit. And even communism, right, was the same idea. Like man is everywhere in chains. That was his fall from grace. There was the, there was the, you know, capitalist class, we're suffering. There's going to be the proletariat revolution. And then we're going to live in a communist utopia. So it's like, even when you take God out of it, he's still in there. 
right? Mm. He's still following that deep structure. And if you look on your social feeds today, it's blockchain and crypto, it's psychedelic renaissance, it's neural implants, it's you know tech singularity, it's optimage. And you start, the moment you see that deep structure, you're like, oh Christ, this is everywhere. And so anybody, to your point about people weaponizing it, anybody who unconsciously or consciously follows that narrative structure, it's going to feel truthy because mm. it's literally 3000 years of repetition in our bones of like, yeah, yeah, that feels about right. That feels like sufficiently mobilizing me with fear about our current situation and anxiety and then sufficiently promising me the happy outcome I've been yearning for and like, I'm all in. And so it doesn't matter whether it's theological or technological, we're all following that deep rapture code in our storytelling. I would counter that it sounds truthy versus feels truthy mm. are two different things, nice. right? Like with these stories, which are pervasive, it, mm -hmm. is a, it is like a deep, it's a deep groove in our neural pathways. It's mm -hmm. been grooved through mm -hmm. our own thoughts and the reinforcement of society and perhaps even epigenetic transfer of these <laughs> things. Like it's so, it's like a super highway. Mm -hmm. And so all different things that fall into that, it's gonna be comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's gonna be like, oh yeah, this, this sounds right. Mm -hmm. Because it's gonna just gonna slip into that super highway of that neural pathway that's been carved and carved and carved. It's like the Grand Canyon neural pathway. They have, we have some big stories like this. And then I would I still feel like there's something else that even when it's radically novel, like these transcendent experiences, like this mm -hmm. experience of Kairos, which feel that feels truthy. It like feel, there's like a feeling, and then there's all the spectrum in between where certain things, even if we've never heard it before, even if it's a radical novel new idea, mm -hmm. and it doesn't fit with these other paradigms, we can feel it. We can. Well, are you saying that that's that's actually truth, like somatic truth? A somatic truth. So yeah. So I I was using truthy, like Colbert did for that White House press correspondence thing, where he's taking the piss out of Bush, and he's like, yeah, it feels. I trust my gut. It feels truthy. So I was using that as a as a disparaging sure. term. What you're talking about is like what you might say is like a Gnostic truth. Like I am initiated in yeah, yeah. the truth. And, and it of just that thing. It's, yeah. there's something even that, and I think that's a it's an important distinction to give people hope that I. Because I do believe that we can trust ourselves mm -hmm. at the deepest fundamental level, but we have to be skeptical as fuck because there's super highways of thought that mm -hmm. things will fall into naturally and it'll flow really easily and it'll make a lot of sense. Tribalism, these kind of uh, apocalyptic you know, meaning stories, the arrow of time, all of these mm -hmm. things. But if we really, really get super quiet and listen, we'll feel how it doesn't feel right it, in, the, in the knowing sense. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I think that's a skill to cultivate is like what you know is true with the G and what you think is true because it sounds right, because it's just probably falling into something else that's been patterned. Yeah. And that's actually my hope. I mean, that was really the driver behind the book, which is yeah. how any any tops down ism, you know, a philosophy, a worldview, a prescription for everyone is almost certain to end up in like fascism and not work out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but no matter how well intentioned and no matter what yeah. the lip service to the values, you know, or ideals is, right? But that sense of, can we open source the protocols for people to have that Gnostic experience, for people to have a death, rebirth, reset, whereby they feel the deep truth that you're describing, yeah, right? And then can practice living from that place. So this gets into kind of like what MAPS is doing with their MDMA research and PTSD sufferers, sure. right? That sense of like, oh, I'm banged up and jacked up, I'm in separation and literally experiencing, you know, 
stress, stress from prior trauma. So the, my wounding is literally inhibiting my capacity to thrive. And then I experience a neurochemical and physiological and then, you know, and psychosomatic. So kind of the whole me experiences safety, love, connection, security, enoughness. Mm. And from that place, I can defrag my nervous system and I can update my memories and therefore my stories. And I can practice living from that place. Now I might only be able to live from that place for the next day, you know, or the next hour, or maybe it's a week, whatever, but I can get better at it like training wheels. And if we can offer everyone that experience as a human birthright, right? To die and become, right? Goethe, right? Then can we trust back to free will, right? Versus tops down prescriptions of even the most noble idealistic type. Can we trust that if people are bathed in that peace that passeth all understanding, right? Of I'm enough and I'm connected to this world and each other. Can we practice living from that place? And since that, that experience typically is super information rich, right? Can we just hold off on telling everybody what it's about and what it means? Like go see for yourself, come back, high fives and hugs you know, and then let's get back to work. And to me, that's this sort of, it's the paradox of like agnostic Gnosticism, you know, is, which mm. is the Gnosticism part is, can you be baptized in the river of life and know it for yourself, right? This is water, mm. right? Yeah, 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 and yeah, and yeah. at the same time, agnostic, fuck if I know, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's beautifully, beautifully put. So we're going to transition into that, into the five, you know, categories that you kind of uh, talk about in your book about the ways to actually mm. get there, the pragmatism mm. of it. But I wanna talk about one final thing before we get there. And there was a, a study that you talked about where people were, they were testing racism and they had people mm. of different races <laughs> go to the doorbells. And so if you could just talk about this study and mm -hmm. then where that, where that went, because there's this another point that I wanna get to. Yeah, yeah, smuggle that one in at the end of chapter three. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it was, it was a study on basically, um, I mean, I suppose race sensitivity with strangers. And so it was sort of door-to-door -door canvassers. That was the, you know, the setup of the experiment. And it was, it was white folks knocking on white folks' doors versus people of color knocking on white folks' doors. And then they, they monitored and measured how long folks stayed at the door, whether they invited them in or not, you know, how quickly they closed the door, number of words, quality of language, you know, was it positive, neutral, negative, that kind of thing. And, and did the people, the people who were being studied, did they, they must not have known that they no, were being they, studied. No, they, they were taking it at face value of like these folks were canvassing for a specific political right. or environmental cause or and whatever And they probably gave some misdirection about what they were actually yeah. studying and that's why they were documenting it or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, sadly, but not that surprisingly, when there was a, you know, an ethnicity or, or race mismatch, um, the interactions were shorter and less warm or friendly. Right. Um, so, be, and then they changed the setup slightly and they had um, somehow, and I don't remember exactly the, the way they told the homeowners, but they basically informed the homeowners that there had recently been a discovery of extraterrestrial life. So nothing particularly crazy. It wasn't like Independence Day or Close Encounters. There wasn't a big ass plot to it, but just like, hey, did you know, right, by the way. And, and then after that, when people of color came to those folks' doors, they were markedly warmer 
and more outgoing and more receptive. So you're kind of like, oh, so it's basically if, if, if it's us versus little green men, then the color of our skin is not so relevant, right? <laughs> if it's me right. as a white person against a brown person, then, that, then that's the separation. So it really, you know, the, the, the bigger point to take is how can we help facilitate an identity of our shared humanity? Right and and effect, and versus uh, my micro separations. Yeah, between and, us. And it's, what's interesting about it is it's it's again it's just shifting perspective. Mm-hmm. It's still using the dirty trick of othering something else, but you're yeah. othering something else so big that the othering we're doing to each other ultimately becomes inconsequential. And this is the this is the Independence Day mm-hmm. fantasy. This is mm-hmm. this idea: all people come together in the face of existential threat x or new species attack b you know like in this idea and i suppose i suppose that is again if we're going to the pragmatic hope category and lobbing something into the bucket i suppose that is one all one option for in a very practical sense some bad shit could happen or potentially uh, actually an alien species could come and we could actually pull together it's not what we should count on. It's not what we should hope for, but it is a, an interesting aspect, an, a proven aspect of human psychology and also illustrated in all of our stories that we will come together if, our, if we can expand our tribal sense to all of us based yeah. upon a threat that threatens all of us equally, like yeah. Independence Day or like some global cataclysm. Unfortunately, the environmental problems haven't gotten to such a level that they're with their boot on our throat enough that we're willing to stand and fight and say we're all in this together and if the oceans die we all die so it doesn't matter if you're in somalia or it doesn't matter if you're in greenland or if it doesn't matter if you're in wherever we're all the same because we have to do this or we're going to die but i suppose you could say well fuck maybe the ways that we are our biology our attachment to tribalism we kind of got to get to that point before people do it not that we want to get to that point but maybe that is one of the things that will compel us to mm-hmm. step into action with the fervor of those people who are on the fringe right now. Yeah, I mean, and you know, you described it in, in, in potentially cynical terms in the sense we still have to find someone to other, right? In order to right. bond together, but it's also part of a healthy stage development. So like if, if to, in, for me to become egocentric as a terrible two-year-old, I have to realize there's me and then there's not me right? There's me and mom, there's me and everybody else. And I can actually have power over them, right? I, I can scream, I can cry, I can coo and things happen. So I have to realize there's not me to fully identify as an individual. And then we as a tribe, at ethnocentric level, we have to realize there's not us, there's the other across the river in order to fully identify as our tribe. So if we're going to take the next step to global centric consciousness of we're all in this together as humanity, we have to go beyond the globe. We have to go into something universal right. or cosmocentric, right? To at least glimpse it. And that's what we see with the flyover effect with astronauts, you, they, 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 you know, hundreds of them. It's, it's in, in the time that we've been launching people into space have talked about looking back on the earth. And this is Afghanis and Malaysians and Americans and Russians and you name it. The experience is remarkably consistent of that as an out of body, out of planet experience of yeah. looking back and feeling unity of consciousness. Now, that doesn't scale. <laughs> we can't get 8 billion folks on Virgin Galactic anytime soon. But to your point earlier, can we have a dissociative out of body experience right of a death rebirth experience however we want to discuss that um, such that when i come back into this body i have had that sense of unitive 
global centric awareness. And I can now start living from that value set and living from that sense of connection versus separation. And that's the important place. That's the important place where you head to is the strategies to practically, all right, how do we do that? You know, because, and also I just want to throw it out there. Like, I think you make a good point that this could be a good developmental level. Maybe if we're not ready to embrace the whole universe of life as Mm -hmm you know all in that unity consciousness that includes the aliens if there are aliens you know maybe fucking help us out show up it'll help us all come together a little bit so i just (laughs) want to just put that out there energetically it might be just helpful developmentally if you just really show up you know like not in the ways that potentially you have or have not or just kind of like be like yeah yeah we're here I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there, aliens, and then uh, we'll go on with our our own free energy, man. We're almost (laughs) out of dinosaurs to light on fire. All right. So uh, we just got we just took a little break, and we are going to go to um, you know five different areas that we can actually try to find you know this uh, this ecstasis, this catharsis, this communitas, these three kind of principles that you're looking for. We're going into respiration, embodiments, uh, sac music, sacraments, sex. A lot of fucking awesome stuff uh but as we came back you know we're kind of exploring this idea of ai potentially you know potentially entering this god consciousness and what that could look like and a thought that occurs to me is how this could play out let's say that happens let's say let's say it gets to that level of where really we have god in a google search then at that point it becomes incontrovertible because it will know it will know the answers to everything so it will have ultimate credibility and so it will be indisputable you know and it will also inherently say this is incalculable to the things that are incalculable it'll it'll give all the right answers pass every test and so then at that point when we start asking questions we have to willfully willfully go against the truth meaning we have to willfully be evil in order to actually carry on our actions because right now we can operate from justification rationalization limited data and do do pretty much whatever the fuck we want you know based upon the way that we can jigger our mind but if we're able if we all have god app on our smartphone you know god google fuck then we got to really be evil and i don't think people are hmm yeah I mean, yeah, then the, the quest, there's a question as to what, I mean, my, my sense is, is that an overwhelming majority of people will be naturally drawn towards life, wholeness, growth, you know, the, those kind of like positive expressions. Um, and I don't, I have no dog in this fight or, or, or understanding of it, but it does feel that that's not the whole story. And there are folks that are either drawn to either operating from fear or drawn to control and oh no i would say most people are but they would have to willfully know that they're drawn to coming from fear or drawn to control right yeah and i mean and that's that tila de chardin the the jesuit priest that we talk about in in the last part of the book about the americans he says that i mean he wrote this in like 1920 maybe he's like hey there's three intersecting curves there's the planetary ability to sustain itself 1920s he's writing that so that's crazy prescient so how long does that last can we actually do this and then two forces and it's basically those drawn to love and those drawn to fear and those three curves intersect at the end of time and and and, and he says and it's a beautiful it's, it's he like writes in you know typically like dense prose but he's like 
simultaneously those things all interact and at the same time the uncertainty of it is what gives it its deepest and most intrinsic meaning which is like we pull it off at the end but it has to be totally up for grabs until then <laughs> you know and you're like oh that's 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 really interesting as far as what what story are we living and and even your just the way you set it up right which i love like emotionally i loved hearing you say what you just said about mm -hmm. like benign AI kind of reflecting back to us our highest and best possibilities. And at the same time, and this is what I find endlessly fascinating, is like subtly, that was another utopian story, right? Because, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't have thought this, this is too above, this is above my pay grade, but Elaine Pagels at Princeton, she's one of the world's top scholars on Christianity, Gnostic, Gnostic um, texts like the Nag Hammadi scrolls and all of that kind of stuff. And she wrote a beautiful book about her her own life and experience as a scholar and as a, as a person and and in one year she lost her six-year-old son to a congenital disease that they'd known about all along so it was this kind of like tragic slow mm -hmm. unravel and then randomly her husband died mountaineering in aspen within the same year and so she was suddenly just knocked flat on her ass and she was looking at her scholarship, right? From the Old Testament to the New Testament. And she's like, wow, what is this with the Judeo-Christian tradition, <laughs> right? We, we, you know, theologians talk about the problem of evil in the Judeo-Christian tradition as if it's outside of reality and right. that and that all good things are divine and, and then bad things has to be Satan or, or some dark sinister force. And she just makes this point that once you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, of course. She's like, look at the Greek gods. They were jealous. They were petty. They were vengeful. They were kind. They were generous. They were brave. They were all the things that the humans who worshiped them were. And if you look throughout, you know, African traditions, West African traditions, Caribbean, indigenous around the world, there's almost always a trickster, right? There's that sense of the fly in the ointment. There's the sense of the brer rabbit or bugs bunny, which is like the trickster is there to help you. The trickster is there to punk you if you're getting too big for your britches. And then sometimes the trickster is just there to fuck shit up because they feel like it because they're a trickster. And so even as we're having this conversation, we subtly slipped into the the, the nice well-worn groove, right? Oh yeah. Of our Western toolkit <laughs> of versus like, oh yeah, maybe we could get God in Google, but then how would that, how would the trickster element sneak back in and queer the deal? Or to, you know, or, or it would certainly try, right? You know, and that would be the that would be the struggle. In a, and there is the the role of the sacred trick, trickster, like the Hayoka in mm -hmm. the Lakota tradition, was the one who didn't have to follow any of the rules because he was there to check people and fuck it up. And stories of people in in uh, you know the Sundance rituals, which is incredibly mm -hmm. intense. It's fasting. It's sweating. It's piercing. It's nonsense. And the Hayoka's responsibility is to go around. And I heard you know recently of an initiate one of the Hayokas, which is a very chosen group of initiates who are there to be the tricksters, as people are thirsty and hungry and sweating and dancing with, you know, getting pulled on their chest from a tree, he'll walk around eating a watermelon and just kind of looking at people. <laughs> you know, like, like, that's the thing of like, how fucking dare you? But that makes me laugh too. You know, yeah. it's just like this reminder of the universe and uh, so there's the sacred role of that, and then there's the Loki role, mm -hmm. you know, manipulation, darkness. We would still have to face all of that, and it's not even to say if we did get God in Google that it would actually work. <laughs> but nonetheless, I guess I like the idea of whatever small percentage chance there is, mm -hmm. there could be an alien intervention, there could be a God in Google intervention. 
in my mind, like we're talking in the single digit, you know, low single digit percentile of all of these things cumulatively happening. So it's insane to kind of like bank on that and just go about business as usual. We gotta we gotta put this in our own hands because that's the ninety eight percent chance of this thing potentially working if it's going to work. Which again, that ninety eight percent is just in the narrow thinnest band because that's the also the story that we want. If we imagine that we collectively as the divine were creating a game, we would create a game the same way that we create games now or movies now, which mm-hmm. is at the very last breath, Frodo crawls with everything he has at the final moment to give the ring back to the, you know, back to the Mordor, you know, mm-hmm. and back to the from whence it came. And in any video game, it's always like right at the very end, you're just able with that last shred of life in your life meter to defeat the final boss if you're incredibly skilled and and well, can do but it. yeah, I mean, and I think actually the the Lord of the Rings is is a perfect example to even slow that down, right? Because the whole, I mean, hey, yeah, Star Wars is not like the Rebel Alliance is actually a big giant multinational corporation <laughs> kicking the living shit out of Darth Vader and the Empire all along, and you know it's you'd a layer. Start rooting for the Darth Vader, yeah, exactly, right. So, so Frodo and Bilbo, right? The whole relationship with Gollum as their alter ego, right? Because I mean, the, the Smeagol was originally a Hobbit-like dude yeah. on the river before the Ring bent him, right? And there, are, and and the whole time there's this weird ambivalence of like, should we kill him or should we have pity? Should we have compassion? Mm. We practice this compassion. We don't know why. We hope he's going to come over to the good side. He kind of wrestles with it himself. And then at the end, right, the, the the trickster element is it's he actually reverts back to Gollum, not Smeagol. He bites off Frodo's finger, right? Yeah. Right. And then in his final move is my precious. So he's fully repre- regressed back to evil. But he's only hasn't been killed yet because of the hobbits attempting to practice compassion. And it is actually Ooh. evil that undoes evil, but couldn't have been controlled if those guys had ever been ruthless or mercenary and just offed him. So he played his part. And that's what I mean about the, like, the idea of, and this is what this bums me out about a number of my existential risk friends, right? Because they run all the calculations and it's just doom and gloom and doom and gloom and doom and gloom. And you like, you try and say, yeah, but what about this? And they just bury you with more statistics and it's totally soul crushing, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it took me a while to wrap my head around this, but in the same way that like um, Dubner and Levitt did Freakonomics and the whole uh-huh. like category of behavioral econ was basically like, hey, all those models of the 20th century economics are like homo economicus making individual rational decisions for their self-interest. That isn't actually who we fucking are. Like we're crazy and we're fickle and we're, we're unpredictable and we do stupid shit for dumb reasons and <laughs> dumb shit for great reasons. Like that's us, right? And that was the whole birth of, of behavioral econ. And I kind of feel like when we're discussing game theory and like what do people do and why, you can end up with like homo Machiavellius, which is we're just all shitheads. We're all just yeah. self-interested shitheads and all the curves go wrong versus what you're describing, which is like, we have to be able to leave space for grace, mm. right? That, that's the X factor in the equation. And, and that is beyond our knowing. But I think, I mean, this at least aesthetically feels, right? Is, is that we are more accident prone, right? For grace to arrive if we're doing our level best, right? To honor courage, goodness, truth, beauty. And there's some element of the sort of man proposes and God disposes kind of element, like do our part, but make no mistake, it's not all of it. Yeah. I, I, that, uh, I just love how that 
interpretation of the story from uh, from Lord of the Rings was, and it and it's so important about leaving the space for grace because it was that singular action of pity and compassion yeah. for an obvious evil, mm-hmm. or, or and not necessarily evil, but the, or even ambivalent, the dark side. right? Yeah. It's ambivalent evil, like Sauron's obvious evil, right, right, right. Smeagol Gollum is the human condition. Yeah, and but and the and the pity and compassion for that ultimately yeah. was what actually saved the day. And yeah. it was those, that simple choice that you could never fathom would have created all of the calculations would have been, is Schmeagel going to save the whole world? Yes. All calculations say no. Yeah. But with grace and this kind of miraculous allowance of what would be, it it works that way. Yep. And it's, uh, and that's, uh, that actually, that, you know, that is something that I think is a great way to understand how this ultimately can come about by all of these individual singular choices, that kind of butterfly effect of continuing to choose in that unicity consciousness, in that in that loving way, that somehow, somehow it will it will come to fruition. And even if it doesn't, from a very pragmatic William James way, I think we're better living as if it will, you know. Not only having hope, but but embodying that, like it's it's gonna work out, <laughs> you know. But still fighting like hell, yeah. Still fighting like hell. Like Frodo didn't say like, oh yeah, we're say it's gonna like he still had to fucking climb and struggle and fight and and all of the different ways. But but that belief, you know, that belief, like holding that, it's both practically and potentially necessary for it to happen. But even if it doesn't, pragmatically, it's the goddamn best way we're gonna live. <laughs> yeah, and 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 that's what I mean about like that. You know, we, we go back to that go to the die and become like that notion of how critical it is for us to practice resurrection, like practice mm. being at the cusp of dying and choosing life, choosing love, choosing those things. Because if we don't practice it, we're going to shit the bed, right? It's like Archilochus one hundred and one. Like you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to your training. So the only training that actually encodes us to step above seeking pleasure and avoiding pain is to lay it all on the line and to die into this moment, to, 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 to abandon all of my preconceptions, all of my comfort, so that when the real moment comes, right, I have a shot of pulling it off, that that, that heroic impulse is in my muscle memory. And it actually feels, it feels possible. Because like, you know, when, once you've died and been reborn then dying a second time isn't so hard yeah <laughs> if it's the first time you're gonna flinch yeah yeah and that's a and you know die before you die that's just one of these tenets that is absolutely yeah. vital and all of these initiatory practices can get us to that state where our ego is effectively dead because we've shifted our point of identity in such a way that we no longer identify in the place that it was and it's a fiction to begin with it's a fictional construct it's a creation of ourselves. so letting that die is you know it's essential. It's essential in the practice. And I think we'll, we'll get a chance to talk about that more, but there's one spot just in my own personal life. Like there's, uh, you know, an individual that I, I'm, I still hold judgment, you know, towards this individual and it's rationally, it doesn't matter if I do or if I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not out there actively doing anything. I'm not, however, I know that internally that's it's a it's a imbalance it's a lack of resonance that I feel with <laughs> the way that I want to be mm-hmm. you know and but I don't have a, there's no way that my mind can calculate why it's important for me to truly forgive him 
Mm-hmm. I know that like, all right, yes, I, as I forgive all beings, I forgive you too, blah, blah, blah. But to really do the work <laughs> yeah, yeah. seems like I don't even want to, I don't even want to. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. And my mind will tell me that. But by the same, you know, Frodo Gollum analogy, Schmeagel mm-hmm. analogy, maybe it matters more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Maybe it does. And I just don't understand why it, you know, and even though it's not like we're not even speaking. But me doing my part to clean up my half of the bridge that connects us so that, you know, energetically in whatever space beyond our normal understanding, energetically, that side of the bridge is open and that side of the bridge is love. And maybe waiting for that and maybe the, the reunification and coming back to love is enormously important, mm-hmm. enormously. And I just can't even imagine it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something for all of us to just kind of hold like, these places where our calculating mind says it doesn't fucking matter you know you can hate this person forever you're not talking about it you don't even hardly think about it that much Mm -hmm. but maybe it does matter maybe it really fucking does yeah you know there's there's so many interesting things on that one um i was i was thinking of this a few months ago and i would oh i know what it was okay yeah so i had a similar experience bearing my britches from a continually painful relationship that felt like it had just slopped out of integrity and I'd done my level best to be clean and open and just sure. constantly getting just shivs in the ribs. <laughs> and I was sick of it, <laughs> just fucking <laughs> sick of it. And and my my dear friend was like, oh yeah, so you know, that's your Judas, right? And 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 he was like, I've got mine, right? And and this this one's being yours, the kind of Cain and Abel thing. And and I was like, oh, okay. What a what a what a what a what a what if basically, which is if we bumble through this life as an NPC, you know, non-player character, and then we kind of like get woken up that we're potentially kind of playing the infinite game, then wouldn't it make sense that you have to get initiated into all the cast of characters, right? Mm. Like I've I've had my Tom Sawyer who like sweet talks you into whitewashing his fence for him, you know. I've had my, <laughs> right, right. You, you you've got the you got the woman is temptress, you know, the, oh, yeah. the first girl in high school or college that broke your Cersei heart. Cersei and Calypso yeah, and Penelope, them, right? yeah. And actually, it's actually a fierce grace that your initiations are that painful Mm. because you'll never forget them. And then rather than wandering through our narrative lives going, why is it that I always get let down, sad, betrayed, whatever, 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 all your ego stories, you were like, oh no, shit, man, that was a badass set of initiations. I now know the whole cast of characters, right? So now I can play at the infinite game and not get sucked into the matrix right because i now under i know those patterns i know those dynamics as they show up in our collective field yeah. so i can welcome the next one and i can and my discernment is through the roof because i've actually felt it so profoundly but to your point about unconditional love versus conditional love i think that's really important to separate because as can i want the best and wish for them in the abstract and in the infinite love compassion growth all the good things absolutely However, when we come down to the conditional and you've let me down, now I actually do have something specific to say and to negotiate. Mm. So it's a little bit like rock climbing. Like if, if I just say, I wish that you go and enjoy your life in the mountains and have beautiful sunsets and sunrises, God bless you. That's great. I can do that all day long, no matter how much someone has hurt me. If I'm on the other end of their rope and they let me hit the deck because they were lunching when they should have been grabbing the rope, I have an issue. So there's there's unconditional love for that person. And there's also specific conditional love, which is the moment I 
we intertwine our lives to the point where I am depending on you. This is the same with sure. you, you playing basketball. Like no look, no look passes. If you're just not there for it, yeah. then you're like, hey, buddy, fucking keep your head in the game. <laughs> right. And that's conditional and specific. And that's actually legitimate too. Yeah. You know, yeah, you can't bypass it. You can't bypass the the things that are there, but it's 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 holding both. It's yes. holding the infinite and the finite and honoring both of them. Yeah. And sometimes when you're in unable to actually clear things in the finite, mm -hmm. it may be the prerequisite that you at least clear things and become clear in the infinite. You know, knowing that this isn't a bypass of the finite, because I've I've played that fucking game. <laughs> you know, like Oh, I'm in radical compersion and I love you no matter what. And like, you're with who? What did you do? Ah, I'm going to, you know, and it was this contrast of me bypassing my humanness and then, you know, ascribing to these spiritual beliefs, which I believe, but you know, you have to, you have to honor both, yep. both as sacred. And, and I think that's important, but really to at least get to the point where you truly do hold love at least on that half of the spectrum and on the other half you know that while that's true you still got shit to clear yeah i mean i mean it i mean this is all just paradoxes all we're talking about right is, right. is animal angel and navigating the space in between as, as the human experience and you know folks that folks that are in both of our lives i mean i i wrestled with frustrations and sadness and disappointment in how they were showing up in in, in our lives and and i and it occurred to me i was like oh when you're in more heightened expansive states filled with love and compassion you're like oh we we should see each other's light from each other's light mm. right like my hi namaste namaste <laughs> right <laughs> right and 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 yet what so often happens is that most of the people we're closest to as far as fellow travelers through this life and world we end up getting frustrated sad wounded by each other and we end up seeing each other's shadow from each other's shadow Right, we end. Ah, oh, you, mm. you really knew them. They're just fucking full of shit and hypocrites and this <laughs> and that, right? And 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 don't believe the press clippings. And so the question is, is like you go down to that experience, and you're like, and then you have your next power up, and you're like, oh, back to compassion. I should really extend my love and light to them. But I don't want to be like Charlie Brown with that fucking football on Lucy. Like yeah. this time, I'm really going to kick that sucker, and then whoop, you know, you're flat on your back again, sucking yeah. wind. So the question is, is how do I, after being knocked down? to shadow from shadow, how do I go back up to holding their light from my light without just being naive, right? And, and essentially, you know, fool me three times and now what, right? right? So the question is, is it feels like the only, well, I don't know about the only, but a way to do it is if we have committed ahead of time to a code of conduct by which we agree to mutually self-police, mm -hmm. right? So I can, I can hold out for you, like if we've both pledged to a code, and it's just, it's like playing tennis, playing, mm -hmm. like if the ball's out, the spirit of the game is I'll call it out even if I really, really needed that point. Yep. Right. And so if I will, if I will police myself, then you don't have to, and you can just be shining me the unconditional love that will raise me up and make me the best brother possible. If you're not a hundred percent convinced that I'm going to call the ball out when it's out, right, then we're going to need a laser cam. Yeah. And so that capacity for us to have a, you know, to, to actually assign codes, because especially in this day and age, like everyone's into nonviolent communication and what's true for me and what I'm feeling right now is people weaponize the living shit out of that stuff. And they oh, use yeah. it to Nonviolent hide. communication can be the most violent thing I've ever encountered oh, in my horrendous, life. horrendous, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and the moment you try and resolve a conflict from that place and people do that, they weaponize the NVC and what's true for me and that kind of stuff. Then you're like, okay, now my trust for you is through the floorboards. Yeah. Because we tried to come together and, and hash this in spirit of mutuality downstream and you actually 
played shitty little transparent games here. Mm. So having some sense of, I mean, effectively, and, and this is the opposite of Brene Brown. So if anybody's following along at home, right? But but the notion that um, I always think of like what broke Joseph McCarthy, right? During McCarthyism in the 50s was that famous senator standing up saying, Senator McCarthy, have you no shame, sir? Right? And he didn't. And that's why he was such a toxic fuck. Yeah. Right. But that idea of like shame, not like guilt being like, I'm not worthy or I'm not deserving. We don't want guilt, but shame in the sense of I have transgressed the norms of my community, mm -hmm. I think is massively underdeveloped nutrient right now. We actually well, need healthy that, shame. That means that there has to be a community that upholds yes. a, a mutual ethos. Yeah. And without that, then you're just making up your own rules to this thing and it's yeah and then at that point you have to have the discretion and boundary hold whatever you want in the spiritual but say all right you're not playing a game that i'm interested in playing in at this yeah. dimensional reality so you know go for it you yeah. know have a ball but yeah. nonetheless like here's here's my discretion and boundary but it it does point back to that sense of community that upholds these values where multiple people will say this is our these are our community values and you're transgressing yes. them yes and maybe both of you are, but let's come together and let's allow those those principles to actually inform us. Yeah, in fact, uh, Tyson Yunkaporter, he's an Aboriginal academic and scholar, and he just wrote a rad book called Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save mm. the World. Yep. And he's funny as shit. I mean, he's a balance of like tr deep indigenous knowledge, but also like academic critical theory, and he just riffs all over the place. And we were we were talking and he he described how in Aboriginal communities, the violence is public. He goes, public violence is actually essential and healthy. And he was talking about like women fighting and how they just tee off, like like stand, you just slug the shit out of each other, like hardcore fights and everyone's around. He goes, he goes, public violence is essential and healthy. It's private. It's when violence gets privatized that it gets dangerous. Right, and the idea there is that not even that there's a winner and a loser, but you know, people get, you know, they trade their licks, they get it out. And the community holds it and buffers it and witnesses it. And that's arguably one of the healthiest ways to discharge that stuff right. versus the passive aggressive and versus private domestic kind of violence. There's a, <clears throat> there's even in, I think this is an advantage that typically um, men have who play who are in combat sports. And now mm -hmm. this is available to everybody. This isn't yeah. exclusively to men versus women but because of the proclivity of men to continue playing competitive contact sports or mm -hmm. competitive it seems like we're able to get some of that out with each other you know mm -hmm. like i i know there's a there's out on the basketball court the 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 most inflamed that i've been towards anybody in a while is you know somebody who's calling fouls when there's no fouls and calling outs when there's mm -hmm. no outs and again it ultimately gets so frustrating and it got to the point where we were literally in basketball as close to a, we weren't fighting we didn't change the rule but in basketball <laughs> we were as close to fighting as possible yeah you know, it was like, oh, that's a foul. Show you a fucking foul. Like, let's yeah, go. Yeah, like, yeah. with our language, with our body, just smashing against each other. And where we weren't really friends beforehand, we've done that twice now. <laughs> and now, like, I feel like he's like a brother. You know, like, there's a way in which, and it was public too. We're playing mm -hmm. three on three. There's people waiting, mm -hmm. and everybody's like, oh shit, what's going on here? But there was like a, there was something about that that this public like mm -hmm. two bulls clashing horns you know and just going at each other and at the end we're like yeah like you want to grab lunch or something <laughs> you know like and we're probably we would have never done that before and it's a 
it is a beautiful thing and i'd encourage all people of all sexes to find your outlets and find your ways to play you know there's a lot of cool ways that you can play when i'm leading you know different groups through physical exercise there's all kinds of games where instead of sparring each other which is aggressive you can do these different wrestling games get on one foot hold each other's arms try to pull each other off balance Mm -hmm. you know and i know you do a lot of these different types of things too or or like uh, sparring where you're actually trying to tap the outside of the other person's leg and you're moving Mm -hmm. around like these ways that we engage and play it for serious really healthy for relationships like super healthy for relationships yeah massively massively i mean you said play right but i mean that notion of like so much play has i mean you know obviously helicopter parents and everything's scheduled these days like and and true for the adults as well like the ability for spontaneous edge play yeah right where are the boundaries and can we navigate and negotiate them together uh, in a way that discloses more novelty yeah you know is super super important I definitely want to read that book, Santaki. You're like the third person who's mentioned it hmm. recently. And he's rad. Yeah. He's a really good Sounds guy. Sounds great. All right. We got to go into this. Uh, so you laid out just five different categories, mm-hmm. um, ways that we can reach altered states of consciousness mm-hmm. that can inform us and actually bring us closer to that place that we're you know desiring to get to deeply. And yeah. that can actually be something radically transformational for the world. First of which huge proponent of this actually huge proponent of all these things uh but uh but respiration yeah and and you break it down in a, in a beautiful way going through things that people will expect i think everybody's thinking oh yeah breath work wim hof got it mm-hmm. there's so much more than that and yes i'm not to diminish that's my practice my practice is more in the wim hof holotropic uh-huh. you know breath work guided breath work i i'll weave stories into it and you know i do a lot of guided breath work and it's incredibly powerful but you expand the category um to places where i was like really excited about where you took it oh nice well yeah and and just to kind of set things up right if if the conversation so far has been hey what's the state of things it's exponentially better it's exponentially worse and we don't have you know handrails to make sense of it Mm -hmm. we so therefore it's very easy for us to try and run away and whether that's missile silos or mars or regress into tribalism like none of those are going to work how do we get to a global centric perspective where we can rally together to do what we must, right? And so the question was, hey, any tops down answer to that question is going to almost certainly be pathological. Socialism, communism, fascism, all the isms, right? So we have to actually do it differently. We have to sort of bring like design thinking to it. And the design firm IDEA, which came out of Stanford, they're responsible for tons of Apple's innovation, sort of big, pretty much the most iconic design firm in the world realized after they were doing a lot of their design, they're like, hey, it's not just the stuff we design, it's the way we go about designing the stuff that's really valuable. So they created the human-centered design toolkit, which they then open source to the world so that, you know, villages in Delhi or, or, or in Sao Paulo or Ghana could, they had issues, they had things, whether it was water or microfinance or girls education they're like we've got a problem how do we put design thinking to come up with good solutions and it's had tremendous impact around the world so that's the premise of the middle part of the book which is called the alchemist cookbook which is how would you bring design thinking to the meaning crisis Mm -hmm. how would we precipitate inclusive salvation how would we take the best of meanings 1.0 and 2.0 and put them together so that everybody has a chance to experience healing inspiration and connection because that's the raw materials of life Right, and that's and that's certainly the Harvard Sacred Design Lab um, studies. You know, post-conventional religion, like what does religiosity look like for millennials in a, in a world full of nuns, all that kind of thing. And their their sense was it's those three factors: healing, inspiration, and connection. 
because lots of studies have shown that people who belong to communities of practice and faith are actually healthier, wealthier, and happier than people who don't. But it doesn't depend on what deity they believe or what scriptures they follow. It's just that you belong and you're a part of it. Yeah. So we're like, okay, so how can we get healing, inspiration, and connection? That's the meaning 1.0 stuff that traditional religion used to offer. And at the same time, honor the inclusiveness of meaning 2.0, which was you know basically how do we make it open source right, so that anybody can use it, so it's not tops down, there's no priest class or government controlling it. How do you make it scalable so that the bottom four billion on the planet also have access? Because we can do fancy pants solutions, you know, in Austin or Silicon Valley all day long. Mm -hmm. That's not gonna help everybody that needs it. And then how do we make it, you know, anti-fragile in the sense of how does it, how do we create situations that actually get stronger as things get harder? Mm -hmm. Because I'm sure you've had lots of combination you know, conversations with people, especially in the psychedelic space or whatever, like, oh, what everybody needs is to come here to Tulum or to come here to Bali and experience this. And you're like, yeah, but that's super fragile, yeah, right? That doesn't exist if someone's chasing you. That doesn't exist if conditions degrade. So those are the criteria. And then that's how we came up with, well, look, if you want to meet the open source, scalable and anti-fragile we should move as close to evolutionary drivers as possible, mm -hmm. right? Because they're super strong, they're very potent. That's how that's how we've ensured the survival of humans and, and, and hominids for hundreds of thousands of years. And if you can hack them, right, then you can use those and everybody has available access. So the first most obvious is breathing, right? And, and the idea that we are so strongly encoded to ensure we get enough oxygen to our brains, right? And balancing carbon dioxide, oxygen, and, and nitrogen that just tweaking those in little tiny ways can have huge effects. And you know, as you said, like whether it's Wim Hof or holotropic breathing or, or a host of other kind of breathwork modalities, you know, breathwork is definitely having a moment, right? James Nestor just Absolutely. wrote that book as well. It's like it's kind of blown up as far as people's interests and curiosity. But really, you can boil all of the all of the modalities down to am I increasing or decreasing carbon dioxide in my system? And lightly, am I, am I increasing or decreasing oxygen? And by changing the rate, the rhythm, and the depth of that breathing, I can either downregulate my nervous system, meaning I was stressed and anxious, and now I'm calmer, or you can upregulate it, like I need to go do something, whether that's a, a lift or a sprint or a speech, and I need to be alert and engaged, or I can trans translate or transcend my consciousness. And that would be something like holotropic breathwork. So basically sure. gas, brakes, and steering are kind of the three things you can do with your breath rates. And something wildly other when you talk about nitrous oxide. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so and, and carbogen, right? So basically you can, you can play with, so, so those, those are, you know, let's just say atmosphere is, you know, um, basically you can play with your rate and rhythm, but you can also do gas-assisted breathing. Yeah. And that can change essentially what those what those ratios are. And that was actually the, the idea for that came when I was training with Kurt Crack, who's the world champion free dive coach. And his, his uh, wife was actually a world record holder. And we were doing this down in the Bahamas. And then he was just, he was just guiding us through all the breath prep for free diving. And then he's like, oh yeah. And of course, if, you know, like maximum world record at the time, I think it was seven or eight minutes or something like that, like free. And then he's like, but if you do gas assisted, you can extend that to 15, 16, 17 minutes. And David Blaine, he had just coached mm -hmm. to do the world record where David Blaine, I think, had 
pre-breathed oxygen for like 20 minutes, pure oxygen for 20 mm. minutes before doing all of his other lung packing and everything else and had stayed in that tank, you know, in, on the Oprah show, right? And, and set a new world record. And I was like, wait, gas minutes. Yeah, I was like, gas assisted, what's that about, right? Because, you know, if anybody's done any form of free dive practice or even any breath holds after Wim Hof, right? Any, anytime you've hyperventilated a bunch and then done a static apnea, it's really meditative. You know, like it, you're, it's, a, least. it's a super embodied stillness that I have a really hard time getting to if I'm just sitting on a cushion trying to not think about thinking. Right. Right. Especially if you're in cold water, you're submerged, that there's all of the kind of mammal stuff that goes on, mammalian dive reflex, it drops your heart rate, boosts your vagal tone, does a bunch of things. And I was like, well, wait, this is awesome. Um, and you could extend this. <laughs> you know, you mm. could spend 10 minutes here, you could spend longer. And so basically, um, super saturating with oxygen. If you hyperventilate, you blow off your CO2. So that decreases your drive or impulse to breathe. So that, so what we're talking about, that is classically what Wim Hof yeah. breathing is doing. Yeah. It's hyperoxygenation. That's, you know, because your breathing in is deep, fully in, let it go. As uh -huh. Wim Hof himself says, like yeah. getting as much in as possible, mm -hmm. hyperoxygenating your system. It creates a, a feeling of what you called, which I loved. I didn't know that was the word alkalosis. Mm -hmm. You're actually alkalizing your blood. Yep. You're creating the state where you're, you might get what they call tetany. Your fingers might get tingly or they might even curve in. Yep. But the way that your mind goes, there's somatic releases that happen. There's mm -hmm ways that you can drop into these deep i did breath work last night and i oh, nice. found myself going into this incredibly deep void ketamine-esque void hmm. you know just from one of the breath holds that i was doing right there's so many things that can open up but fundamentally the the lever that you're moving there is oxygen ratio to carbon dioxide mm -hmm. right yeah, I mean, nitrogen's an inert gas, so it's more or less 80% of the, of the mix. And, you know, and obviously we breathe in more oxygen and breathe out more, you know, we breathe in oxygen and breathe out more CO2. But basically, you can superoxygenate like David Blaine did, and you can, David Blaine, you can stay longer in that breath hold. But you can also, and I did not know about this until a couple of years ago, um, but you can also do the opposite. And you can massively increase the amount of co2 you're breathing so if you do gas blends right and you know scuba divers do all this all the time right because if you go deep you can end up with nitrogen narcosis because it basically starts um basically sedating you they call it the martini effect if you're below 20 meters every 10 you go down is like knocking back a martini and so you can get disoriented and it's what used to be called the rapture of the deep Mm. And then they started switching it out for helium and other gases. So you could, you, they would use special blends so that you wouldn't get nitrogen narcosis as you went down. So you're like, okay, so those guys are ninjas at like gas blending for breathing. Mm. What have they learned? And one of Stan Groff's colleagues in Hungary back in the day in the 50s, um, uh, Maduna uh, was his last name. He was exploring gas blending. I thought it was a woman probably because I made the reference to Medusa. Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's like Maduna, this uh, great yeah, female yeah. scientist. And, and basically came up with a 70% carbon dioxide, 30% <clears throat> oxygen blend called, these days it's called Maduna's mixture. Um, but they were using it, he was trying to create almost like um, a ground mile epileptic seizure. Because what happens when you breathe that, you've got one and a half times the atmosphere of oxygen. So you're actually super saturated, you're stoked, but something like 14 times the amount of CO2 so your brain is like mayday, mayday, red alert. You are suffocating. You are being buried alive. You are dying. Mm. And then it would literally create almost a seizure release 
as this as this person just short, it just shorts out their brain. It's like putting a paperclip in the socket, right? So functionally, absolutely safe. Yeah. Experientially, replicating the sensation of suffocation. Yes, terrifying. And and and, and the, what caught my eye was that uh, Roger Walsh, uh, who's a MD PhD at, uh, in, at University of California wrote a book called Higher Wisdom. And it's and I highly recommend it for anybody that's interested in the psychedelic space because it's basically the oral histories of the OG researchers in the 50s and 60s. So it's like, it's knowledge that's kind of lost in the current stories. And and I was like, oh, great. He gave it to me. I really I really respect him. I'll, maybe I'll read it. But I was like, I, I think I know all these stories. And I didn't at all. And, and there, was, there was stuff out of UCLA and Manitoba and they were doing wild ass experiments um, with like, LSD on three to 12 year olds, schizophrenic kids. They were doing it on oncology and pain relief. This was when it was all totally sanctioned. So there was nothing scandalous about it. And they were having incredibly positive results. So it makes the current psychedelic renaissance of like smoking cessation and end of life look like really, right. really tame. And, but what they were using is they were using carbogen, that, ga that gas blend to test, to pre-screen people from before they would do LSD therapy to see if they would freak out or lose their shit or have any ab reaction for past trauma. But the thing that caught my eye was like, I think three of the stories, patients said, actually, I did. I passed the carbogen test, I did it, and then I took the LSD test, but you know what? I got more insights from the carbogen than I did mm. from the LSD. So I was like, whoa, what is that about? And then you combine, so now you're into like scuba tanks, you're into gas-assisted breath patterns and protocols, and you're like, okay, and this Maduna's mixture is super interesting. That was just jacking carbon dioxide. What does that do? Um, and then what about swapping out nitrogen? So you're like, okay, so now you get into two derivatives of nitrogen, which is nitric oxide and nitrous oxide. And nitric oxide- oh, yeah, I think I said the wrong thing earlier. Wait, before we go, before we go through this though, this, is it even possible if someone would wanted to go through and receive the Maduna's mixture? Mm -hmm. Is it possible now? Is this even does this even exist anywhere? Is this replicable? Yeah, I mean, basically, what we say in the appendix, right? Because we did a study on putting all these together, the hedonic engineering protocol, and basically, you know, the way Dan Savage talks about, you need like a G three partner, like good giving and game. Mm. You kind of need a C three physician, you know, uh, curious, courageous, and connected. So you need a physician, like a functional medicine doctor on your team, if you want to do this all above board, sanctioned and responsibly, right? Sure. Um, someone who, you know, a physician who is familiar with psychedelic therapies, who's, who has access to a compounding pharmacy and is willing to partner with a patient in, in, in service of their long-term health and sure. development. So if you have those things, then yeah, absolutely. You and can they would give you a tank. I don't know. I mean, that might be needing to be on-site or supervised, depending depending if they can come oh, yeah, to your yeah. home that or that would, kind that of thing. That would make sense. It seems like a really intense experience. I wouldn't want to do that by myself. <laughs> but anyways. No, but I mean, like as far as like a simple out-of-the-box death rebirth experience, that's that's quite there. I think that if you really wanted to just say, and this is not advocacy and everybody's on your own recognizance to do everything that is morally, legally, ethically, and professionally aligned with you and where you live, um, would be you actually combine hyperventilatory breathwork with and this is all with sequenced music sure right blindfolds couch you know recumbent space you know no mobility all that kind of stuff and actually one of one of the study subjects did this as a couple and they actually did the carbogen with music and they scheduled dark scary music for the beginning during the dark scary time uh -huh. with like the the suffocation transitioning into nitrous oxide and oxygen and moving it ramping into celestial release music Sign with, me up. with with erotic sexual stimulation 
Fucking at the same double time. Double sign me up. And and reported that it it, it abs- and the reason it works is because you're stressing the nervous system and then so tension release, right? Yeah. Which is naturally intuitively satisfying to us. Um, and then, you know, what we haven't unpacked, which is what is the impact of nitric and nitrous oxide? So the, the nitrogen family. And nitric oxide is a internal neurotransmitter. Herb Benson at Harvard did tons of work on this, but he called it the bliss molecule because it's what takes us out of stress responses into bliss responses, into mm. you know deeply pleasant flow states. And, and, and also a, involved in erections and erectile exactly. tissue in the clitoris or the penis. Exactly, which is why Viagra works. It, it actually boosts nitric oxide. There's a company here, Neo40 in Austin, that also does concentrated lozenges. You can you can indulge. You, you can yeah. You can, on it on it makes a supplement total nitric oxide. Oh right? sweet, there you go. Yep. So so. So basically, you know, the spectrum is dietary to supplement to ED drugs on the nitric oxide sure. spectrum, right? But nitrous oxide, which is one molecule different, um, researchers at MIT, anesthesiologists there, did a study in 2015 where they actually found that um, for the for three to 12 minutes after ingestion of 50-50 nitrous ox- nitroxygen, right, that gas blend, that that patients were going into double amplitude delta brain waves, and this is laughing gas for what yeah. people know. This is what you get at the dentist. This is, and and that was, <clears throat> so that's an experience that maybe some of us have. It's also what recreationally people will do. They'll call them whippets. Yes, but I think my my experience is that nobody's doing them right, and I definitely <laughs> want to get into that. So I had a experience with the C three doctor mm-hmm. who had good like professional grade mm-hmm. nitrous, nitrous oxide which is also no that is nitroxide right or nit- well that would just be you probably my assumption would be is you had a tank of pure nitrous oxide and where the, you can you would get a splitter and you would blend it with oxygen to do yeah. the 70 30 or 50 50 blends which yeah. would be the medical protocols okay so it was in the medical protocols mm-hmm. we would get a balloon have music mm-hmm. and you know he would guide us through this this experience and fuck it was Mm-hmm. profound mm-hmm. and it was the closest thing it was the closest thing i've experienced to the 5meo unicity it didn't have the same fabric color mm-hmm. yep. there was something missing in the heart you know it wasn't mm-hmm. the same i'm not saying it was the same but it was a unicity space it was a space of capital mm-hmm. o oneness space that i was entering and mm-hmm. intensely pleasurable mm-hmm in that experience at that kind of rapid and we're not talking about like trickling it through mm-hmm. but and then when i was reading what you're talking about what you're about to share about what's actually happening with the brainwave state i was like whoa really fucking interesting super interesting and and so that was one of my first kind of like breadcrumbs i was like oh wait so for three to 12 minutes after which your body and brain adapt and normalize you're in delta wave brainwaves which is the lowest Right so now we're getting into the, the physiological protocols of the death rebirth initiatory practice, right? Which is basically you go down to like one to four hertz. So most of us are up in beta waves. We're talking, you're listening to us right now. We're all in beta waves. If we chilled out and did a little breath work or a little contemplation, we might drop a little lower into alpha and we want to get super, super chill and almost nodding off, falling asleep, we'd be down into theta. Delta is all the way below that. And the only other time we experience delta waves is in deep and dreamless sleep. And so delta waves show up almost nowhere on the map. They're like the redheaded stepchild of EEG research, right? Mm-hmm. Because sleep researchers are interested in REM, where we dream. Consciousness researchers are interested in beta, you know, beta, alpha to theta, mostly, you know, with the occasional kind of curiosity about what happens in gamma and delta, virtually no one's studying. 
So this MIT paper was fascinating and unique and they were shocked. They're like, oh my God, nitrous oxide bonds with the, the central nervous system in a way that no other molecule we're aware of does. And it's double amplitude delta wave states. And what got really interesting is that Carl Dyseroth at Stanford has just done a paper, I think it came out in Nature last year, um, probably maybe fall of last year. And he had done studies with ketamine and and optogenetics, where they actually literally like change some of the genes from mice and, and, and activate them with light, right? But he was also using human patients uh, who had, um, what did they have? Epilepsy, I think. Um, so they were basically able to consciously report back what their interior right. experiences were. And found that both the mice and the human subjects, when given ketamine, had a dissociative state experience. Sure. Corroborated by, you know, no surprises, <laughs> but also corroborated by the subjective patient's reports. They then measured what was going on and they said like, oh, three hertz brain activity. So in that band of delta. Then they went back and optogenetically stimulated the mice and neuroelectrically stimulated the humans to put them back into three hertz without the ketamine. They had the same dissociative out-of-body experiences and those dissociative experiences had the same positive effect on depression and other mental and emotional sadness or, or disorder. Mm. So you're like, okay, so now we've got MIT and nitrous oxide. We've got Stanford and ketamine and delta wave states. We've got all these signs pointing to, hey, it's not the way you get there. It's the there there that matters. However, we, whichever buttons, mechanisms of action or, or catalyst we use, delta wave, waking delta is potentially the mother load. It is, and, and the same thing, actually, I saw a radar plot of a recent study on 5-MeO and the entire brain cross-hemispherically during, during the full induction of a 5-MeO experience is just lit up with delta, the entire brain. Mm. So you're like, okay. It's so almost like that's the ohm. That's, that's the that, ohm that's, of creation. Yes. That's the creation sound. That is the sweet spot. And, and, and to, to bring the metaphorical, because we've been talking about death, rebirth practices as if there's, you know, sort of, in the religious realm and the spiritual realm, this is very specific, right? This is resetting your nervous system almost to the point of EEG flatline, but you're awake and perceiving. And what information do you get access to? And then, and so you're simultaneously discharging your nervous system. It's, it's what um, a colleague of ours, Ryan Darcy, who's, who's Canada's top traumatic brain injury neuroscientist. Um, and they've been doing studies with a neuro, an electric device, the POMS device that you put on your tongue and it stimulates the cranial nerve. So it goes straight into your brainstem, right? Via electrical stimulation via the, via the tongue. So like Halo headsets and all the other gadgety headsets that people say do all this rad shit, most of them don't because they're too low voltage. Otherwise they wouldn't be consumer accessible. They'd right. only be physician administered. And then your, our brains, are, our skulls are really thick. So you basically just like, it's like a shower head on, a, on the top <clears throat> of the roof of a car versus going straight through your tongue to your cranial nerves and your brainstem. And he, he experienced the same thing. They were using it for traumatic brain injuries. They were using it for uh, uh, cerebral palsy and all sorts of motor function stuff. And then they actually were like, hey, how do we use this for optimizing? And they said, even if you're targeting just one of the 10 cranial nerves, you get a global system reboot. So it's pretty much like your laptop when it starts glitching, right? Because it's been open for a week and you've got 50 browser tabs open. And then you're yeah. like, oh, I don't get video on my Zoom anymore. What happened, right? And you just like, boop, boop, to turn it off, power it back on, come back into equilibrium. And that's what all of these experiences do. So you're like, okay, you have breath work, you can have orgasm, you can have pain, you can have nitrous and nitric oxide combinations, you could have ketamine, you could have 5-MeO-DMT, you, you, know, you could have the cranial nerve stem. You take your pick. 
it's not a, and so if anybody has an issue with or gets tripped up on the sensationalism of any of the methodologies, you're like, that's not the point. The point is that all of these signs, these are just signposting the road to the road to Rome. Right. Right. And the road to Rome is the road home. Because it's like, oh, I actually get to live a death rebirth, systemic reboot of my nervous system. I get to discharge all of that static, all of that micro PTSD, and maybe even some macro PTSD. And oh, by the way, you're conscious and it's not information free. Mm. It's actually profoundly rich territory. I mean, not only, I mean, most folks are familiar that William James the entire reason we have the field of comparative religion is because William James dabbled in nitrous oxide in the 1890s, but most folks don't know Winston Churchill did too. And, he's, and he said, depth upon depth of almost alien intelligence reveals itself. He goes, and then slips through your fingers. It's, he, goes, he goes, therefore I have come to conclude that nitrous oxide, it just swaps physical pain for, for um, intellectual pain, <laughs> right? That it slips through his fingers. And I get what he's saying because obviously my experience with nitrous oxide is limited, but my experience mm -hmm. with ketamine is more extensive. And in mm -hmm. the depth of those journeys, there's been so many times where I was like, I got it. Mm -hmm. I fucking mm -hmm. got mm -hmm. it. This is it. This is it. I've figured it all out. And then I'll pop out and I'll be like, Vi, you'll never believe. All the things. Wait, what? I figured it, I figured it out, but now yes. I don't have it. And I, there was even one time where I was like, I'm going into this. I'm going to remember. Yep. And I would go in and I would get it. And I was like, I'm remembering this. And I'd forget it. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I forgot it. Mm -hmm. It's something about the brain just doesn't store memory when it's in that delta frequency. Well, it's, it's the transition. And that's why both William James and Churchill complained. They're like, like it, it's a loom. I mean, James said, it's like staring at an Alpenglow peak, you know, with the sunset on the snow and then the sun dipping away. And then it just, the, the glowing ember just turns to cinders. And and that is exactly what the MIT researchers found. They said that three to 12 minutes is what you got. And then it switches off and the body adapts and normalizes. And so if you suddenly go from Delta and you punt back up into Beta, you're like, oh, whoa, whoa, here I am. What happened? What was that? Right? You no longer have access to the file storage. Mm. Right? So you have to get conversant in holding the information. And this is, you know, this gets to the practitioner part, right? When we, we're only talking about respiration, but it's the foundational piece right now. But once people realize, oh my gosh, I can gain access to like the galactic wishing well, I'm gonna go there all the time, right? And it's the meaning of life and existence. Then the, 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 it goes from, is it possible to, is it skillful or helpful? Right. And really the only difference between, because once you start pushing all these evolutionary drivers, they're very powerful and you do them all at once together, yeah. they become overwhelmingly so. And if you've never had an, if you've, if you've wrestled with addictions or compulsions in your life, be profoundly warned that this is the road to ruin. And if you haven't, if you're like a super straight down the middle, straight edge, who's never had any issues with self, self will, you know, will or control, you still may get hijacked because you're pushing every single one of the tumblers in the combination lock, right? To, to a lizard brain fuck monkey. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? And so really the only difference um, between an alchemist, someone who is doing this for the process of integration and, and development, and an addict is the scoreboard, mm -hmm. right? Are you bringing it back home? Yeah. Or are you getting cross-eyed in the pretty lights? And so there's a, <clears throat> a couple things that I want to touch on. One, you know, we have said that it's not how you get there, but it's where you're going. However, every different one of these things that we mentioned have different qualitative experiences and mm -hmm. can also reach you to different states. Like mm -hmm. some 
blast you so far beyond the point where you need to access for trauma release mm -hmm. that you might not get the trauma release. Yep. You know, and I think 5-MeO is potentially one of those categories, even maybe nitrous oxide. It's like you're all going all the way to the end point when there's value at the end point, but maybe mm -hmm. one of these other tools, breath work or one mm -hmm. of these other things yeah. is gonna get you right to that sweet spot where you start shaking carbogen, something yeah. like that versus, you know, nitrous oxide. So there are different there are different things that working the full spectrum of here to there mm -hmm. are valuable and which bridge you choose and what are the cost what's the cost benefit analysis of the bridge mm -hmm. which is something I think we should cover quickly like it seems that of these different methods obviously breathwork only has accretive value mm -hmm. for the most part right yep. like when you're hyperoxygenating what is there's a lot of stigma about the damage done by using nitrous oxide but mm -hmm. i i haven't found any research to actually show that there it is damaging it's killing brain cells this is the idea right yeah i mean you know funnily enough i mean any kind of any form of static apnea isn't without its downsides there's been there was a study i think two years ago on maybe the top 10 what like champion freedivers and eight of them had clinical impairment so mm. when I was learning with Kurt Crack, he's like, he's like, oh, I killed more brain cells in college drinking beer. You know, like he, he was very all shucksy about it. And then I read that subsequent study and that they literally had clinical levels of cognitive impairment from all that time doing breath holds and, and hypoxia. Well, that's actually creating the deficiency of oxygen. Yeah. In, in a, so, yeah. So, so even intensive extreme breath work, and this is obviously free divers going down right, 100 right, feet right. and that kind of thing, but like it's not great to have a brain without healthy oxygen, right? Yeah. Um, on the nitrous oxide, there's actually, I think, two levels. The typical stuff you'll read, like if you read, like Google something and nitrous oxide safety pops up, it'll be like dance safe or something like that. And we'll be talking about, you know, recreational abuse. And the obvious stuff is cold gas into your lungs, you know, so don't inhale from tanks and passing out and falling over and hitting your head, you know, so like kind of mechanical stuff, mm -hmm. which is very easy to mitigate. And you're like, okay, so that's not a big deal. Then, you know, inhaling a pure gas like that versus a gas blend versus right. a nitroxygen is, increases the likelihood of hypoxia. I think the more, the, the subtler but meaningful one is um, B12 deficiency, depletion, and then potential impact myelination on nerve sheaths. And that can happen with chronic use. And it's weird because you might be like, oh, B12, I'll just take my B12 tablets. It doesn't work that way. You can't exogenously supplement. And in a way, I don't fully understand the mechanism. I'd have to go back and reread the papers. Maybe like the way that the cells hold it. Or yeah, you like can't that. just pop your B12 and be good. <laughs> and and, and it is, it's non-reversible. So and 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 when that happens, you get high homocysteine levels and you get impact on myelination. So chronic use not recommended. Right. And but what we would say is that you know on the on the other hand, it's a WHO essential medicine. It's used for by doulas for women for mothers giving birth. You know, it's used for kids in dentist office. Those kind of things. It's actually inordinately safe in that capacity, but not in the realm of abuse. So. The, I mean, the simplest is to say, particularly because of that, I just saw the meaning to life and it just slipped through my fingers, right? The question, you have to put boundaries on use. Right. So once a year, once a quarter, once or whatever, and then do it once, do one breath hold protocol and remember it. And if you didn't remember it, well, nice try, come back next time, right? <laughs> yeah. Versus, right? I mean, you know, we, we were talking about this earlier, right? But I mean, um, you know, the Wall Street Journal just published a, a slightly deeper investigative piece on Tony Shea's passing, right? Uh, the CEO of Zappos. And he had gone down the roads of dissociatives with ketamine and nitrous oxide and had become convinced that he was accessing 
the secrets of the universe and the the source code for saving humanity. And he was a very smart, very successful guy who had moved a lot of matter around in the world. Yep. So he had a belief that, in fact, it was his to do, right? <coughs> and um, how to how to balance that. In fact, our, our buddy, Eric Davis, who's a, you probably have come across his stuff. He's a fascinating- His podcast coming out this week. Oh, sweet. Um, so- Well, not for the people who are listening in reality yeah. live right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll already be out for those of you listening. Check it out. Yeah. Um, but he said that, he said, he said, you know, in he, this instance, he was talking about ketamine, but he's like, hey, ketamine's got the story of like, hey, psst, you know, here's the secrets to the universe. Um, that's not all of it. You got to come back for the rest. And- you've got a super important part to play, right? Ooh, that's the slipperiest slope of all. Right? That's that point where you slip into mania, yes. where I am different than the and anointed. special because yes. that's, whenever you see that, I cannot stress this enough, you start to see that and I've seen it. And sometimes the instinct, you'll see it in a friend group, you'll mm -hmm. see that thing mm -hmm. and where someone has this special importance and they're doing special work or something. I've stayed silent in those situations where mm -hmm. i'm just like uh that's a little sketchy but i don't want to impose myself i don't know them that well it hasn't been in the intimate circle mm -hmm. but i would urge that if you see it offer the clear reflection because it's so dangerous it's such a dangerous slippery slope when someone starts to get in that in that state yeah i mean it's happening down in the coast of santa Teresa. there's there's some breathwork and ketamine tribe down there doing their things and believes i'm sure they believe they're going to save the world themselves because they have some special importance and yes and, and and it's more like sketchy. just like tattoo that shit on your forehead stick it to you know fridge magnets like don't forget like that is the tricksy nature it's a known issue right you know none of us are special cupcake <laughs> yes <laughs> right it should be on a cupcake Can yeah you make those for the <laughs> you're <release>? not special <laughs> <laughs> yeah and just have a cupcake magnet you can put on yeah. a fridge exactly so those are the known issues right i mean that's why this entire body of knowledge and practice has been so closely guarded so secretive and so marginalized for thousands of years is it's volatile as all get out and then also let's also put this in perspective you know what so are opiates mm. you know so is oxycontin like so is a lot of so are benzos mm -hmm. like look at what jordan peterson's had to go through because he was prescribed some benzos to calm his nervous system down right yeah there's a lot of gnarly shit out there mm -hmm. and we just are like yeah yeah it's medicine fucking tylenol kills like 900 people a year because of liver toxicity you know there's there's a lot of downfalls so yes be very mindful and especially as we're in this opening like don't fuck it up for yourself and don't fuck it up for everybody because all it's going to take is a couple of these and then people are going to run with it because there is a inherent energy which wants to suppress this knowledge mm -hmm. and because it's it's terrifying to the ego because it's threatening to the ego it can destroy the identification structure that people are in so they want to suppress it i don't think it's a conspiracy i think it's just base level fear ego based fear oh shit that thing might destroy me let's eradicate it and so be careful, be careful for yourself and be careful for all of us, please, <laughs> fucking please. Yeah, yeah, like hashtag don't do stupid shit, right? <laughs> yeah. like, like don't end up in a cult, a body bag, a jail cell, a loony bin, rehab, divorce court, right? Don't, because you fuck it up for everybody else. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So, all right, we have these, you know, and again, this is, it's interesting because these things this is not an endorsement but i think what you were saying is right and that's how i got to experience it it's that c3 
it's that c3 doctor that and then the more of them are coming online where they're mm-hmm. starting to see really honor the hippocratic oath of like i'm here to not only do no harm but to do the most good mm-hmm. you know and it's like a, a secondary aspect of that and that's coming online and and i think that's the best case and then ultimately hopefully as society changes you know we're seeing it with ketamine clinics we're seeing it with you know the opening of that space we're seeing a lot of changes but i can ultimately see then a place where you could go and go through the carbogen mm-hmm. to nitrous oxide you know go through that i mean obviously probably would be a little bit weird if they allowed you to have sex in the place too but maybe fuck mm-hmm. you know like whatever whatever the 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 protocol is that you were describing which sounds inherently like something worth exploring at the very least yeah for 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 the right person in the right place i could see that possibility kind of opening up but in the meantime be really careful be really mindful if you are lucky enough to be able to create the conditions where you can actually do this yeah i mean look any ecstatic practice technically like something that takes you out of yourself is a death practice and anytime you have a death practice the capacity for literal death is not non-zero yeah right so or um or is is non-zero so so you have to be vigilant and you have to go into it like you would fifth class rock climbing or big wave surfing it can kill you yeah that is part of what makes it so rich and rewarding um to to apprentice to but that means you can't be sloppy and it's not and it's not a, it's not a padded bouncy house yeah. and it's real and gra- and gravity's in full effect let's talk about sex all right let's talk about sex and then uh it goes some of the practices that you initially talked about that were sexual were actually in the embodiment section it's yes. like using physiology and the physiology of pain and that release in in bdsm and this is something that you also talked about in stealing fire you know it's something mm-hmm. that you know, I've been aware of for a while some of this research, but let's talk about this, the utilization of the body in a sexual capacity or in some of these other um, these other practices like BDSM to actually create these uh, ecstatic states. Yeah, well, I mean, look, in a simple, simple sense, um, there's obviously infinite amounts to talk about with embodiment and many folks have been recently getting super, you know, twigged on to like Bessel van der Kolk's work, Peter Levine's work, kind of somatic experiencing, the body keeps the score, that sort of general body of knowledge and practice. But a couple of the areas that are potentially less known or understood is the vagal nerve and its actual impact on our overall physiology and well-being, and how to stimulate it and what its effects are, and also the endocannabinoid system, right? So the two of them, and, and I, I haven't yet found anybody who's doing integrative research on both of them simultaneously it's almost like that's certain people's wheelhouses and other people's wheelhouses and i haven't seen them together but weirdly the endocannabinoid system and the vagal nerve seem to do similar things in the sense that they serve as kind of metronomes and regulating functions across different organs and across the whole nervous system and um the endocannabinoid system right i mean it's as old as like 500 million years ago, it shows up in sea sponges. It shows up in all vertebrates. It shows up throughout our systems. And it's actually one of the only systems in our body that talks bi-directionally to different organs. And it's, and it's responsible for neurogeneration, for healing, for, for um, you know, blood pressure, for um, immune responses, all kinds of things. And you're like, okay. And, and the vagal nerve does similar things. And, and it runs all the way from our brainstem all the way down to our root, right? At the base of our spines. And there's tons of research these days on 
you know, pacemaker implants, different ways to trigger the vagal nerve, increase vagal tone. We're basically healthier when we have high vagal tone. When we get stressed and compacted, we have low tone. Endocannabinoid system, obviously, by the luck of botany, happens to match with the five-leaf plant cannabis. Mm-hmm. Right, as Michael Pollan said, it it it, it soothes man. It soothed man's mind to borrow his legs, and therefore traveled mm-hmm. all the way around the world. It came out of the Tibetan plateau like twenty five thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's a pure fluke, actually, that cannabis happens to match our pre existing super ancient endocannabinoid system. Right, and if you simply smoke a bunch of weed, pure you, fluke, maybe. Well, yeah. <laughs> depending, depending on your metaphysical worldview. Except for the ganja goddess told me one night. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, but I mean, other than that, kind of accidental. Sure. But so beyond all the marketing hype of CBD and, and, and cannabis growers and dispensaries, there's actually real truth to it. Like the endocannabinoid system is the miracle, the same way that it's the delta wave state that's the real thing of interest, not the ways in. But with embodiment, basically... You know, as it so happens, this, the lowest tech ways to stimulate the vagal nerve is, is to do with your throat and palate. So any form of gargling, gagging, singing, right, chanting, any vibrating, any of those kinds of things. And rectally, right? So if, Anish Shath is a gastroenterologist. He even coined the term pooforia. So if you've ever had like a truly spectacular dump and you've had like goosebumps and you felt really good or maybe got all sweaty or whatever, like that's actually the you taking a dump, stimulating the vagus nerve. Through, or even through your right body. before, right when you're in final approach and like you know you got it and that's yeah. <laughs> creeping down, it's creeping down its way. That's where it really is, you know, because the release is fast. Yeah. But like when you're right in there. Well, there you have it, right? That, that's a whole lot of extra. <laughs> um, so, so, so the point being is that if you, if you look at this whole, you're like, oh, we're just, you know, worms with mouths and assholes, right? Our central nervous system. Elementary lop, canal, yeah. Yeah, lop off our limbs. That's what we are. And the vagal nerve in particular is is stimulated with gagging, puking, spasming, shitting, orgasming. So you're like, oh, wow. What if we actually could combine some of those experiences? Because that spasmodic release provides, it's another part of that global system reset. So... And, and, and it's weird because we have all sorts of issues around those behaviors. It's, it's us at our least controlled, our most pathetic, our most basic. If you think of like holding your friend's hair as they puke their guts out in the mm-hmm. toilet, you know, like you're like, ah, like that's not like that's undignified, that's base. But it's actually like, it's like no, actually our nervous system craves those, that, those forms of discharge and reset. So you can engage in, it's why... David Carradine and the NXS guy, they all die from autoerotic strangulation, right? Mm. Like you're like, well, what's that about? That wasn't like somebody with a death wish. That was somebody with a life wish that got it wrong. And you're like, well, what was that about? And it's and it's literally so never obstruct airways, never do stupid shit. But like even just massaging your Adam's apple or or windpipe and 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 engaging that with a partner, right? Any of these movements um can meaningfully trigger uh increased vagal tone changes in physiological state deepening of equanimity and if you combine them with other experiences can actually provide profound states of calm relaxation and even transcendence so you're like okay so and then you know you mentioned pain and bdsm this was actually a story that a woman intelligence operative told me um at the Harvard Club, which in New is York. a crazy story because it involves vampires. Story? It involves real life vampires with retractable <laughs> fangs, and but you know, again, like baptisms of the vampire queen in the in New York City underground in 
bathtubs of plasma, like wacky Please, ass. Stuff. This is like, we're covering a lot of the shit in the book. So if you think <laughs> that like, oh yeah, you know, we heard this podcast, I don't need to buy this book. There's all kinds of cool shit like this story. So let's just leave that as a, as a gem for them because it's not essential to the story you're about to tell. Yeah. But you're going to learn about how there's like, well, I mean, they're not actual vampires. They don't live forever and they don't burn in the sunlight. But nonetheless, they're like self-identified vampires in the world. And it's a fucking cool story. 80,000 of them in New York alone. And, and the, <laughs> but the, the thing that twigged it was that um, they were part of an underground kink scene in, in, in downtown Manhattan. It was after 9-11. And, and then a bunch of first responders from 9-11 started showing up to the dungeons for concerted beatings. And it wasn't erotic. It was literally them overcoming their trauma and their survivor's guilt. And I was like, whoa, that is a wild ass story. What's underneath that? And that was, you mentioned the Lakota Sundance and other, there's tons of traditions of pain being connected to spiritual transcendence, right? And, or the discharging of trauma. And so you're like, okay. So especially once you get close to uh, sexual arousal, you know, nature, because most, most sexuality in nature is nasty, brutish, and short, right? You get a huge amount of endorphins and anandamide, which are pain reducers. And I think a woman's pain tolerance goes up 4X um, at close to orgasm. And I'm not clear exactly mm -hmm. what the numbers are for men. So there is a moment close to arousal where you can basically hotwire pleasure pain signals, and it's just all pleasure. So you can actually pulse through the nervous system what would normally be a painful sensation. And whether that pinwheels or whether that's, you know, paddles or whatever, take your pick, but like intense, not normally painful sensation can actually get hotwired in the nervous system, sent up the spinal column and perceived as pleasurable energy information experience. So you combine all these things, you're like, okay, so normally folks would be like, oh, who's the community of practice around that? Right, like, am I like those folks who do the dungeons in San Francisco or, or Tokyo or whatever? No, I'm not, therefore we're not gonna. Or yeah. I'm gender respectful or I'm whatever, whatever, and I don't believe in those demeaning or debasing things. Like I'm not a naughty boy or a naughty girl and I don't deserve a spanking. And you know, you like totally get it, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? If that's your jam, more power to you. But on the other hand, there's a whole host of people that are like, wow, we are deconditioned zoo animals. We actually need more intense stimulation to actually become fully in our bodies. And if you look at occupational therapists that deal with kids with like sensory integration disorders, their, their catalog of toys or tools is almost identical. It's compression stuff, it's pinwheels, it's feathers, it's all the things that help wire up a nervous system. And so you can use those to overcome a lot of our disembodiment and you can combine them with endocannabinoid system optimization, which is also the key for runner's high as well. Like most people think it's endorphins, it's not, it's anandamide, right? You can judiciously stimulate with cannabis, but not habitually because then it zeroes out and you don't get the benefit, right? And you can engage in any form of um, rectal stimulation, throat stimulation, et cetera, for the vagal nerve <clears throat> and then cycle pain or intense sensation, let's just say, through the nervous system as well. And that's kind of almost like a water pick yeah you know for for your neurology the important thing here is that a lot of people will come to this and they'll have their judgments and they'll mm -hmm. have their preconceived notions about what's right what's wrong what's good what's bad but it's a denial of the essential biological nature of who we are and like what we have and if we actually just relax i mean there's so many constructs homophobia or puritanical ideas about sexuality and what's in the shadow of what you want and what's actually there but if you just lift all that and you just say, all right, we're just, you know, this is a human being. Mm -hmm. These are the options. These are yeah. the buttons. Yeah. Let's look at them with neutrality and then see what, see what we like, see what feels good, see what 
comes up and potentially in one of these experiences like if you look into you know bdsm a lot of trauma release is happening like the firefighters Mm -hmm. there's these potential experiences where it's not just about pure pleasure there's other things that can happen so when you're going to push these buttons be aware of the Mm -hmm. gamut of things you're pushing powerful buttons Mm -hmm. that can be intensely pleasurable but can also bring things up so what does the aftercare look like what does Mm -hmm. the integration look like what is the situation it's like if you need someone to hold you and cry like know that that's okay and know that that's that like there's all of these different ways the set and setting of these Mm -hmm. things in this journey is incredibly important before you just go willy-nilly with shock collars and riding crops and vibrating (laughs) butt plugs you know like like go like go for all of it if you want you know please but like do so with an understanding of the of the scope of kind of what you're of what you're getting into and if you do that it can be an incredibly powerful tool yeah i mean it's almost sort of just like humans a user manual yeah like this is how we this is how our physiology works this is how it connects to our psychology this is how we you know reliably and healthily access peak states for inspiration and information here's how we reliably and safely discharge our micro ptsd and sometimes our macro much like micro just the day-to-day accumulations of stressors and the macro the occasional like adverse life events that you know take take a lot of love and support to work out and how do we connect to each other so you know in a way that is you know pro-social and 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 celebrates everybody's autonomy so it's basically can you have ecstasis without the crave of, Mm. of addiction can you have catharsis without the cringe of like self-indulgent self-help mm. and can you have communitas without the cults of like <laughs> we've got those two online and now we just dissolve into the mind meld and lose our agency and and, and sovereignty yeah the the other thing that i think is i see is there's this kind of in the in the spiritual of course it comes from religion as well religion sex was bad it was kind of put uh you know on the other side of what was morally right and in a lot of religious traditions you find this idea but even in spirituality and i think you alluded to it in this kind of everybody's a queen and everybody's a king and this is undignified and don't there's this place where you really start taking yourself too seriously like yeah okay cool we are we're kings and queens we're free sovereign you know beings and we all care our coronation is inherent got it Mm-hmm. you were also savages back to point a mm-hmm. from minute 30 of this podcast we're fucking savages too we're wild animals and there are wild animal like have some respect and love for that too like without your judgments of where you have to make the animal wear a crown and be all dignified mm. and have regalia all the time let it fucking wiggle around with something in its butt and see what it's <laughs> like you know like let it be an animal and and like there's a beauty in that and i think that to me is that's the spirituality you can fucking grab with both hands and shake and it's not so fragile that it's going to come apart it's like yeah god's in your asshole too and i think it's david data who said that until you can find god in your asshole you haven't found god at all and maybe i'm misattributing that but whatever no, I, I mean at a minimum he said i think until until what did he say until you're willing to take it up the ass, you're, not, you're like a man's not ready to see God. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's more intense, right? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think that actually, you just expressed a, a, a nice way of talking about the bigger theme, which is returning, returning back to these lives and bodies of ours with no longer trying to get someplace else. And 
you know, you, I know you've done tons of Wim Hof, contrast therapy, ice baths, heat and saunas, intermittent fasting, all these things. You're like, you're like, why are these all the rage right now? And as much as anything, it's like we are seeking to broaden, right? To re-expand the range of experience. Mm. This is how humans always used to live. They were super hot. They were super cold. They were really hungry. They feasted till they were full. <laughs> you know, they, they, we did all the things. And now it's like 72 degrees and, and, and 10,000 calories in a refrigerator just across, the, just across the couch from me at all times. Yeah. And the same with our phases of consciousness, right? That, that we, you know, coming out of the, the French Enlightenment again, I mean, not to bang on those dudes, but like there was a lot of sea changes that happened around then. And one of them was we dismissed indigenous and traditional polyphasic consciousness of dreams, trance, possession, a whole bunch of different states of being that were recognized as valid, right? So Freud comes along and it's just all your dreams are just repressions of your unconsciousness, you know, and, and, and we get, you know, Descartes and empiricism, five senses, what's measurable, empirical, that's it. Everything else is figments of your imagination or hokey superstitions. Mm. And the same thing with our range of physiology, the hot and cold, the hungry, the full, all that stuff. And you could make a case that pursuing ecstasis, the peaks, and catharsis, the deep dives, actually reopens the window of our experience into a polyphasic awareness. And that that actually, you know, that's health and arguably that's even a functioning definition of enlightenment. Like rather than saying, oh, enlightened is being, you know, using my inside NPR whisper talk and staring at you for uncomfortably long periods of time, right? It, 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 right? Being like, it's the full range. Like you said, embrace the animal. You actually say, hey, this, this is basically more like a mountain bike fork. Like what you want is you want range to take the big hits, but you also need rebound to come back to center. And you actually also need dampening because otherwise the, the hit I take, I'm going to spring back and get, you know, pogo sticked off my bike. So what I want is range, resilience, and dampening. And that allows me to be a human fully expressed so that I can match my state to the task. Mm. And if I can match my state to the task, if I can be a beast on the mat in, in, a, in a fight, right? And, and a lover to my, my partner and a father or a nurturer to my child and an inspirer and a leader and then potentially and a humble monk on a mountain when it's yeah. time to meet my maker, but never confuse the six, right? The, arguably that's, you know, what you could make a case is 21st century functional enlightenment, the ability to match state to task. Full spectrum, a full spectrum human. Yeah. You know, full spectrum human all the way. And and it's it's uh you tell a story and I want you to get into the story and her name is Yeshi Tsogyo. Yeah. And it it really highlights, you know, so much of sexuality has been repressed, so much is in the shadows. I mean, it's fucking unbelievable to me. I'm in uh, you know, men's group, I'm in other different groups where people share, you know, their vulnerable life histories and mm -hmm. the amount of sexual abuse that people have endured men and women is fucking staggering and participated in experienced i mean all, in all of the different ways it's a deep fundamental part and i think it's of course there's a lot of factors that i'm not going to try to name the primary cause but part of the problem is is that sex in and of itself is in the shadow and what's in the shadow you know for most of us cannot receive the light of awareness where people are really looking at it because we don't want to talk about it we don't talk to our kids about it we don't talk to anybody about it it happens there's shame wrapped up in it and it stays in this hidden toxic stagnant place for so many people where if we just open that up open the blinds open the curtains talked about this really truthfully 
then it could go all the way from this position to this other position of immense power where it's a way to access these divine states access our way to god and actually hold like immense power and and there was a story um of that woman i mentioned yeshid sogyal and i'd love you to tell that story because it's it's almost uh it's mythical in nature but it, it tells the it gives an idea of what it's like to recapture the power of sexuality for a woman yeah and i mean i think part of the reason that there is so much pain and trauma surrounding our collective sexuality is because evolution is amoral like evolution doesn't actually care for our commitments or our consent or our relationships or or any of the things that we psychosocially have built around that profound experience all it cares about is the propagation of the gene pool with as diverse and robust a mix as possible which has created arguably most of our collective suffering most of our wars most of our conflicts have been around right power and control of sexuality and because societies attempt to be moral right as evolution is amoral societies can't become civilized or, or organized unless they find ways to control and damp that down otherwise it's going to ruin the show every time right people are going to run off they're going to shag people they shouldn't they shouldn't they're not going to show up to work they're going to do whatever they're going to do right so societies one of the prerequisites for civilizing a people was to create very very strong taboos around this incredibly potent evolutionary encoded experience well that i mean that's obviously one strategy the other yeah. strategy is to bring the education to the point where you go through the other side it's like the middle yes. zone is the death zone it's yes. the no man's land in pickleball right like where yeah. the balls are just landing at your feet you yeah. know all the time you either got to stay at the baseline or you got to go to the net yes you know and one and way or the other baseline being control the net is being highly illuminated education where you put this first and foremost in forefront because it's on people's minds all the time and let's harness this power for good and make it the thing that we wake up and go to sleep yeah. learning about yeah and then i mean there's abundant indigenous examples i mean most origin stories are sexual in nature which is no surprise right. like like western anthropologists in the 19th century would kind of titillate and say look at these these primitive savages believing in all these things He's like no of course it makes sense like every you look around the world and how does life happen it happens off it happens via fucking so it would make sense that your gods got got together and made this world by doing that yeah and you know the hopi have you know it, at least for certainly back in the day um had very open attitudes toward adolescent sexuality same sex heterosexual all the things the idea was you're going to explore and experiment as hormones kick in and puberty hits and then there was the idea of marriage and, and their entire landscape was totally sexualized it would be like two buttocks mountain and clitoris springs and all these names <laughs> like literally like the world was eroticized and beautiful and even today i mean this is just to point out it's actually america that's whacked because like in, in in the netherlands and throughout much of northern and western europe very open attitudes towards sexuality you know parents will be downstairs and a high school couple will be like oh are you guys going to you know lose your virginity together here are the condoms go upstairs afterwards how was that was that good for you guys like a radical i mean things that would seem bizarre yeah. to us these days yeah. so with so with that said the possibility is that we can kind of do the judo move which is that this amoral evolution that is so powerful and has created so much of our suffering that's really important to acknowledge right and and witness we can actually hotwire it we can take all of those jumper cables and 
put them over to the other side of the project, which is we can use them for healing, growth, and integration. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the story of Yeshe Sogil. She was like a, an eighth century Tibetan princess who was had an arranged marriage and she said, fuck this. And she ran away from home. And she then kind of engaged in all of these trials. She fought and beheaded a tiger. She was like this badass and she becomes initiated into psych, psychosexual, basically the beginnings of Vajrayana tantric Buddhism in, in Tibet. So she comes back this awakened Dakini back to her home province. And along the way is captured and raped by seven bandits. But she's so present that she stays completely open through the whole experience. And afterwards, they all drop to their knees weeping and vow to become her bodyguards for life and to protect her ever ever since. And then she she takes on Milarepa, who's, who's one of the, the um, famous um, Tibetan sages and as as her her consort and she actually awakens him so like we get the stories of a lot of the dudes <laughs> you know mm. um of of those traditions and and in fact there's a case miranda shaw who's a harvard trained um tibetan scholar actually makes the case that actually it was the women tantrikas that were actually the initiators and that it's just the guys got a lot of the press clippings so the capacity for her to do that at that moment of ultimate trauma and vulnerability to actually convert that into a testament of her awareness and her transmission. Um, I think it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful story to have as a touchstone. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those stories like uh, Victor Frankl's, you know, story in Man's Search for Meaning about being in Auschwitz. Like we're not recommending anybody go to Auschwitz to find the importance of meaning mm. and develop logotherapy. Like mm -hmm. this is an atrocity, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, in in our capacity, these hero stories are, are beautiful because in our capacity, it just shows how powerful we actually can be at the bleeding extreme of what's capable. Because if Viktor Frankl and, and the people he saw starving and sharing their pieces of bread, if they can do it, somewhere inside of us is that hero too. And if mm -hmm. Yeshit Sogyal can do it, somewhere in her in in us is her too. Like they live in all of us, and it's this it's a beautiful reminder of like what's what's possible these lim the idea the myth of limitation is mm -hmm. so pervasive and i think it's because we have such a strong self-judge we don't want to believe that we can because then if we don't we're like we're bad no 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 you're fucking beautiful where you are it's just but know that it's possible but don't judge yourself if by some metric by the greatest of all time and be like i fucking suck at basketball i watched lebron james play the other day and i suck and i'm terrible and just beat myself up no like i'm i'm fine I'm good where I'm at. It's beautiful to know that that's what's possible for a human body to hmm. do that, and just like admire that and and hold that hold that with this kind of sense of grace and and love. And that's why I love hearing stories of people who do things that you're like, hmm. wow, that's even possible. Maybe it is. Just fucking maybe it is. You know, and and it's and so I, that's what I that's what I got from that story. And it's hmm. but I think it is really important to say that. This isn't an expectation or an idea that people should do this or should anything for that matter, mm -hmm. but just to just to humbly recognize, you know, our our potential power. Yeah, and I mean, and an interesting thing that just happened, I you know, it just turns out to be true in history, which is that uh, Padmasambhava and and Yeshe Sogyal are the originators of Tonglen, which is this Tibetan Buddhist practice of meditating on the pain and turning it into light. 
So where most meditation is like, let me get to my happy place, let me get to emptiness, let me get, you know, let me, let me entrain on my mantra, whatever it would mm -hmm. be. Tonglen's the exact opposite. It's like, let me deliberately conjure up my suffering, my family's suffering, my community, the whole world, all sentient beings, and let me visualize it as black smoke or tar. Let me bring it into my body on purpose and let me exhale light and love. And you're like, oh shit, we need some of that. Like that is a psychotechnology for right now. Cause like, we're never going to get clean of this. Like we actually need to steer into this skid. We need to, you know, like we need to seed the lotus flowers in the swamp right now. And for Yeshe to have had that initi initial experience with the bandits and then translate that into a contemplative practice that anyone anywhere with, with you know, with skill and support could learn. Then suddenly the world completely transforms from I'm trying to get pure and stay clean to I'm looking to take the next swan dive into the muck because it's the raw material of more love and, and light. And I trust myself to be the alchemist to go yeah. find that proverbial lead and turn it to the proverbial gold. And yeah. I have the power as a divine being to do that with my intention and yeah. in, in my practice. And that's such an empowered state. And uh I encourage people to try that to try that method because when i was reading about it mm -hmm. i was like huh that's interesting because it it goes again in so many different modern spiritual practices it's the opposite yeah. you clean someone's energy you snap it off your fingers you get it out get mm -hmm. the bad out and in ayahuasca yeah get the bad out and it's mm -hmm. it's still reinforcing this nature of other not the bring it in transmute it into love kind of attitude like tatwa masi i am you too i am this darkness i am this muck and i am also the light and i'm also the furnace that can turn this muck into light mm -hmm. you know and this is what i do this is my respiration you yeah. know as the being that i am and it's just a beautiful way to look at it that again collapses the myth of separation where all of this you know toxicity ultimately comes from and you can become that agent that's working in that in that centrifuge in the middle you know that's really like just transforming spinning and cycling everything out yeah and i mean to me that's the that's the only place i feel is trustworthy is like it's all of it all the time there's you know no one gets out of here alive right and 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 that balance of inspiration healing and connection is how we do this thing and we're forever you know losing our faith and then getting up to the mountain and remembering it and then coming down and mending and then checking with each other and how do we hold this and how do we do this and we're just forever cycling like that is the arc of our life it's how we do this human thing and it's just so there's no getting off the hook there's no high ground to get to and claim and never come down from there's no despair that we can't come back from it's 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 a flywheel of become mm. of perpetual becoming and once we find ourselves at the center of that, that that's the, that's, that's the eye of the cyclone. That's where there's stillness is, is in the embrace of all of it without attachment to any of it. You could not have named the next section in a more provocative way, ethical cult building. Because when people think of cults, they think of all of the ways that it's gone wrong, abuses of power, people being stripped of their sovereignty, people being isolated from their families, all of the things that we've seen from so many of the cults mm -hmm. that have existed. But there's an intrinsic draw to actually the root of where cult comes from, which is the word cultus, which means to worship. And we're all drawn to worship. Which is the which is the philosopher that said we all worship? 
You talked about him. Oh, that was David Foster. David Foster Wallace. Oh, he's a writer. In, yeah. in his This Is Water commencement address that I think most people have seen or heard of. And he says, everybody worships. The only question is what? And you better be really careful whether it's money or fame or vanity or, or the divine. He said, you better be careful what you worship because anything other than the divine is going to eat you alive. So to paraphrase, like to combine that with the Latin, like everybody cultuses, everybody cults, right? Mm. The only question is what kind? And, you know, again, coming out of my academic background, studying comparative religion and that sort of thing was that, you know, there's actually three different types of cults. And we always just conflate our contemporary usage with like Nexium and Heaven's Gate and, and, and the Mansons. But, or Scientology or yeah, whatever, you know? Exactly. It's an unqualified pejorative of losing your center trying to find yourself. Right. And in reality is that traditional mystery cults, there was the cult of Dionysus, the cult of Kali, the, the cult of Christ, for that matter, before it became Rome's state-sanctioned religion. And, you know, Frank Zappa said, he playfully said, the only difference between a religion and a cult is the amount of real estate. They own. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there was truth to that, which is that a, a traditional cult in the form of mystery cults was simply a community of practice gathered around a shared initiatory experience. Right. Right. And so those traditional cults it was the subjugation of yourself right you had to show up to become a part of it but it was subjugation of self to a lineage so even if there was a priest or a hierophant like a minister of the sacred in that situation they were one in a long line and they had elders they had people they reported to living or dead right mm -hmm. and there was a tradition that bounded it and grounded it so that's the eleusinian mysteries they perceived they persisted for two thousand years without going off the rails which is staggering yeah. Right across empires, they still kept going. It was that vibrant and alive, and self-authenticating. But then, in the twentieth century, with the you know the shrinking of the world and the merging of East and West, and a number of Dharma teachers, right from from India, from Tibet, from from all over the East in particular, came, and then we started getting this breaking of the lineages, and a number of charismatic, powerful teachers started saying, "Hey, I'm a clean slate. I'm a new covenant. There's no one behind me." Right, I'm I'm the fresh real deal. Which is again back to that mania that we warned about. I am yeah. special. I am more special than hundred percent. And you know, and there was this kind of awkward borrowing of Eastern monastic traditions, which were invented, you know, centuries ago, thousands of miles away from rational twenty first century Westerners with their senses of boundaries and consent and agency. And you ended up with the submission of the self to another higher self, the, the self proclaimed guru, with no checks and balances. So we ended up with both Eastern teachers coming over to the West and getting bent. They didn't quite understand outside of monastic traditions, sex, money, power, substances, whatever. And you also had Westerners like Adi Da and others who lit up quite often with the aid of sex, drugs, rock and roll and other things, claimed many of the Eastern traditions, I'll change my name to something fancy with a Zen or, or, or a Sanskrit honorific in front of it, will recreate many of those patterns like satsang, like sitting in the presence of an awakened master or whatever it would be. And, you know, Westerners coming out of the Eisenhower 50s were just desperate for romance and meaning. Hmm. And like Edward Said, the... the um, the Columbia scholar called it Orientalism. Like he termed that as a classification, which was the sort of excessive romanticization of all things Eastern by the West, right? Yeah. And so that was just this kind of toxic stew which created culty cults, right? And, and you, people were losing their agency. So you've got, okay, traditional cults, pretty actually healthy and ubiquitous and well-grounded by lineage. 
culty cults totally unmoored and the subjugation of the self to another fallible human, even if they were claiming infallibility. So the question is if, as we're exploring meaning 3.0, right? And we're aware of who we are and how we perceive ourselves and what we value in the 21st century, how do we create an ethical cult whereby you're not looking to subjugate the self to anybody. You're in fact looking to increase sovereignty and figure out how to harness collective intelligence. Yeah. And can we do both? Can we merge together skillfully by choice to do the things that we can only do together to presence higher wisdom, higher capacity, higher creativity, and at the same time, keep our centers? Yeah. And you know, one of the other things that I think it's important to mention is you look at some of these cults like the sannyasins, you know, Osho. <laughs> And oftentimes they start with some brilliance. They start with some real magic, the practices, the ideas, and then the power of the one, you know, being in this position of supreme as the supreme being, it starts to corrupt the whole organization. Even the Oneida cult, you know, when I did some research mm -hmm. into that, some of the, it seemed to start as kind of a, a with some noble ideas and some mm -hmm. interesting practices of semen retention and, mm -hmm. um, you know, this a healthy level of collectivism and what mm -hmm. they were doing. Yeah, yeah. But then ultimately he started fucking all the teens, you know, like and fucking everybody. And he just made that rule and he went unchecked and the whole thing went unglued. And over and over again, it's these largely sexual abuses of power by largely men who then realize that they're unchecked and then play out their you know primal urges on a variety of different people and that's been what we get associated <laughs> with cult is just all the ways that it's gone bad but the ways that it goes right very little press but nonetheless mm -hmm. that pejorative is thrown around mm -hmm. you know so that's kind of one point but that pejorative is thrown around all the all the time when someone really believes in something when someone really mm -hmm. shows up you know crossfit has been called a cult mm -hmm. soul you know, cycle soul cycle yeah. is a cult we were yeah. fucking on it you know people mm -hmm. who work out in the on it gym that's been thrown at them and what are people doing i don't we're, they're just going there to work out but they love it they love that we're going back to a, again a lineage that goes back from 12th century persia with maces mm. and clubs and this school of schools of training that are emerging in the sense of community and it makes them feel something they feel something and then all of a sudden people from the outside ah you're feeling something that's a cult mm -hmm. you know yeah and because they're so that collective story is so fear-based of if you really believe in something someone's gonna fuck you literally or yeah or you know figuratively yeah and they're not wrong right i mean the, the realities are is that the the temptation to grab the one ring right and to say are you not entertained right <laughs> right i am a golden god right like yeah. that is unless there's checks and balances people will often go there and Something else that I find fascinating about like cult studies, like culty cult studies, um, is that the most, like most of the books about it aren't that interesting because they're, they're quite crypto puritanical and moralistic about what's actually been going on, right? And so typically there's like the Nexiums and the Heaven's Gates where like both those dudes, like Keith Ranieri and uh, Marshall Appellate were clearly posers. They weren't the real deal. Yep. They were they were using psychosocial weaponized psychosocial dynamics to control. They were little men, basically, right? Yeah. But you take someone like Osho, you take someone like Adi Da, you take someone like Chogyam Trungpa. They were, I think, unquestionably transmitting their asses off. They lit people up. 
And you can still find their lineages today. Like if you look at who, you know, you, people who studied with those folks are, are awake and transmitting in ways that most other people are not. So you're like, okay, so how did those guys get bent? Because if you look at the early careers, they are, they are preternaturally gifted and they are absolutely bringing through some juju. Mm. And then the question is like, well, so what about those ones who were authentically transmitting at some point? And then it goes dark at the end. And my sense is, is that it's, it's a little bit, you, you could kind of call it the Lucifer principle, right? Which is, which is, you know, dare thee to look upon me and spot the imperfection, right? Because I am so luminous that yeah. you were dazzled. And all you can do is drop to your knees or want to be close to it. And the moment that a teacher gets high on their own supply, right? And actually starts believing their claim of infallibility, right? You can be 99% translucent, just radiant light being, but 1% shadow still. But the moment you deny your humanity, right? It now comes back and it metastasizes. And you go from almost a bodhisattva to a Sith Lord. <laughs> in a heartbeat because now <laughs> yeah. because now that metastasization is happening on kundalini overdrive they're doing whatever their practices are that have accelerated and ramped up their awareness and output and now it turns into pathology and it takes everybody down with them versus the opposite which would be the sort of the the christic play which is my my, my humanity is where I stake my claim and it is at the intersection of my divinity and my mortality and I embrace my, I mean, that's what is so powerful about the Nazarene archetype and that story, right? Is that he suffers, he's afraid, he's betrayed, he's alone, he does it anyway, you know? And I think that that's one of the most powerful scenes in Cool Hand Luke, that classic old Paul Newman film where he, mm. I mean, like over Christic archetype through that, like the final picture has a cross going straight through his, you know, through his mm. photo and things. And he's, you know, they're in the prison. They, he defeats the, the boss and he gets put in the box and his, all of his guys in the prison are like, you're the man, you're the man. And, the, and, and he's like, it's on his way out before he gets shot and finally killed. And his, his, his buddy is like, oh no, you beat the boss. You know, you, you're, 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 you're immortal effectively. And he's like, no, 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 no boss broke me mm. like all that time in the box you know getting in isolation solitary like he broke me make no fucking mistake yeah you know and and to me that is a infinitely more stable and grounded perspective versus the taking of the claim because i mean it's robert johnson the Jungian psychologist has that beautiful concept of the golden shadow and if, if anybody's familiar with that, Marianne Williamson quote, it often gets like attributed to Nelson Mandela, but like, who are you to not think you're all that, right? Yeah, it's yeah, your yeah. light. It's, 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 that. Not your, it's not your darkness that scares you, it's your power. Yeah, and Robert Johnson talks about that as the golden shadow, which is effectively, we give away our gold. We say, I couldn't be that compassionate, that wise, that vital, that alive, whatever, but they can, right? So I give away that which is mine, but I can't fully take claim over. And the ethical leader is, always giving that power back yes always 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 and i think that was one thing I, I you know a great saying that i heard where um the uh the teacher will you know will teach you how to teach you how to heal yourself um the master no the, no, the, the teacher the teacher will heal you mm. the master will show you how to heal yourself but the mystic will remind you that you're already healed mm. You know, and it's like that's in that role. When you get to that role, you have to say impeccably and with truth, like, we are no different. Mm -hmm. Like, you are me too. 
like we are we are the same and, and it's that giving that giving that sovereignty constantly giving it and as much as it's reflected back to you mm-hmm. you have to equally give that back if you're going to be ethically in the, in this position yep. where you're where you're looked at where you put on a pedestal the higher someone puts you the higher you got to bring everybody yep. else with you so you maintain the level of you know equality the round table the proverbial round table where everybody's on your table and if they're lifting you up lift them up to your same level always yeah 100 percent. and i think that that is that is i think it's a structural feature of, of tribal primates so it's not one that we can say oh we know better so we're not gonna it's like no 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 this is that this is actually a root condition of ecstatic cathartic communities so instead it's you know like um so you have to actually ritualize the giving back of the gold right right it can't be enough to know it or think it it'll just glom on to you anyway and you know jerry garcia the found you know the founding guitarist of the grateful dead arguably i mean you know hundreds of thousands of people on you know sando's finest or orange sunshine lsd and he would bring through between the american songbook that he chose from like a broken openness and redemption and the quicksilver starlight that he would bring through in his guitar right he showed up as a christic figure to that community Mm. and he constantly rejected it and there's even line you know like one of their most famous tunes and he says if i knew the way i would take you home you know and there's another one of like his like the storyteller makes no choice soon you will not hear his voice his job is to shed light and not to master Mm. and so you know and it still killed him you know, like he refused it and everybody still, because it was so potent, depended on him. And he just, he sabotaged himself mm. under that. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, <clears throat> and also that in that place, the the lineage, the mentors that he needed, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the lineage of those mentors of like, here's what you do and here's how you do it when this is showered upon you in these ways. These are the practices that you need to do we don't have that because what we've seen is people crushed like mm-hmm. in that case or and then sabotaging to get out of a situation that seems inescapable or inflated which mm-hmm. ultimately causes their demise we see a lot of unhappy endings to this story but we don't see the ones that that really actually carried it though and there are some examples i mean i think ramdas is a great example of someone who carried the light and always pushed that back to everybody to the end Mm-hmm. you know and nobody calls followers of ramdas they don't even use the word cult right which is very interesting mm-hmm. you know but he did such a good job of continuing continuing to give back the gold always 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 and his documentary is you know becoming nobody right it was this idea mm-hmm. of intentionally intentionally embodying and using language to be like no 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 i'm i'm nobody and everybody i'm in the circle in that you know confluence of those two different ideas and uh and that's that's absolutely essential no matter who we are so all of those opportunities and what i've found personally is every time i get an opportunity to shine light on my shadow it's the best thing i can do because you know in my own small way people will put me on a pedestal but i know that the moment i get some shit and i'm going through some shit i'm like perfect like this is great and i can share this and it's part of my own alchemy because then it has value the pain mm-hmm. that I've gone through, but it's also this, I, f- I feel collectively everybody take a deep breath, like, <sighs> okay, cool, we're safe. You know, mm-hmm. you're, not, you're not following this. And it's, it's something that's really important. It has to be 
habitualized into a practice and it can happen in every different scale it could be you amongst your five friends it could be you amongst your five hundred thousand followers it doesn't matter but the same principles hold it's this humbling yourself to your humanity and really like honestly sharing that and and putting yourself at the same level of everybody else yeah absolutely and these days i mean this is just the nature of whatever (laughs) goofy popular culture but there's also become the weaponization of performative vulnerability yes true right so like oh friends and neighbors i've just come back from my latest aya retreat and i thought i was all together in pieces but now i realize that you stay tuned you know you like details at 11 slash at my next course and and that notion of that's a ploy it's a pattern interrupt ploy in social media now because everyone wants to rubberneck the vulnerability thing Mm. and and the question there is you know i don't think actually that simply indefinitely more vulnerability is better even though that might be what people are clamoring for because there's some it almost feels like there's a sort of a you know a two by two of access to ultimate truth and vulnerability and how do you show up in each of those four boxes right because if you think of like amy winehouse or michael jackson like you know think of any creative artist that burned bright and then flamed out or got crushed right why it's because they are sourcing they're channeling something yeah. that the rest of us in the day-to-day don't have reliable access to. And, and actually, people are amazingly good at spotting that and, and, and then flocking to it. Sure. And, and then it overburdens the person. You realize, oh, if I'm just, if I have low access to ultimate truth, but high vulnerability, right? Then I'm a basket case. I'm just a broken person <laughs> who's not doing well, right. managing right. the day-to-day. If I have low vulnerability and low access to universal truth, I'm just an asshole, yeah. right? But if I have access to, if I have high access to universal truth, but excess vulnerability, I'm basically the a cosmic jester. Like I've been touched, you know. Like I've seen both sides of everything. I've a little kind of overclocked my processor, and everything's mm-hmm. kind of the cosmic joke. And 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 ultimately, if I've had too much access to universal truth, but no vulnerability, then I'm kind of I'm a robot or I'm a Sith. Yeah. Right. So the question is, is how do we actually live in the middle, you know, as a homegrown human? Like that, that puts you right there on the cross of absolute truth and vulnerability, vulnerability being the mortal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this, this, that's the Kairos Kronos. So can we actually stay there in the center? Because actually, I mean, I, we had this experience a couple of years ago where, you know, at a training, basically people were clamoring for like, share more of your humanity, share more. And it's like, look, let's, let's just take that all the way to its conclusion. I just stand up here and we just weep at each other with the eyes of Christ. <laughs> now we can do that and it yeah. can be exquisite and it can be fucking like the most profound experience of our shared lives. And on the other hand, we're not going to get to any of the content, you know, and right. we actually have some training we could also do. And so that's what really made me think about it. It's like, on the one hand, we, we fetishize vulnerability these days, you know, thank you very much. Well, as a, as a counter reaction to the lack of vulnerability, exactly. you know, so many leaders showing this impeccable front of, I've never done anything wrong. And, uh, maybe I was past a marijuana joint, but I didn't inhale. Mm-hmm. What the fuck, man? Just like, it's all of this, it's all of this, you know, hiding our, the truth of what we are and finding it out and finding it out. So we're so desperate for the other thing that the pendulum swings the other way. And yes then it can get into fetishization and then it can get into creating this or writing a story or writing mm-hmm. your most vulnerable story that you shared one time mm-hmm. and bringing it out and trotting it out in every speech you give yeah. you know as a as a strategy to gain trust which is 
the opposite of what the point of it is, which is the authentic saying like, ultimately it is that Sanskrit, tatva masi, I am you too. Mm-hmm. Like there is whatever, you. it's different, different lives, but we're all in this human experience in the same way. Yeah, and I think one of the most helpful frames I've heard on this comes from uh, a Harvard theorist named Zach Stein, who's a dear friend and super inspirational thinker. And he wrote a book called Education in a Time Between Worlds. And his his point was that teacherly authority is situational and context dependent, right? So the idea is like the like the analogy that occurs to me is 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 like, you know, as somebody with some form of insight that you feel compelled to share and that other people appear to find useful, right? You're like, okay, so I'm at that point on the ridgeline, right, of the mountain. And I can share with you what I learned climbing to here. Right. And, you know, like in climbing, there's something called root beta. Like there's a first ascent, the person just winged it and pulled it off. And then they turn around and they like write up, here's the hard part, here's where to get water, here's where you need to fix an anchor, here's need. And then mm-hmm. basically, now you can have two outcomes. You can either have somebody who um, could never have done that by themselves, but with your guidebook can get there safely, mm. or someone who's as good or better an athlete than you, but with your guidebook can get there with more gas in the tank and daylight, and therefore they can then take the lead and you can follow them. Mm. And so that sense of like, we are only where we are, and let's abandon either, either you know, back to the culty cults, declarations of infallibility or, a, or final attainment, and simply say, I'm a human making my way up this hill. Mm. This is where I got to so far, mm. right? And, and that becomes the truth claim and the validity claim that others can then calibrate off. Yeah. Like, do I want to go up that same route or even on that same mountain? Do they seem like they're in, you know, are they happy and, 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 and stoked? And they seem like that seems like a nice place to go to. And then it also provides the flexibility for the trade-offs and the changes of roles once some, once we're standing beside each other. Yeah. There's also a, there's a tendency also because people have this idea of humility and the idea of humility is to almost, it's to obviously um, share those things that, you know, that are vulnerable and, and, and recognize that. But there's also a part of humility that can dampen your light and actually be manipulative lying about your gold <laughs> and saying like, Oh yeah, you know, I'm I'm I, I I don't know what I'm doing and blah 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 and, mm-hmm. and it's but that's also a lie too. And mm-hmm. that's a lie to make people more comfortable, you know, one of the two fears that you have as in this role, can I keep this going? <laughs> and, you know, what are my neighbors going to think? Well, yeah. if you're like, well, fuck, I'm not doing any it mitigates both of those fears if you deny what you're actually what you've actually experienced and where you actually are and people think that's humility, but it's also just another form of manipulation. You know, and I think true humility is just speaking the truth, like dropping your shoulders and expressing it. All right, this is this is it. This is the good shit. This is the gnarly shit. This is uh this is what it is. And some people are going to attack you for both. Some people are going to attack you for the mistakes you made, the gnarly shit you went through, the the things you've done. You know that you, without awareness or even with awareness that were bad that hurt people. And they'll criticize you for that. Some people will attack you for what you've accomplished and lob throw throw arrows at you to be truly humble is to be willing to accept both of those things and just surrender to this is what is yeah yeah i mean it seems like again like the notion of you know back to our kind of trimal primate programming and how we're wired to seek the silverback the alpha right and that when somebody does show up and just you know statistically 
dem, you know, demographically, there are going to be fewer people at the higher stages of development. So it's rare and it has, and especially in the past, like if somebody fully switched on as an awake aware human, that was often the beginning of a religion or something, right? There was the, the, those avatars were so or few. Or Yeah, or, or snuffed out early, right? Yeah. Um, and there's, there's, there seems like there's sort of four levels of like interoceptive response, so like pre-emotion, pre-cognition. Yeah. And it's basically, you know, if you are positively but passively attracted to that. So someone someone is a, is a let's whatever we'll call them an avatar right there there's somebody who is has actively powered up in a noticeable demonstrable way positive positive or passive positive is i want to follow them then if they really light me up i get such a strong feeling out of them and i probably have that i want to merge with them i want union with them and i probably only ever experienced that in sexual romantic physical attraction so i often cross the wires between eros like erotic love and agape like sort of spiritual love mm. so i want to fuck them <laughs> right and that's where that that is the primary driver that undoes so many communities yep. right then on the below the ledger is like, what if it's negative? What if it's not positive at all? It might've started positive or it might've just never been positive. And I'm positive. I mean, I'm negative passive, right? So I'm afraid of them. So I fear them. Like, what is that? That's a reality distortion field. My friends and family are telling me, don't go into those deep waters, come back to Snug Harbor, right? Any of that, mm -hmm. I'm afraid. And I run, even if they might've been the key to my transformation. And then if there's negative active, which and is- that's like, flea. Yeah, that's that's the flea. And then the negative active is like, actually, no, I got to fight them. We have to eradicate them. We have to crucify them or cancel them because their very existence is a threat to our being. And so, you know, fear, fight, follow, fuck are pretty much the four core drivers of how humans have responded in these situations through the ages. And all of them end up in the ditch. So at the center is the fifth option, which would be feel it, feel it. And can somebody simply have passed the torch for you to kindle yours? And then we all bask in the shared flame. And that's what we were talking about. Why that's so tricky is the golden shadow dynamics, the, the family dynamic shit of, I want to have a mommy or a daddy. I want to abdicate my responsibility, whatever. Yeah. But to create ethical cults, right? We really have to, I don't know what, pioneer it, develop it, model it, reflect it, celebrate it. <laughs> but everybody just taking the turns of, of, of booting each other up. And I think that's why uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said the next Buddha will be a Sangha, yeah. will, be a, will be a community. It'll be a like, kind of universal uprising of Buddha consciousness. The next Christ, the next coming of Christ is not a Christ, mm -hmm. it's Christ consciousness in mass, you know, yeah. or at least in many in a community, a self-reinforcing community, whatever, but it's going to come collectively, not individually. And I think even, you know, Ramdas, you know, was said that the age of the guru is over and his guru mm -hmm. brought him, you know, showed him the light to where he was, but he ultimately recognized that that, that construct had passed, you know, like yeah. it's, and, it's and not, it's it, not the way forward from here. That is such a, that is such a, an interesting dynamic, right? Because I've been wondering about this, particularly with activism lately. Right, because a lot of activism, whether it's Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter, right, that these movements that have come up in the last decade, let's say, right, are all generally along those lines, right? That we're not looking to follow a leader, right? We're looking to do something decentralized, something community oriented, et cetera, right? And on the one hand, that's a beautiful intention, right? And matches everything you've just been saying. And on the other hand, it's actually really tricky. Yeah. Because 
particularly if you look at like whether it's Gandhi, Mandela, King, the kind of usual suspects of people who actually led in a truly transformative way and took what could have been bloody social strife and, and leveled it up to a thing that actually sent shockwaves around the world. They were harnessing, you know, soul force or what Gandhi called satyagraha, like truth in like truth power. Mm -hmm. And that's actually really rare. You know, yeah. everybody from the Black Panthers to Marcus Garvey was like, fuck this, let's arm up and burn it all down. And King was saying, hey, something else. Same with Gandhi. Let's, you know, let's stick it to the Brits or, or Mandela and let's tear down the rugby stadium of the Springboks. And each of them leveled it up. So I, we f I feel like we're in this kind of paradoxical transition space right now. Where on right. the one hand, we still need the exemplars. We still need somebody to remind us of the better angels of our nature. Sure. And on the other hand, it's really critical we build collective capacity to act. If you took a theme from everything we've talked about, it's the balance in between the extremes. Mm -hmm. Whereas on either extreme, it gets all fucked up. Yep. But somewhere there's a sweet spot in the middle. Yep. You know, and it's it's literally you could reduce every one of our concepts to that. Mm -hmm. Like too much of this, bad, too little of this, not so good. Right in the middle, sweet spot. All the way left, not so good. All the way right, not so good. Somewhere in the middle, sweet spot. Yeah. You know, right. It's finding that equanimity, finding that balance in in the middle of all of these different things, which is, you know, we're not going to get it right all the time. And collectively, mm -hmm. when things go too far the other way, naturally the pendulum swings too far the other way. But always the the way is the middle way, finding that middle way, wherever that is. Yeah. And sometimes the balance is in the extreme. Sometimes it's like, well, it's not exactly uh, not extreme to stack a bunch of these different transcendent, you know, methodologies, which you actually did an experiment on, is allowing people, giving people, you actually put it in your book, all of these different ways that you can combine these different methodologies from respiration, embodiment, music, sacrament, sex, put these together. And some of these may be pretty radical, mm -hmm. you know, but you have to then balance that out with, all right, how much time are you spending in nature, hanging out with your buddies, like sitting around a campfire, mm -hmm. resting, journaling, sleeping, you know, going to soccer practice, you know, doing like the normal, <laughs> like all of that is necessary. So it's not just balanced by staying in a really narrow band of finding it perfectly. It's stretching your bounds, finding what's in different places and then coming back to a truer center. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. All right, so ultimately where we're, where we're, trying to get to is we're trying to get to the omega point <laughs> like this is the goal and this is the goal of of what any of these ethical cults would be trying to create what this what these movements would be trying to create and the idea is to get to this place that you've you've named the omega point and so describe like what the omega point means to you we've uh, hinted at it a mm -hmm. bit yeah and it's actually it's uh the jesuit scholar uh Thieler de Chardin's concept and he he was actually drummed out of europe drummed out of france by the by the church he was shipped off to china and and all of his books were banned until after he died mm. but he was a radical thinker he was also a paleontologist so he kind of had this east-west synthesis of science and faith and all these things and um he talked about i mean very much Thich Nhat han right the, the the idea that at the end of time the body of christ is all of us right? That the second coming is the umpteenth coming. And that the experience of Christogenesis is that, is that everyone coming and realizing effectively an interconnectedness, right? That as, once it happens, he kind of describes it almost as a, as a crystallization point and that that changes 
time, space, and reality. And as we talked about in the beginning, he's like, he's like, and it's a toss up. Like this is not for sure. Mm-hmm. And every, and it's not just going to be kumbaya to the finish line, right? Planetary capacity, those drawn to, to, to love and light and those drawn to fear and control. And like what happens, it's not certain, but that it's going to play out is the possibility right that we're that we're living towards and to me like take or leave it you know as far as like am i a card carrying you know t laudian not necessarily but as far as a an, an existing story to pull off the shelf and say well hey how does this one live for us how does this fit because you know and i mentioned it at the end of the book too is like one of the most weird and vulnerable places in writing this whole book was actually to describe my wrestling with my faith mm. through my life yeah right and that sense of like wait I studied everything non-European, non-Western for, for years and then came back to the sense of like, holy shit, like the idiom, the Jesus meme, not necessarily a specific version of his story, whether he was a man, whether he was God, whether he was a dude who woke up, whether he was a historical fiction, whether he was a mashup of Near Eastern solar and mystery cults, like the Jesus meme, all of it, right, is one of the deepest stories in the Western tradition, and then also fascinatingly, um, shows up in the East as well. So you've got like in China, this Chongzi, which is is joy bathing, the idea that you wash out your sorrow with bliss, right? The the notion of kintsugi and and, and wabi sabi, yoga, right? In, in in Japan, the idea of you know the the brokenness of the vessel is to be accentuated because that's the that's the uniqueness that makes it even more beautiful. You know, Leonard Cohen's a Zen Jew, and he writes that poem anthem of ring the bells that still can ring, there's a crack in everything. You know, Pema Chodron, a Tibetan Buddhist, is talking about, hey, to, to be alive is to die again and again, is to be continually <clears throat> thrown out of the nest. So you're like, well, wait a second. Yes, so like, like, can we decouple the archetype of practicing resurrection, right? The Christic ideal. Can we decouple it from... 2000 years of organized Christianity, <laughs> just set that fucker on the shelf. <laughs> it's super problematic, right? Yep. And on the other hand, go, hey, if we were looking for a mythology that could walk us all home these days, right? If we were looking for a story that could give us hope and redemption in struggle and uncertainty and the prospect of being reborn, then that archetype seems super relevant and super powerful for a civilization in crisis so that's where i feel like the telage notion of the omegans like yeah like i said like ditch the old branding <laughs> like what does it mean for us to consider ourselves omegans what is even omeganism right if we're going to mm-hmm. make it an ism and is it hey we're all walking each other home yeah and hey we're going to settle into and fully embrace our deepest humanity as twice born humans who are now done seeking escaping and evading and we're showing up fully with helping hands for ourselves and each other. That to me seems like that's a story I could get behind. No doubt. Uh, there's a quote. There's a quote that you that you wrote in the book. You said, "If we've spent even a second in eternity, it's as good as forever. There's no splitting infinity." And what you're talking about is escaping Chronos, chronological mm-hmm. time, and going into Kairos, the deep now, that mm-hmm. present state, the transcendent state. What we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. you know, with all of the different methods. And when we get to that state, that is, that's even if we just touch it, that's a, it's a glimpse of a wayfinder in a way towards that Omegan 
Omegan consciousness, mm-hmm. right? Like that allows us to see. And, and something I put together, so one of my spiritual mentors, Ted Decker, he always quotes St. Paul who said, love keeps no record of wrong. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah, that's unconditional love, right? It's not only forgiving them, but it's you don't even need to forgive them because you've already forgiven them. They're pre-forgiven because you don't even keep score. That lash comes and immediately it's transmuted because you don't even see that. You, you see it the other way. And I always thought of it that way. But it's it's so impossible to actually have that as a human being on the human level. So in a way, it had me reaching towards a state of bypassing my mind with my mind Mm -hmm. which is not really possible but then when you were talking about kairos and i really realized that the omega point being and you talk about this as well it's the omega point allows us to be in a state where we hold no record of wrong because it's the we that changed it's the i that changes i hold no record of wrong in the omega point you've changed the identity of i to everything so how could there be wrong as this universal deep now unicity consciousness and that's what it allows and so basically what saint paul was saying is love is the unicity and in the unicity there is no record of wrong because it contains the wrong in the unicity and so you can't separate it out and i was like fuck i get it so the place where i've held no record of wrong in the middle of a nitrous oxide you know balloon you know did the deep inhale that moment or in a 5meo journey i mean that feels like i said it's more colored with the fabric of love and god but same idea it's the it's the emptiness and the dissolution of the self that can't help but hold a record of wrong yeah it's so much i mean so profoundly deeply and like that can't be really english right that has to be experienced and and there's a sense of like if we are lucky enough or or blessed enough to find ourselves in that deep now, which feels, you know, which it is joyful, blissful, profoundly complete, then you're like, okay, so I'm here now experiencing this slice of forever. There's nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to be. Yeehaw, amen. Therefore, every single step, everything, every single slam, bam, scrape and wound that got me here along the way was perfect. Everything is redeemed in the unfolding. Mm. So like, thank you, my distant and slightly alcoholic father. Thank you, my domineering and judgmental mother. Thank you, my fourth grade teacher that made me feel dumber Mm. than a bag of rocks and my high school girlfriend that broke my heart. Every single one of you, every single one of those wounds that I've been carrying as my pain and my story is evaporated in the perfectibility of the destination. And, and that's what I think that, you know, St. Paul is really talking about there, like cosmic love keeps yeah. no record of wrong because, and this, this is an experience that I wouldn't have thought of having it just happen, but one evening um, in a happily, but surprisingly mo- modestly altered state, um, I found myself kicking into fractal expansion, right? Mm-hmm. And and I was like, oh shit, gotta stay ahead of this, right? Otherwise I'm, <laughs> I'm, otherwise I'm gonna be in the back seat, right? So in my mind's eye, boo, 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 I'm like actually refolding all of infinite reality back in. And then suddenly I'm like holding all of reality between my thumb and my forefinger. And I'm sitting cross-legged in the void of time and space. And I'm like, oh shit, right? And I was like, there's only two ways out of this, right? I either take the claim, I either become Lord of time and space or I'm lost in the 
Chapel Perilous for infinity. And I was like, and I, I was like, and I was like, I don't want either of those outcomes actually. And then this beautiful woman's voice comes in, or female voice, and says, "If this moment was all there is, would it be enough?" And I was like, "Holy shit!" Like I had actually just seen all of reality folded into this moment, so I knew the answer. It was like, "Yes, this has to be." Mm. But I could instantly see. I was like, "Oh." we're all presented with this choice every moment, mm -hmm. right? And most of us look at it and turn up our noses and go, nah, no, not this one. I'm gonna go back into 3D, seeking, searching for all of it, for the everything. Even though here it was presented to me right there on a platter. And then all that's gonna happen is I'm gonna go pinballing around, comma, until enough pain or enough grace brings me back to this moment again. And it's the same question with the same answer. And and that, the cost of that, the cost of being able to not just say yes, because we've gamed the system, but to, to be a yes, is to die to that moment. Mm -hmm. And that, that's what it means with like the practice of resurrection. Because then you're like, okay, so then the world is illuminated and enchanted because all possibilities are available if we can only feel into their unfolding. And then recognize from that moment that, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be the moment that feels like that because you've found your way there through happenstance and whatever, and, and it's through whatever practice you're in. But I think the masters that I've seen and, and that I've been in the presence of really, one stands out more than the others. And it was time I spent with Don Miguel Ruiz. Mm. And what I noticed with him was that, you know, every single time he hugged, when he hugged me, I was a stranger. I was going to his week long, mm -hmm. you know, retreat in, in Mexico. And it was like, he, he was hugging like a long lost friend that he was so excited to, to meet for the first time. And mm. when he gazed at a sunset, it was like, wow, this is incredible. Like just the awe, you could feel the sense of awe and appreciation in that. And I'm sure he doesn't always live every moment like that, but when he was sipping a glass of wine or giving a hug or mm -hmm. looking at the sunset, he was able to find his way back to that moment where mm -hmm. that moment was so perfect that if all he ever had was mm -hmm. that moment, it would yeah. be enough and it redeemed all of the pain and challenge and struggle that he's experienced because that moment was so beautiful that it was worth taking a body and it was worth being here. And it was like, yeah, I'm here for this because it's so, it's so beautiful. And I think the the idea is to just, what I want for myself is to get closer to the place where I can get more of those moments. Because mm -hmm. I've had those moments. I've had them skiing. Mm -hmm. I've had them on medicine. I've had them in practice. I've had them in all different ways. I've had them making love. I've had them. But how, but how, do, you, how do you do that in a way that it's, it's closer, the veil is thinner, and mm -hmm. you can cross over to that state more readily without having to drop into deep ceremony or mm -hmm. spend an hour breathing or do these different things. Mm -hmm. How can you just shorten the distance so that it's an easily traversable place and ultimately get to the place where it's a choice, you know, where you know that you can choose that. You can choose to open to that level. That's, you know, then you're right there. You're right there in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. you know? And maybe there's a mythical place where you're no longer even choosing. You're just there permanently. I don't know if such a place <laughs> exists in human existence, but at least at the very least, you know, knowing that there is, I've seen somebody and, and that's important. It's important to see somebody mm -hmm. 
because then you know it's possible you know it's mm -hmm. like someone's seeing it's a classic someone sees the double backflip and they're like oh shit i don't didn't know you could do that on a motorcycle mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden everybody can do it you know like seeing people who've or at least one person who's been able to do that as i watched him over a week it's like okay it's mm -hmm. fucking possible and i want to get closer i want to just shorten that gap where that's a little you know a well-traveled easy bridge to to cross over mm -hmm. and uh and that's uh i think that's a worthy a worthy ambition yeah and and i think <clears throat> this is kind of bringing it full circle back to like hey here's this open source toolkit these things work they mm -hmm. let us discharge trauma seek insight and inspiration and connect to each other um and the question now is how to apply it skillfully and and the notion of like hedonic calendaring is is a really important tool because you know typically people binge purge it's too much mm -hmm. or not yeah, enough yeah. right but if you structure it so that you have your daily foundational practices they're just overall good for you and you can't really fuck them up or do too much of them so yoga breath work meditation clean diet movement that kind of stuff your weekly sabbath practice which is a dipping into those to reset and remember right but not necessarily a blowout that requires days to recover from but like yep. half a day one day a month one weekend a season one week a year that are explicitly those dedicated things then it's like a potter's wheel you know where they have those big heavy stone wheels and you mm. kick them and it takes a shit pile of effort to get that first movement right which is a big medicine journey or going to burning man or something mm. right but most people just then let it just stall out yeah that's the, right? the failure of the integration that's a great yeah. way to describe the integration versus the just spinning. light kicks light kicks light kicks and yeah. then you can sh you can literally shape clay yeah, right yeah. with that momentum and so that's what i meant about like we're kind of good at macro practices and we're dabbling in micro practices but it's the meso ones it's the middle ones that we're really missing to bring transformational consciousness and culture online in a stable way and if we can do those can and even in the, like dyadic practice like with couples you know most people are like oh i look back on we you know before we got married we were tearing each other's clothes off and couldn't get enough of each other and now we've got two babies and we're just roommates and that kind of thing you know and you're like that's just that's amoral evolution that's the base code you can actually learn to make love you can literally learn to precipitate the neurochemical reactions of lust of attraction of pair bonding and do it yourself and then it's like instead of me being in or out of love with you or happy or sad at you that you're fulfilling my narratives or whatever you can be like oh we're two humans who care about each other and trust each other we can spin these things up like electromagnets and so the more we have rotation of our practice the stronger the magnetic draw and then you stop the practice and the you know the electromagnetics the electromagnets stop working you're like okay you can try it again and it works you're like okay so now we are actually at choice with how we deploy these tools and how we integrate them in our lives that's uh it's such a beautiful point and so true because we if we learn to be able to press each other's buttons in this mm -hmm. intimate relationship and all of those buttons we mentioned maybe the button is in you know in your butt maybe the button is in your throat maybe the button is in your consciousness maybe the button is whatever but as a couple in making love and going through these practices we learn how to dance together in this way mm -hmm. we're going to be far more skillful at that over time and these buttons are fucking powerful like mm -hmm. so powerful as powerful as anything you can possibly imagine so and as you get better dancing in that way and knowing how to caress and make love to these triggers in a way who else was going to is going to bring you that and so much of this is like trying to trick the biology like i've heard mm. relationship counsel say you know mix it up wear a wig and fucking you know 
play a play a role where you pretend to be the janitor and she pretends <laughs> to be the school teacher and like okay like how long is that gonna work yeah it's, you know, like, it's super weak sauce or, or, <laughs> it's super weak sauce but if you start getting into power exchange and getting into these ecstatic practices and you form your own dyadic mystery school just between you two where you're exploring these things holy shit the ceiling is limitless because the thing just keeps going no, I mean, you basically realize you're like, oh, we're just like prefrontal cortexes connected to spinal columns connected to erogenous zones. And if we plug together, we get to become time traveling space monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go do more of that. Yeah. You know? Fuck yeah. Let's just take turns lobbing each other into the back of beyond and then coming home with the, with the, with the Quicksilver. I honestly think that's the redemption of monogamy in some ways. You know? Yeah. I mean, and like this is the way that it works. Well, I mean, even, and even to go beyond that, like we're like, okay, it's 21st century, everybody's consenting adults. Like there's, there's all sorts of different relational formats. So sure. like without needing to say that, you can say, hey, versus monogamy, serial monogamy, polyamory, et cetera. Like how about we actually name the high ground, hieros gamos, the sacred union, mm. hierogamy, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so your relational formats, your call, the one thing we would for sure suggest as, as a baseline is, like rock climbing, you're on belay with your partner for as long as you're engaging in those higher octane practices, right? So it's, right. it's incredibly bad form to like bail mid expedition, right? Right, <laughs> yeah. right? right. You make it down to the trailhead where everyone's safe and sound and you can part ways and choose never to go climbing together again. Yeah. But like that commitment of we're on belay, we've got each other because this is hard, this is consequent, consequential terrain. Then the question is, well, how far through the garden gate are you getting? What are you seeing? What are you bringing back? And that provides, I think, opportunities for everybody to instead of seeking, because there's, you know, in the poly world, they critique conventional monogamy, right? Bed, death, code compliance, lack of romance and spontaneity, right? But there's also conventional polyamory, right? Which is really just polyfuckery with a little spiritual veneer on top, mm -hmm. right? Then the next thing that comes online is post-conventional monogamy, right? Which is, which is actually learning to conduct these practices together. And then at least in theory, you could say there's post-conventional polyamory. No doubt. Where there is simply nothing but love for all beings and we are not hung up on any of the things. Not many people have been raised in a social construct where that's available readily. I think that's a tiny end of the curve. But also by the time you're in post-conventional monogamy, experiencing hierogamy with your partner, you could take or leave poly. Yeah. Right. You no longer give a shit. Yeah. Right. So the question is, the, there's no itches to scratch. The only question as to why we might engage that would be for mutual growth or learning. Yeah. I mean, look, I was in a polyamorous relationship for many, many years. And mm -hmm. I was, in some ways, people looked to me as a champion of it, even though most of the time I was talking about, I was talking about how brutal it was, mm -hmm. but it was also impossibly beautiful. I mean, <laughs> the, the way that the, in the, the way that it could, in, and I say this like grossly manipulate the the mind and body and passion and love and not gross as in bad but in just in size like the magnitude mm, mm. of its ability to inculcate these feelings mm -hmm. where you would just break down with this radical you know place of love and excitement and passion you know extended through years you know mm. like just drop into heaven like the structure created that mm -hmm. it came with the cost you know <laughs> and then the cost was oftentimes so heavy that it was burning the house down to bake a loaf of bread as huxley once <laughs> said right like it was fucking heavy man but it worked yeah. it worked for those yeah. for those aspects and then people now i'm in a in a monogamous union with vilana people are like oh glad you found your way and i was like no not really mm -hmm. like this is just a different construct but you're absolutely right that 
sacred union, which is what we call it, is hierogamy, is mm -hmm. what we're aiming towards and what mm -hmm. we're what's coming online. But there's absolutely every possibility to yeah. do that in polyamory, and it's going to be supercharged in some ways, super challenging, super you know online. But a lot of things would have had to change, you mm -hmm. know, in the way that we structured it. Because what we were doing was a conventional polyamory. What I've tried before was a conventional monogamy. Mm -hmm. Both of those radically failed. Yeah. You know, I mean, not failed. They were all good experiences. I, I enjoyed. I wouldn't change them, mm -hmm. but they they were unsustainable, mm -hmm. you know, ultimately. And, and that's not, and I really want to emphasize again, no relationship is a failure. It's all a learning opportunity and they're all beautiful no matter how long they last because we learn and grow and the, the future self that we become redeems the path that got us there and all of these things. So- but nonetheless, they felt unsustainable. And in either case, you point, you put it perfectly that this sacred union, this hierogamy, this is the thing that redeems all structures, mm -hmm. you know, all structures, because it only grows with time. Instead of the entropy that we experience, the entropy of passion, the entropy of connection, the the you know, kind of resentments that naturally build up the business as usual, whatever it might be, it can come in any different construct. Or, but if you if you're really aiming towards these these principles that deepen over time and deepen and deepen mm -hmm. and deepen, it's it's something that feels durable and feels like it's going to grow and feels exciting. You know, yeah. it's instead of looking like ah, oh, well, you know, this is just the way it is. Like, nah, nah, yeah. nah, nah, nah. It doesn't have to be that way. It can be fucking thrilling. And you could be so stoked about your date night because you're like, how deep are we going to go now? What are we going to discover? What's going to happen? Like, oh, yeah. we're going to push some buttons and it's going to get fucking, it's going to get wild. And it's not wild in a dangerous way, but it's like, we're going to bridge into the unknown where that excitement, where the, the chaos is holding the gold of some transcendence or at least some incredible experience that we're experiencing, potentially some deeper union between us or deeper union between us and all things or whatever is going to happen like we get a chance to do that shit yeah and yeah. like that's that's fucking exciting well you figure i mean you know you take this whole thing how do we all get here we all came from some version of a family unit or at least a romantic coupling right and that sense of like it would make sense that that act of connection and conception of whatever it is it could be a, it could be another life it could be an idea it could be a, a, a dream a, a business a relationship art whatever like it would make sense that the more vibrant that central egg of light is right that the more healthy and thriving everything around it is and so just giving ourselves permission to reclaim the central act of creation and to use it because like Life is really hard and there's a bunch of it that's sure. grindy as fuck. And when you, especially when you take on the burden and the blessing of raising kids and all of that, like it'll just dr pile drive us into the ground. And on the other hand, we have this capacity to make each other feel healthier, happier, and more whole than at any other time in existence. I mean, Rick shared with me from maps that, that the closest neurochemical analog to the MDMA therapy with PTSD is high vasopressin, high prolactin, high oxytocin. Like, yeah, pretty much post-orgasmic state. And you're like, wait, Rick, you spent 30 years and 50 million bucks to try and get this through and it's still only in phase three, right? Or how else could we get people to that exalted state known only as post-orgasmic, you know, to do our trauma and healing? You're like, holy shit. Like we are just totally, we are like kindergartners 
when it comes to an, like an, a comprehensive approach to humans, a user manual, and a sexual yoga of becoming that can renew us, reaffirm us, and connect us better than any other toolkit available to do the real work that we're all in on anyway, of walking, you know, walking these um, lives together, raising families together, building organizations together, doing whatever our chosen work is. And it just might save the world. <laughs> <laughs> just might. I don't have a better plan. I mean, I like the aliens and the super god AI option too, but nonetheless, they're not mutually exclusive. They're they're both taking their sweet time. You know? <laughs> Jamie, man, thank you, brother. This is great. By far the longest podcast I've ever done, and no, uh, I, and I'm yeah. definitely one of the most fun. I think probably the most fun <laughs> I've had doing one of these. That's such a real pleasure. Recapture the rapture, rethinking God, sex, and death in a world that's lost its mind. Thanks, so man. good. Anything else? You got a, I know you got a website, recapturetherapture.com. Yep. And there's some uh, other goodies on there. What are some yeah, goodies? Yeah, there's, a, there's a whole, I mean, in keeping with that human-centered design toolkit, there's a, um, you just put in the your purchase of the book and you get a whole like 50-page PDF with all full-color infographics of the book and stitching it all together. So a total like user manual to go. Wait, how do you punch in your purchase of the book? Just at, on the landing page. There's okay. some little thing. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, man. Amazing. This is beautiful. Well, thank you so much, brother. Man, thanks so much me. love for you. Yeah. Goodbye, everybody. Peace. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Jamie Wheel. Make sure you check out his book, Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex, and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. It's available everywhere. It helps out all authors when you buy them from a bookstore. So if you're able to do that, great. Otherwise, Amazon works just fine as well. Thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. I appreciate you. This was a long one, and I can't wait to hear your feedback.